meaning of the Mass, materials for meditation on the Holy Sacrifice and its relation to our spiritual life, by Reverend John Kearney, CSSP, Neil Obstadt, M. L. Dempsey, Imprimatur, Johannes Carolus, dedicated to Mary, the Blessed Mother of Jesus, who stood beside the cross while the great sacrifice was being offered. A letter of approbation. Letter from Archbishop Lean, formerly professor of theology in Rome. Dear Father Kearney, I have read with much interest your pages on the holy sacrifice of the Mass. It seems to me that the publication of this work would be productive of a great deal of good. It is very important that the faithful should understand the very intimate and personal part that they, in union with the whole mystical body, should play in the offering of the holy sacrifice. The manner in which they are to change a mere passive assistance into an active participation is admirably and clearly explained. The notion of sacrifice and the application of this notion to Calvary and to the Mass have been well treated. Those who read this work cannot fail to grasp how they can make their Mass to be the inspiration of their whole spiritual life. Believe me, dear Father, yours very sincerely in Christ, James, Archbishop, Bishop of Port Louis. A Preface The favorable reception given to the meaning of the Mass, both in the press and in private correspondence from many interested readers, has suggested a few changes, which it is hoped will make the edition, uh, this edition of the book more useful. The text has been revised, and a study of the words of the ordinary has been added. This study brings out the fact that the line of thought followed in the previous chapters is in accord with the spirit and meaning of the ordinary. The importance of explaining the Mass to young people before they leave school so as to give them a real appreciation of the holy sacrifice is a reason for the inclusion of a simplified summary of the sequence of thought in the body of this book. This, it is hoped, will be a help to teachers. Furthermore, it will give an idea of the point of view set forth in the book for those who wish to have such a summary before reading the text itself. The first edition was submitted to professors of two Roman universities, the Gregorian and the Angelicum, who were very favorably impressed. To quote one, I have read the meaning of the Mass through very carefully. I can say without any flattery whatever that I consider it absolutely excellent, theologically accurate, and from a spiritual point of view calculated to be most helpful. The writer places this new edition at the feet of the Blessed Mother of Jesus, asking her to bless all those who will read it. An Introduction The Maynooth Catechism tells us that sacrifice is an act of religion by which we acknowledge God's supreme dominion over us and our total dependence on Him. It is an act which manifests and declares that man realizes the majesty of the Creator and that he is determined to live as God's creature and God's child in absolute dependence on and conformity to the divine will. The Catechism also tells us that the Mass is the sacrifice of the new law. If we substitute for the word sacrifice in the second statement its definition as given in the first, a procedure which a teacher would naturally be led to follow, we reach the following statement, 
The Mass is an act by which a person acknowledges God's supreme dominion over him and his total dependence on God. It is an act, therefore, which expresses a disposition of the soul, a disposition of humble and complete subjection to the supreme majesty of God. The above simple argument brings us at once into the midst of the theology of the holy sacrifice and suggests thoughts, perhaps not very familiar, on the inner meaning of the Mass. We are all conscious that the Mass must be involved in mystery, since by it we are brought into close contact with the action of God. But at the same time, we all have a desire to know something more of its inner meaning, and the very fact of its central position in Christian life leads us to expect that its mysteries can be penetrated more fully than has been done by us up to the present. This deeper knowledge comes from consideration and petition. The Holy Ghost warns us that before prayer we should prepare our souls and not be like those that tempt God. The warning has a special importance in regard to the holy sacrifice. We should prepare our souls before we approach God's altar to celebrate or to unite with the celebrant of the holy sacrifice. This preparation consists in what we do immediately before Mass, but it also consists in pious considerations on the meaning of the Mass, to which we devote ourselves in times of recollection. These constitute the remote preparation. Experience has shown that by meditating on the fundamental idea of sacrifice, it is possible to attain to an understanding of the inner meaning of the Mass, which will be simple and at the same time profound. This concept of the Mass, if pondered over in a spirit of prayer, will come before us spontaneously and clearly at the time of the sacrifice. It will help us to place and to keep our soul in that disposition of affectionate reverence and docile devotion which God desires us to have when we approach the sacrifice of His Son Jesus to unite ourselves with it, to participate in it, and to draw from it the treasures of grace which it contains. Materials for such meditations are outlined in the following pages. It is hoped that by God's grace they will lead the reader to a fuller knowledge of the Mass and to a clearer view of the disposition of soul needed to receive the rich graces which the Council of Trent tells us are so abundantly bestowed by God through the Holy Sacrifice. To make this work more convenient for use in supplying matter for meditation, each chapter and even each section of a chapter has been made as complete as possible while avoiding theological difficulties. The duty of explaining the Holy Sacrifice in its relation to the spiritual life was imposed on the writer by the office he holds. The study this demanded and the setting in order of the results have proved of marked advantage to him. It is his hope and his prayer that the reading of what he has written may, through God's blessing, be of like advantage to others. Method of Treatment The Council of Trent solemnly declares that our Lord instituted the Mass in order that he might leave to his beloved spouse a visible sacrifice as human nature requires, by which the bloody sacrifice once offered on the cross might be represented and its memory remain to the end of time.
The Holy Council indicates to us in these words that there are two aspects under which we may contemplate the mystery of the Mass. In the first place, the Mass is a memorial of the death of Christ on Calvary. Do this, he said, for a commemoration of me. Do this that you may be reminded of me, of what I suffered in my passion, and of the love which was manifested in every phase of that suffering. But the Mass is more than a mere memorial. It is a sacrifice. It is the daily sacrifice, the visible rite, which is so suitable and so needful to our nature. In dealing with the Holy Mass, therefore, we have two points to consider, the Mass as a memorial and the Mass as a sacrifice. Part 1. The Mass as a Memorial The august sacrifice of the altar is therefore not merely and simply a commemoration of the death and crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The Holy Mass is a memorial, the Catholic doctrine. The doctrine that the Mass is a memorial of the Passion is taught by the Council of Trent. It appears clearly in the Holy Scripture and in tradition, especially in the liturgy of the Church. The New Testament gives us the very words used by our Savior in instituting the Mass. We read in St. Luke that at the Last Supper, immediately after the first consecration, our Lord said, Do this in commemoration of me. That is, do this as a memorial of me, as a memorial of my death. St. Paul emphasizes this command. Writing to the Corinthians, he recalls that the Divine Master made a twofold statement of his desire by saying twice, Do this for the commemoration of me. To bring home to the sense more clearly, the Apostle adds, As often as you shall eat this bread and drink the chalice, you shall show forth the death of the Lord until he come. Hence the Mass, in very truth, shows forth the death of the Lord. It is a memorial of His death. In the words of the ordinary of the Mass, this same doctrine finds clear expression. At the offertory, the priest says, Receive, O Holy Trinity, this oblation which we make to Thee in memory of the Passion. In the text of the canon, the priest immediately after the consecration of the chalice again expresses this thought, saying in the name of Christ, As often as you shall do these things, you shall do them in remembrance of me. And continuing, he says, Wherefore, O Lord, we thy servants, as also thy holy people, calling to mind the blessed passion of the same Christ thy Son, offer unto thy most excellent majesty a pure host. The Mass and the office of the Blessed Sacrament have continual reference to the fact that the Holy Eucharist itself is a memorial of the Passion. Thus, in the Collect of the Mass, composed by St. Thomas, the Church prays, O God, who in this admirable sacrament hast left us a memorial of thy Passion. In the sixth lesson of the office we read, Christ instituted this sacrament as a perpetual memorial of his Passion. And again, at Vespers, we have the beautiful antiphon, O sacred banquet in which Christ is received and in which the memory of his passion is recalled. And in the hymn, Adoro Te, also composed by St. Thomas, the Blessed Sacrament is addressed, 
O memorial of the death of the Lord. These extracts are sufficient to show that the liturgy of the church sets forth the same doctrine as the Council of Trent, which teaches that Holy Mass was instituted so that the memory of Calvary might remain to the end of time. Holy Mass is a memorial of the bloodshedding of Jesus. A memorial of the death of the Lord brings us back in spirit to the hill of Calvary. When the last moment came at three o'clock on Good Friday, and our Lord commended His holy soul to His heavenly Father, His sacred body had lost almost all the precious blood. That blood was visible on His own flesh. It was on the wood of the cross. It was on the ground below. It was on the garments of the soldiers. It lay all along the way from the praetorium to Golgotha. It was scattered in abundance around the pillar where he was scourged. His blood was really and visibly separated from his body. Jesus did not die because his body was destroyed or his bones crushed. You shall not break a bone in him, said the scripture. He did not die because his brain was pierced or because his heart was pierced. That piercing took place after his death. His vital organs were not injured. They failed to act because his blood was almost entirely drained away, and he was absolutely spent. Our Lord could have prevented this death by the exercise of his miraculous power. When his enemies came to take him prisoner, he cast them to the ground by a simple word to show that he surrendered himself freely. Before he gave up his soul, he cried out with a loud voice to show that he died freely. Of his own will he gave up his life. No man, he said, taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. He died from the loss of blood with the intense pain that accompanied it and the exhaustion caused by his position on the cross. He bled all through the last period of his passion. He bled to the moment of death. The liturgy of the church tells us that we were saved by the death of Christ. Again, it teaches that we were saved by the blood of Christ, by the blood shedding of Christ. It is manifest, therefore, that in the mind of the church, the blood shedding of Jesus was associated as a principal cause with his death. Contemplate him in the last pains of his agony. It is the last stage of a death from bleeding and pain. The bleeding began in the Garden of Gethsemane. His sweat became as drops of blood running down to the ground, hence it was abundant. Before his enemies had touched him, his blood flowed. When he was scourged at the pillar, he bled copiously. His holy body was covered with wounds. The blood streamed from his sacred head when the crown of thorns was pressed on his brow. It matted his hair. It flowed down into his eyes. And thus wounded, he went his way to Calvary bearing his own cross, and all the way he was bleeding, step by step he was losing his most precious blood. When they drove the nails into his sacred hands and feet, they severed the arteries and veins, and the blood spurted out, first with the force of his heartbeat, and when his pressure was gone owing to the prolonged bleeding, it drained away more and more slowly, drop by drop. He bled to his death. In death his blood was separated from his body. On the altar, in the separate consecration of the body and blood, we have a vivid memorial of all this bloodshedding. The chalice and the host are before us as separated. 
How true it is, therefore, that in the Mass, to use the words of St. Paul, we show forth the death of the Lord. And how marvelous is this memorial! Not only does it remind us of the bloodshedding on Calvary, but it contains him of whose death it is the reminder. And what more vivid memorial could we conceive? When we bow down at the double elevation, the death by separation of body and blood should come before us. During the canon, when the chalice and the host are separated on the corporal, we can think of the white bloodless body and the red blood which was taken from it. In the Mass, he who shed his blood is present, and the Mass is the memorial and the representation of his blood shedding. Do this, he said, in commemoration of me. Holy Mass is a memorial of the death pains of Jesus. The Mass is a memorial not only of the blood shedding, but also of the pains of Jesus. It is a memorial of his sufferings. The passion of Jesus was long, eighteen hours. It was an agony of most intense pain. The pain was mental and physical, and both one and the other were associated with the shedding of his blood, that is, with the separation of his blood from his body. And hence, the separate consecration of the same blood and the same body on the altar is a memorial not only of the bleeding, but of the pain, the intense pain that accompanied it. The anguish of the mental suffering in Gethsemane was revealed by our Lord himself when he said, My soul is sorrowful even unto death. That is, this sorrow, this heart pain is so piercing that by itself it would cause death. Again, the hidden pain of his heart was manifested by the words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Mysterious words, but clear in their indication of fathomless agony of soul. The hidden pain of his sacred heart might have escaped our notice, but for these two exclamations, one made at the beginning and the other at the end of his long agony while the blood was streaming from his body. The first word came when the early bloodshedding was being caused by intense mental pain, the second as the last drops were draining from his wounded body. Hence, when the separate consecrations recall his bleeding unto death, they recall vividly, too, the hidden pain, the anguish of heart which accompanied that bleeding and was so intimately linked with it. The scourging, with its unthinkable torture, comes before us. Its cruelty is manifested in the blood that was visible on his sacred body, on the ground, on the whips and the garments of the executioners. Contemplate your Savior. Every stroke was a fresh agony, and the deeper the furrows cut in the sacred body, the more excruciating was the suffering. The pain of the scourging and the crowning which followed is indissolubly united with the loss of the most precious blood which was separated from his body. Of this separation and the intense pain that accompanied it, we have a representation and memorial as the host and the chalice lie separate on the corporal. But the most intense pain of all was caused by the driving of the nails through the sacred hands and feet with new and copious loss of blood. This dreadful pain lasted all the long hours on the cross. We shudder to think of it. The hands, being in a special way the organs of touch, are furnished with most sensitive nerves, and the nails going through them were in contact 
with some of the main branches of those nerves. Hence the agony caused by the continual pressure is beyond imagining. But why all these appalling pains, mental and physical, in the work of our salvation? Why did the Eternal Father wish His beloved Son made man to accept this unthinkable agony? Profound Mystery Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God! How incomprehensible are His judgments, and how unsearchable His ways! For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been His counselor? The justice of God is one of His perfections. It is a divinely adorable one. It is infinite, as is God Himself. This divine justice, like all the divine perfections, is utterly beyond our full comprehension. Our finite minds cannot grasp completely the nature of this divine attribute. We can only adore in humility and acknowledge with a full heart that all that God does is absolutely just. And yet by the light of revelation we can glimpse the depths of the mysteries of God's justice, and we can discern, even in the dimness, a revelation of the divine majesty, a manifestation of the divine generosity towards men. The work of our salvation was a work of reparation for sin. St. Thomas tells us that to sin correspond both the pain of loss on account of the turning away from God and the pain of sense on account of the inordinate turning to a commutable good. When we consider the nature of sin, we recognize that in every sin there is to be found this inordinate turning to something created. Man seeks a personal satisfaction, and seeks it without due reference and subjection to God. Man seeks a pleasure, and to secure this pleasure he casts aside the divine will. He prefers his pleasure to the friendship of God. He selects a creature rather than God. This is a violation of justice, for God must be the final end of all activity. He is supreme. He drew man out of nothing. He keeps man in existence. He gives him the use of the faculties of speech and sight and movement. And therefore, all acts that come from these faculties belong to him. Hence it is unjust to use any faculty in a way that is contrary to God's will. To seek pleasure in opposition to His will is unjust. Whether you eat or drink or whatsoever else you do, do all to the glory of God. Now the injustice of turning to a creature and putting God in the second place deserves the punishment of pain. As God's justice is so mysterious, it is not astonishing that the relation between sin and the punishment of sin by pain should be, to a great extent, involved in obscurity. But it is admitted by all mankind that illicit pleasure deserves pain, and that pain may affect the restoration of the order which is violated by disorderly satisfaction. A wrong act is repaired by its opposite. If I've taken something not mine, to make complete reparation, I must give it back. If I have refused due reverence to make full reparation, I must show reverence. In like manner, the natural atonement for forbidden pleasure is in the accepting and the bearing of pain. If, disregarding God's will, man turns to a creature that pleases him, the sin deserves the penalty of pain. That a guilty person, says St. Thomas, be brought back within the order of justice 
it needs must be that the will suffer deprivation in what it desires. This is done by its being punished, either by being made to forego the good things which it would wish to have, or by the infliction of evil things which it shrinks from enduring. Since the fall of man, no human being was fully acceptable to God, no bearing of suffering by a finite being could pay the debt of pain due for the injustice done by choosing a creature rather than the infinite God. Christ, God and man, came to the rescue. The dignity of his person was infinite. He took our sins upon himself. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He was head and representative and king of the human race, and in this capacity he accepted to bear the pain by which justice would be fully manifested, by which the order of due dependence of all things on God would be rectified, and heaven opened again to sinful man. To understand this, we should recall that Christ was sent into the world to preach the truth, to stand by the truth no matter what it cost. A death which is incurred by preaching God's truth and refusing to compromise this truth is the greatest outward expression of one's adherence to God. It was on this account Christ died. In particular, he died for the truth of his divine sonship. He ought to die, said the Jews, because he made himself the Son of God. As St. Anselm says, Christ freely died not by obedience to leave life, but by obedience to stand by justice, in which he persevered with such strength that as a consequence he incurred death. God, says St. Thomas, wills the virtue whereby man braves the danger of death through charity. Hence it is clear that it was not wicked or cruel for God the Father to have willed Christ's death. For he did not compel him against his will, but it pleased him that Christ should accept death through charity. Christ, therefore, as representative of the human race, by the pains of his passion, paid the debt of punishment due for the sins of men. This pain, this long agony from Gethsemane to Calvary, was associated with that slow bleeding unto death. And at the Holy Mass, in the separate consecration of the body and blood, we have the memorial of this bloodshedding and of the pain of heart and of body that accompanied it. The Church emphasizes this last point when she prays in the collect of the Blessed Eucharist, O God, who in this most holy sacrament has left us a memorial of thy passion, a memorial of thy sufferings, of thy pains, a memorial of the pains by which thou didst satisfy for our transgressions. He washed us from our sins in his own blood, says St. John. A Christ expiation of sin by pain, his satisfaction for actual sin was for each of us, so that we may live to God. The satisfactions of Jesus can be ours if we really wish to have them, and they will be ours through Holy Mass, in the measure of the perfection in which our will is conformed to the divine will. The more perfect this conformity, the more perfectly our debt of pain will be taken away, and the more fully will we live that life in God to which he gave us access. If there is some imperfection in our conformity, if we are still to some degree self-seekers, 
there will remain some debt of pain which we must bear in this life or in purgatory. But it is important to note that the pains we bear in this life will be efficacious in blotting out our debt only when we bear them in union with the pains of Jesus. He said, No man cometh to the Father but by me. The mystery of justice and pain in the Passion leads to further considerations which will give us a yet clearer understanding of God's goodness. If God had so willed, he could have forgiven the injustice of sin without exacting the expiation of pain. He has not done so. Why is this? The ultimate reason is beyond our understanding. It's a mystery. But following the guidance of the great theologians, we can give the following partial explanations. All the attributes of God are manifested in the life of Jesus. God's power and wisdom and mercy and kindness shine out, but to our limited vision, his justice does not seem to be so prominently manifested. Yet, God in his wisdom has attained this end. In the Passion, he has united justice and mercy. We see his justice shown forth in the painful death of his beloved Son to make reparation for sin and thus restore men to favor with God. His mercy appears in his treatment of us sinners to whom are applied the fruits of the Passion. Again, it would be difficult for men to realize the malice of sin unless the punishment it deserves were put before their eyes. To contemplate the punishment would be an immense help to fallen mankind. It would strengthen men of weak will and keep them in subjection to God. It would save men from the hardness of heart which leads sinners to be separated from God forever while manifesting his justice by their pain. To secure these advantages for men, the Eternal Father did not spare his own Son but delivered him up for us all to pain and to death. The crucifix therefore teaches us what sin really is. It leads us to hate sin, to fear the occasions of sin, and it indicates the remedy for sin. By his bruises we are healed. Further, if he would save his soul, it was most necessary for man to learn to accept pain. It was only by pain that the disorder in man's inferior powers can be rectified. This disorder is due to sin. It is only by mortification and self-denial, that is, by pain, that man can reach a position of safety in the control of his unruly tendencies. And Christ was willing to teach this hard doctrine by bearing pain himself, by bearing atrocious and prolonged pain. He is the way. With the crucifix before us and God's grace helping us, we can and we must face confidently and bravely the self-denial and mortification which are the means of rectifying the disorder in us, so that we may persevere in the effort to keep our will in conformity with the divine will, and thus reach the perfection of union with God to which we are called. But, above all, it was necessary for men to realize the love God has for them. God's love for man appears first in his giving them the power to become his child and to enter into a participation of his own eternal life. And when man sinned, the divine device by which the incarnate God suffered and died to restore the order of justice and give access to his kingdom 
is a further proclamation of the reality of his love. It is a proof of his unchanged desire that his fallen creatures should attain to union with him. I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all things to myself. Truly, the passion does manifest in an astonishing way God's love for man. In this, we have known the charity of God because he has laid down his life for us. Holy Mass is a memorial of the all-embracing love of Jesus. When we contemplate the prolonged bloodshedding of Jesus and the intense pain of his agony, when we ponder over the price he paid in blood and pain that our sins might be blotted out, we are naturally led to the desire of penetrating into the depths of his soul and of reaching to some understanding of the motive power that prompted him to bear his agony and to give his blood. What is the final explanation of the extraordinary fact that God made man died in such intense pain with his sacred body drained of the precious blood? One word explains the mystery as far as it can be explained, and that one word is love. Holy Mass is not only a memorial of the bleeding unto death of Jesus and of the pain of his long agony, it is also a memorial of the love which was the explanation of both. In this sacrament, says the Church, the memory is recalled of that supreme charity which Christ manifested in his passion. To be present at Mass, therefore, is to see the memorial and the mystic renewal of the death of Christ. It is to be present again on Calvary. It is to be reminded not merely of what took place, but of what was hidden in the heart of Christ and what was hidden in God, and that which was hidden was love. He loved us and delivered himself for us. Hence, as St. Francis de Sales says, Calvary is the mount of love, and the Mass is the memorial of love. It is a memorial of the passion which was the effect of love, and hence the Church says, We have received, O Lord, the divine sacrament, the perpetual memorial of thy immense charity. To understand this love of Jesus, which is the explanation of his passion, we must keep in mind that while there was one person in Christ, the divine person of the Son, there were two natures, the human nature and the divine nature. And because there were two natures, there were two wills in Christ, the divine will and the human will. The human will, a created faculty of his created soul, and the divine will, which was one and the same in the three persons of the Holy Trinity. For in God, with one nature, there is but one will. And because there were two wills in Christ, there were two loves, a created love, a tender love, a love that was felt by him, a love we can understand and picture to ourselves. But with that created love in our Lord, there was also the uncreated love, infinite, unimaginable, an unbounded ocean of divine benignity. Both these loves were the loves of one person, a divine person, the second person of the Most Holy Trinity. Both loves belonged to this divine person. Both loves were truly the loves of Jesus. But what is the nature of love? To love with the love of benevolence or friendship is to wish well to another. To love a person is to wish that person good. So wrote St. Thomas, the angelic doctor. To love 
is to wish good with a real wish that comes from the very depth of our being. This well-wishing implies a desire for the welfare of the person loved, and it implies the will to promote this welfare by our own act, even at the cost of sacrifice and suffering. It implies that we make the interest of the loved one our own, and so much so that we promote his interest with a zeal equal to or exceeding that which we have for our own personal interests. Let us try to bring home to ourselves in some little way the marvels of the love of Jesus of which the Mass is the memorial. In Christ our Lord there was first of all his created love for his heavenly Father. This love appears in many texts of the Gospel and is presented by Jesus as being the mainspring of all his activity and particularly of his acceptance of the Passion. He would have us know that this love is the motive of all he does, especially at the supreme moment when he goes forth to meet suffering and death. That the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father has given me a commandment, so I act. Arise, let us go hence. This love which predominates in Jesus and to which all else is subordinate is so intense that we cannot perfectly picture it. It was a love of the most perfect human heart that ever existed. It flowed from a knowledge of the perfections of God, a knowledge to which we can set no limit. This knowledge, exceeding by far that of the hosts of heaven, fathomed mighty depths of the divine lovableness. It ranged through vast expanses of the infinite attractiveness of God. Because of his love, the interest of his heavenly Father were his interests. He saw with unimaginable clearness what sin was. Its opposition to the God he loved was hateful to him. He would do anything to repair the disorder and to establish the kingdom of his Father. Hence he bore the pains of the Passion, for it was his Father's will that sin should be repaired by death, accepted in loving obedience. Of this love for his heavenly Father, manifested in the bearing of pain to satisfy God's justice, we have the memorial in the Mass. But the created love of Christ had another object, another object on account of which he accepted with a full will the sufferings of his bloodshedding. He loved men, his fellows, he loved sinners. I have come, he said, not to call the just, but sinners. He declared that there would be joy in heaven, and hence in his own created heart, over one sinner that does penance. Come to me, he said, all ye that labor in temptation and are burdened, burdened with sin, and I will refresh you, and you shall find rest for your souls. He loved men, and seeing the state to which sin had reduced them, seeing them incapable of ever reaching the happiness for which God had destined them, he was ready to do anything for their sake. He made their interest to be his interest, and he was ready to die for them. Greater love than this, he said, no man hath, than that he lay down his life for his friend. Of this amazing love for us, for us sinners, of this death through love, we have the memorial in Holy Mass. But there was yet another love in Jesus. There was the divine, uncreated, infinite love, which also embraces us sinners. The ocean of divine benignity was one and the same in the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. 
It was of this love Jesus spoke when he said, God so loved the world as to give his only begotten Son. It was this unchanged, unchangeable love which drew men out of nothing that the divine goodness might be manifested in the eternal destiny of happiness given them. It was this unchanged love which, when sin destroyed God's design, was the cause of the incarnation and of the passion with all its pains. This divine and everlasting love was in Jesus as he shed his blood all the day long on Good Friday. There was love divine in every drop that fell to the ground, and the Mass is the memorial of this eternal love. We will continue with the book, The Meaning of the Mass, by Reverend John Kearney, on side B of this tape. Let us continue now with The Meaning of the Mass, by Reverend John Kearney, CSSP, the chapter on Holy Mass as a Memorial. When we assist at Holy Mass, we should go back in thought to Calvary, of which it is the memorial. When we consider the white host lying on the corporal, separated from the chalice, we should think of the long, slow bleeding by which the sacred blood was really separated from the sacred body. And we should recall the intense pain that accompanied this blood shedding, the intense pain which Jesus bore that he might pay the debt of punishment due for our sins and open for us the way to friendship with God. But especially, we should bring back to our memory the source, the cause, the explanation of all this bloodshedding and all this pain. We should recall the love that was hidden in Christ, the love of his created heart for his heavenly Father, the love of that created heart for us sinners, the love which made him desire to die for us. I have a baptism wherewith I must be baptized, he said, and how am I straightened until it be accomplished. And finally, we should recall the eternal, unchanging love of the Godhead, which embraced even us, which gave him to die for us, so that we might become worthy to enter his kingdom. What ingratitude is shown to God when anyone doubts his goodness and his care for us? What ingratitude is shown to the Lord Jesus when anyone doubts the tenderness of his heart in our regard. The evidence for the divine goodness, the evidence for the tenderness of Jesus, is put before us in the daily memorial of the Passion. The bloodshedding is visibly represented before our eyes in the Mass. The bloodshedding that had its source in the absolute goodness of God and the compassion of Jesus for sinners. What more could God have done to prove his care he became man. He lived in humility and toil. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. He shed his blood with most intense pain. And all this, that we might experience the happiness for which he destined us. What more could he have done to prove the reality of his love? And what more could he do to remind us of this bloodshedding, of this pain, of this love? He represents it all before our eyes each day. What ingratitude there is shown to God, to Jesus, when in spite of the daily memorial of the bloodshedding and the pain, 
men ignore the love which is manifested, when men turn their minds from the evidence and almost forget that the God of the cross and of the altar does care so really for them. Let us ask that through Holy Mass we may obtain the grace to believe with unshaken confidence in the infinite goodness of God, in the tenderness of the heart of Jesus. Let us ask that we may pass all the days of our pilgrimage in the sweet assurance that the God of the cross and the altar is the God of mercy and kindness and consolation, the God who desires to draw us to himself, who died to lay open for us the way to his kingdom, who has given us in the Mass a memorial of the supreme expression of his love, of his sacred passion and death. But the Mass is a memorial of something more. It is a memorial of the resurrection and the ascension of our Savior. The crucifixion was not the end of the life of Christ on earth. It was followed by his glorious resurrection and his radiantly happy risen life, which again was followed by the triumph of his ascension and the eternal glory of his sacred humanity at the right hand of God. These were the public manifestations of the good pleasure of his heavenly Father with all the Lord Jesus had done in his life, his passion, and his death. It was also the divine confirmation of the truth of his claim to be the Son of God equal to his Father in all things. Hence the church at the offertory of the Mass, and again immediately after the consecration, recalls to our memory the resurrection and glorious ascension of her founder and her head. In a word, the Mass is a memorial of the Lord Jesus himself, our Savior and our Lover. But there are further depths for us to explore in Holy Mass. We have seen already that according to our holy faith, the Mass is both a memorial of Calvary and a sacrifice. It is not a mere memorial of what took place in Jerusalem on Good Friday. The Mass is something more. It is a real sacrifice. It would be a mistake to stress either of these two ideas to the detriment of the other. Both should be kept in mind. When we assist at Mass, our mind should go back to Calvary, of which it is a memorial. Do this in commemoration of me, said Christ. Our mind should go back to the separation of the precious blood from his body, and the pain that accompanied this. But, as said above, we should in particular recall and contemplate with wondering gratitude and immense love that placed Christ as a victim on the cross the love of the sacred heart for us sinners, the immense love with which he opened wide his arms to be nailed to the wood for our sins, the unbounded love that held him there for long hours, and the uncreated divine love which brought him down from heaven. The Son of God has loved me and has delivered himself up for me, says St. Paul. But excellent and necessary as is this contemplation, it does not exhaust the teaching of our holy faith. The Mass is a memorial, but it is also a true sacrifice. Inasmuch as it is a memorial, we have to contemplate the truth of which it is the memorial, but inasmuch as it is a sacrifice, we have to participate in it so that we may receive the rich fruits which the Council of Trent declares are given to those who participate really in this holy sacrifice. We must now consider carefully the nature 
of the sacrifice of Christ and what our participation in the Mass implies. Part 2. The Mass as a Sacrifice By means of the unbloody immolation in the august sacrifice of the altar, the High Priest, Jesus Christ, continues to do that which he already did on the cross by offering himself to the Eternal Father as a most acceptable victim. When a priest celebrates, he honors God, he rejoices the angels, he builds up the church, he helps the living, he obtains rest for the dead. Hence, when we need any favor, spiritual or temporal, for ourselves or for others, we should assist at Mass or have Mass offered for this intention. A general account of sacrifice, the magnificence of the Mass. The Council of Trent, speaking of the holy sacrifice of the Mass, says, No other work can be performed by the faithful so holy, so divine, as this tremendous mystery. In these clear words, the infallible Church of God, assembled in general council, declares to us the wondrous holiness and the divine dignity of her daily sacrifice. This teaching merits our most careful consideration. There are many good and holy works which men can offer for the glory of God, but there is no work more holy, there is no work more divine, than the work of participating in this tremendous mystery. There is nothing in this world equal to it. But Holy Mass is wonderful not only on earth, it is wonderful also in heaven. The angels before the throne regard the celebration of the Mass with adoring amazement. In the decree which is prefixed to every missal, Pope Urban VIII says, If the angels could envy man anything, it is the power to offer Holy Mass. The angels see God face to face. They are perfectly at one with His holy will, and hence absolutely submissive to the designs of His providence. But if they could envy us, it would be for this one thing only, the power to celebrate Holy Mass. St. Francis de Sales, when treating of the Holy Sacrifice, says, It is the sun of spiritual exercises, the heart of devotion, the soul of piety. As the light shed by the sun is the condition and support of all material life, so the grace that flows from the Holy Sacrifice is the condition and support of all spiritual life. As the heart in our body is the source of all its motion, so the Holy Sacrifice is the source of the promptitude and activity in God's service, which we call devotion. As from the soul proceed our affections, so from the Holy Sacrifice proceed the graces of childlike and generous love of God. In very truth, the source and center of all spiritual life, both in the whole church and in the individual soul, is the Holy Sacrifice. But what precisely is a sacrifice? To answer, we must go down to the very foundation of religion. Sacrifice is a sacred sign. The first commandment of the Decalogue brings before us the absolute majesty and supreme dominion of God. I am the Lord thy God, thou shalt not have strange gods before me. These are solemn words. This first commandment makes us realize the first of all truths. God is supreme. His majesty is unbounded. 
He dominates all beings, for he it is that keeps them in existence. I am the Lord thy God. And in consequence, we cannot put any other being before God. We cannot prefer anything to him, not even our personal advantage, or comfort, or honor. We must not worship self. Thou shalt not have strange gods before me. In a word, we, his creatures, should ever keep ourselves in a spirit of profound reverence before God. We should live in a docile dependence on him, for he has supreme dominion over us. It is easy to see that this disposition of soul should be expressed externally. It is right for our body to take part in our worship of God, since it is kept in existence by him, and also because the very constitution of our being makes it natural for us to express externally our dominant internal dispositions. The suitability of such a visible expression of docile dependence on our Creator leads to the first idea of the nature of sacrifice. Sacrifice is an act. It is an act by which man expresses his supreme worship of God. Sacrifice is not merely an internal prayer of the heart. It is an external act. It is an act by which man shows forth visibly and publicly the veneration for God that is hidden in his soul. It is an act of religion. To understand sacrifice, therefore, we must understand religion. Treating of religion, St. Thomas makes these statements. Religion directs a man to God alone. Religion is the virtue by which we offer to God his due honor. And he adds, by the fact that we reverence and honor God, our souls are subject to him, and in this their perfection lies. That is to say, subjection to God constitutes the perfection of the soul, and this subjection is found in those who are really religious. After that, St. Thomas speaks of the acts of the virtue of religion, and referring to devotion, which is one of these acts, he tells us that the devout are so named because they devote themselves to God, and thus proclaim their complete subjection to him. And then he asks, is meditation the cause of devotion? And he answers, Meditation must be the cause of devotion, inasmuch as it is from meditation that a man conceives the idea of giving himself up to God. St. Thomas, in this question on religion, always gives prominence to the same fundamental idea of total subjection to God, of complete surrender to him. It is to be noted that in the same question, the angelic doctor points out that religion and sanctity are essentially the same. In other words, the truly religious man is a saintly man. The idea expressed so clearly by St. Thomas is repeated by masters of the spiritual life. St. John of the Cross was declared doctor of the church for his books treating of this matter. Here's what he writes regarding the foundations. When the soul has succeeded in placing before herself the rigor of her duties, she sees that life is short, that the way of eternal life is narrow, that salvation is hardly attained even by the just, that the things of this world are naught but illusion and vanity, that all things come to an end, and like the running waters pass away, that time is uncertain, the account to be rendered rigorous, smooth the way of perdition salvation full of difficulties. 
On the other hand, the soul is conscious of the great debt she owes to God, that having received of him and for him existence, she is in duty bound to place her whole life at his service. Moreover, for his own self has he redeemed her, and in consequence she owes to him all that is in her, and must respond to such great love by a complete submission of her will. The saint thus places the subjection of our will to God as the foundation of our spiritual life. It is the outcome of the fundamental meditations which he has outlined above. The spiritual doctrine of Father Lalamont, S.J., is recognized as a spiritual book of great value. In the opening section of this work we read, Our true greatness depends on our submission to God. And again, our perfection and our happiness consist in the subjection of our heart to this empire of God. The more our heart submits to Him, the more perfect and the more happy shall we be. From all these statements it is manifest that in the minds of St. Thomas and other spiritual writers, subjection to God is at the very foundation of sanctity. Now man's willing subjection to his Creator is visibly expressed by the act of sacrifice. The ideas of the holy doctors set forth above prepare us for the understanding of a more precise definition of this great act. Sacrifice, says the Maynooth Catechism, is the first and most necessary act of religion by which we acknowledge God's supreme dominion over us and our total dependence on Him. Sacrifice is the first act of religion because it expresses the first and most fundamental of all religious truths, that is, the supreme dominion of God. It is the most necessary act of religion because without it our worship of God would be imperfect, and because for us the acknowledgment and acceptance of this fundamental truth is an essential condition for our attaining to union with Him in whom is our perfect rest. Now by the disposition of divine providence, men have to live in society. Society therefore comes from God, and hence, as dependent on God, society should take part in religious worship. This leads to the act of sacrifice being reserved to a chosen man who acts in the name of all. This man is called a priest. And further, since sacrifice is a social act, it is eminently suitable, or even necessary, that a competent authority should set apart some special act to be performed by the chosen man for the sole purpose of giving expression to the supreme worship of God. From what's been said, it is not difficult to see that sacrifice belongs to the class of acts which are called signs. A sign is an act or a thing which can easily be perceived by our senses and brings what is hidden before the mind. To hoist a white flag in war is a sign that one is willing to surrender. Sacrifice is a sign because it manifests and expresses the hidden disposition of reverence, of willing docility, dependence, and subjection to God, which is in the heart of man. When God had given His holy law to the Israelites, Moses, their leader and ruler, offered sacrifice in the name of all, and the Holy Ghost has recorded it in the sacred scripture, that the people who stood around cried out, All things that the Lord hath spoken we will do, 
we will be obedient. These words indicate the disposition of soul in which the people assisted at the sacred rite immediately after the promulgation of the law. The first sacrifice was the expression of willingness to obey. It was a sign of obedience. We're familiar with the word sign as applied to the sacraments. A sacrifice and a sacrament agree, says Cardinal Below, S.J., inasmuch as they are signs. They differ inasmuch as a sacrament is a sign of the causes of our sanctification. A sacrifice is a sign of interior worship. In considering any sign, we must clearly distinguish a. the act or thing which signifies and b. what is signified. A sacrament is a sign. It is a visible act signifying the hidden grace which it confers. In extreme unction, the external sign is the anointing of the senses while the prescribed words are being said. The invisible grace which is signified is the grace given to the dying to lift them up to a closer union with God and to enable them to go safely through the spiritual dangers of death. In the sacrament of extreme unction, it is evident that the thing signified is more important than the visible sign which signifies it. The external sign is only the instrumental cause of grace. In sacrifice, also, the important element is the invisible disposition of childlike dependence on God, of filial subjection to Him whom we acknowledge to be supreme. The interior disposition is, as it were, the soul of the sacrifice. The external sign which expresses the disposition is, as it were, the body. It's easily seen from this that in the offering of sacrifice, man must take all care that he is in the disposition of reverence and docility before his Creator. Without some interior disposition of subjection to God in the person that offers the sacrifice, the outward sign would in his case be untrue, and as coming from him it could not be acceptable to the divine majesty. It would be like the sacrifice of Cain. Sacrifice, then, is an external act which manifests or expresses an interior disposition of reverence for God's majesty. The understanding of this fundamental statement regarding the nature of sacrifice in general is the first step to the understanding of the meaning of the Mass. It is important now to examine in detail each of the two elements in sacrifice, the external sign and the disposition it signifies. Considering the internal disposition, in other words, reverence for and docility to God, we find it at the very root of our spiritual life. The dispositions expressed by sacrifice, our dependence on God. The first of all facts, the first of all truths, is God. God alone exists from himself. I am who am, he said to Moses, thus shalt thou say to the children of Israel, He who is has sent me to you. God is the one and only independent being. All other beings are dependent on him. Each one of us has been drawn out of nothing by God's power. From all eternity we existed in the mind of God with innumerable other possible beings. We might have remained in the realm of possibilities like so many others, but God selected us 
and God created us, and in consequence we belong to Him. We are His absolute property. Furthermore, the creative act which drew us out of nothing is not finished and over. The same divine act which gave us existence is required to keep us in existence. At this very moment, the power of God is holding us in being, and without this power we would cease to be. We depend therefore completely on God, and no words can express the absolute character of our dependence. But our dependence on God goes further. From Him we have our mind and our will. We have the power of sight, of hearing, of speaking. We have eyes and ears. We have a tongue. We have hands and feet. These organs do not altogether belong to us. They cannot belong to us completely because God has to keep them in existence each moment. God gives us but the use of them. In consequence of this dependence of our faculties, all the acts done by their instrumentality belong to God. All that comes from the power of speech, sight, hearing, and local movement belongs primarily to our Creator and Preserver. As God's creatures, therefore, we are completely and totally and eternally dependent on Him. The purpose for which God drew us out of nothing reveals Him as supremely good, as supremely attractive, as supremely lovable. He is not only our Creator, He is our Father, the Father of mercies and the God of all consolation. When He created us, He gave us a supernatural end. He drew us out of nothing that He might manifest His goodness by the favors He bestows on us. And the supreme favor was the power to enter into His own life and to enjoy His own happiness. Little and dependent creatures that we are, held up above nothingness by His mighty power, even to us He has given the possibility of being united to Him in a most intimate way. This union with Himself is not for the next life only. Even in this life He destines us to receive Him into our soul as our constant guest and friend and lover. And to make possible this union with Himself on earth and in heaven, God bestows on all of us the power to receive the divine life of sanctifying grace. The gift of sanctifying grace gives us a mysterious participation in the divine nature. It elevates us to the dignity of being really God's adopted children. It gives us the power of returning God's love in a way altogether above our natural powers. And hence, by this grace, we become really united to God in a union of loving friendship. And with the life of grace, God gives us what we need to preserve this life and develop it. This He does when He gives us actual grace through prayer, through the holy sacrifice, and the sacraments. In the very beginning of man's history, the life of sanctifying grace was lost by our first parents' refusal to be subject to God. But the divine goodness did not abandon the purpose of admitting man to participate in the divine happiness. In His own magnificent way, God repaired the frustration of the plan of His loving-kindness. Our Father in heaven so loved the world as to give His only begotten Son. The second person of the Holy Trinity became man. He loved us and delivered Himself for us, and by His obedience unto death 
He satisfied for sin and merited our restoration to sanctifying grace so that we might have again the power of being united to God and of sharing his eternal bliss. It is to the divine life of sanctifying grace that the church refers when at the offertory of the Mass she puts on the lips of her priest as he mingles a drop of water with the wine these words, O God, who didst wonderfully constitute the dignity of human nature by the gift of grace, and still more wonderfully remake it through the merits of Christ, grant that by the mystery of this water and wine, typifying the Incarnation, we may be made partakers more perfectly of His divine nature, who hath deigned to share our human nature, Jesus Christ thy Son, our Lord. But to enter into the merits of Christ and thus to attain to eternal union with God, one condition is necessary on our part. We must subject ourselves to God and to our divine Redeemer. Our will must be conformed in essentials to the divine will. He that doth the will of my Father who is in heaven, he shall enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the one condition is that we live and act in willing, childlike dependence on the divine majesty of Him on whom we actually depend for existence each moment. When we consider the foregoing, we recognize that as we depend on God for our natural life, so also we depend on Him for our supernatural life, that is, for the life of grace that unites us to Him in intimate friendship. And likewise, we depend on Him for the consummation of grace, which is the eternal happiness of heaven. Hence, as God's creatures and as God's children, our position before Him should be one of profound reverence, of loving dependence, of childlike subjection. This loving dependence on God should be the dominant characteristic of our lives. It is manifested by our keeping His commandments, by our accepting with docility all the trials He permits to come to us, and by our receiving with gratitude all the pleasures, joys, and favors with which He blesses us. We should not separate the two ideas, creature and child. Our attitude towards God should be not merely one of dependence and subjection, but one of loving dependence, of affectionate subjection, and of childlike docility. God is our Creator and He is also our Father. The fundamental truth of our dependence on God, both as creatures and as children, is the key to the right understanding of the holy sacrifice. It should be always kept in mind, and if we live according to this filial submission, God will open to us His eternal kingdom. Our dependence on God as His creatures and His children is real, not merely for the present moment. It was real in the past, and it will be real in the future. Our recognition of our dependence in the past finds expression in gratitude for the favors God has given, and in sorrow for our want of subjection to His absolute eternal dominion. Recognizing our dependence in the future finds expression in petitions for the favors, for the actual graces we need, and also in the resolution to live according to our position, that is, in docile, childlike subjection. To recognize our dependence and God's absolute dominion in the present is called adoration. Our acknowledgment, therefore, of total dependence on and 
willing subjection to our Creator and Preserver may take these various forms. It may appear as adoration, thanksgiving, contrition, resolution, petition. These fundamental dispositions are as the warp and woof of the spiritual life of one who lives as God's creature and God's child. They are the dispositions that the church desires to see in her children, as is evidenced by her public prayers, which are found in the breviary and the missal. The divine office, if we accept the lessons, is made up for the most part from the Psalms. These inspired prayers, which we should make our own, are manifestations of adoration expressed in wonder, admiration, and praise, of gratitude, of desire, of petition for help and confidence that help will be given, of deep sorrow for the past, of sincere resolution for the future. Now all these dispositions, as we've seen, are only various forms or modes of the fundamental disposition of conformity to the divine will, of total dependence on God. It is this disposition, therefore, that the church wishes to see in all of us. An examination of even a few psalms will illustrate what we've said. The familiar psalm De Profundis is the prayer of a soul deeply conscious of its need of help from God. In the 118th psalm, recited in the morning office of Sunday, hardly more than one of its 176 verses is without a reference to the divine will. The same disposition of childlike dependence on God is manifested in the collects, so often repeated in the office of each day, in the secrets and post-communions, and in the prayers of the ritual. In these prayers we have first a thought on the divine goodness, and then a petition, an expression of man's need of help from God, an expression of his willing dependence on him. And most frequently the petition is an expression of desire for the eternal union with God in heaven, for which we are so absolutely dependent on the divine goodness. Consider two examples which are typical of all. The collect for the epiphany. O God, who didst this day reveal thy only begotten Son to the Gentiles by the guidance of a star, grant in thy mercy that we who already know thee by faith may be brought to contemplate the beauty of thy majesty. The collect for the feast of the little flower. O Lord, who hast said, Unless you become as little children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven, grant us, we beseech thee, so to follow the footsteps of the holy virgin Teresa in humility and simplicity of heart, that we may attain to the eternal reward. A short time before his death, Abbot Marmion wrote a brief letter which describes clearly these foundations of our spiritual life. In this precious document, which gives the result of his experience in guiding souls, he insists on the double foundation which is laid when a soul willingly accepts its position as a creature and as a child of God. He says, Our nature supposes that the creature remains always in most humble adoration before the Creator. That is so essential that nothing can change it. Our adoption to the state of child of God raises our nature, but does not destroy it. Hence it comes that when we rebel against God's will, against His permissions, we are no longer in the true attitude of the creature. Our adoption as children supposes that we act always as loving children towards our Heavenly Father, 
constantly seeking his good pleasure. This Fosse's day is the smile of his loving approbation. The meaning and the nature and importance of sacrifice should now be clearer. It is the highest public expression of the dispositions and acts which are fundamental in the spiritual life. It is the external sign by which man acknowledges and declares that God is the supreme owner of all things, and that man is absolutely subject and devoted to God as his creature and his loving child. It is the declaration of man's total dependence, of his willing surrender to God, of his wholehearted promptitude to obey, of his humble acceptance of all God sends, of the real conformity of his will with the will of God, of his gratitude for past favors and sorrows for past sins, of his petition for all he needs in the future, and especially of his greatest need, the eternal possession of God. All these acts are expressed and signified by sacrifice. The offering of sacrifice, says St. Thomas, is for the purpose of signifying something. Living a spiritual life, living a life of sanctity, implies that a man looks up to God at his, as his father and desires and endeavors to keep himself before God in a disposition of docile and childlike dependence. This disposition is the directive power of all his activity. Sacrifice is the expression or sign of this disposition. It is a declaration that man wants to live and act as God's creature and God's child, and that he looks to God for his future happiness. Unless you become as little children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. This doctrine is briefly and aptly stated. Sacrifice is intended to give symbolic expression to man's complete surrender of himself into the hands of God in order to obtain communion with him. The cry of Lucifer, the head of the fallen angels, I will not be subject, was repeated by Adam. It expresses the disposition of all those who commit mortal sin. This disposition is just the opposite of that which is expressed by sacrifice. Holy Mass is all this and much more. The External Act of Sacrifice To understand fully the external act of sacrifice, we must penetrate yet more deeply into the internal disposition which is expressed by the act. We must bring home to ourselves the full import of what it is to be subject to God as his creature and his child. And then, we are prepared to understand the suitability and the expressiveness of the sign used by Christ and of the signs prescribed by God for the Jews. Our internal subjection to God as creatures and as children implies our promptitude to obey and our willingness to be dealt with by God according to his good pleasure and not according to our own desires. Not my will, but thine be done. This disposition leads to corresponding internal acts. In other words, our dependence on and our subjection to God lead to the internal offering and presenting and surrendering of ourselves to Him without reserve, that He may do with us as He wills, a surrender even unto death if needs be. No doubt He possesses us already because He is our Creator and Preserver. Hence the offering of ourselves is simply our wholehearted acceptance of our position of dependence. 
This offering, or surrender of ourselves to God, includes willingness to refrain from the inordinate use of created things. It implies that we are determined to use them only in dependence on the divine will. Whether you eat or drink or whatever else you do, do all in the glory of God. God is not only the owner of our body, of our soul, of our life. He's also the owner of the use of our life. He's the owner of our faculties, and hence the owner of the activity which we exercise in regard to created things. This last point should be well understood. Man's practical acknowledgment of his dependence on the divine majesty appears especially in the way he exercises the faculties which God has given him. The use of created things, material and immaterial, through these faculties must be always according to the order of subjection to the Creator. All must be made use of according to His will. They are to be used as means to help man to attain his final end, the possession of God and his eternal happiness. It would be a perversion of the order of man's essential dependence if he used creatures to minister to his self-interest without due reference to the Lord of all. The offering of oneself to God implies, therefore, the will to deprive oneself of all inordinate use of created things. The determination to surrender ourselves into God's hands, to submit to His will, and to give up the inordinate use of creatures is called an interior sacrifice. Hence the words of St. Thomas, the sacrifice which is offered externally signifies the interior spiritual sacrifice in which the soul offers itself to God. That is, the soul offers itself to bear the cross God sends and to spend itself and to be spent in doing His will. With regard to the external sacrifice, the most perfect expression or sign of one's acknowledgment of the dominion of another person and of willing dependence on him would be to offer oneself to die because he willed it, to accept death at his word, to go into the front line of battle at his command. This is the way our Lord, as man, acknowledged the supreme dominion of God and his own loving subjection to him. Our Lord, offering of himself even to the bearing of death on Calvary, was a perfect sacrifice. It was a perfect sign and expression of his recognition that God is supreme. It was the expression of his loving subjection as man to the infinite majesty of God. It was the sign of subjection appointed by God himself. Christ was lovingly obedient even unto death. As the Father commanded him, so he acted. Hear his own words, that the world, all men, may know by this death that I love the Father, a love proved by death through obedience to him. And as the Father hath given me commandment, so I act. Arise, let us go hence. Let us go to begin this work. We will continue with the meaning of the Mass and the nature of sacrifice on tape number two. Please join us. We continue now with The Meaning of the Mass by Rev. John Kearney, CSSP. 
and the chapter on the nature of sacrifice. By offering his life to the destruction of death, our Lord as man declared that God was not only the owner of that most precious life, but also the owner of the use of that life, and that he as man always willed to use that life in absolute dependence on the divine will. I always do what is pleasing to him. This internal attitude of his holy soul was expressed by surrendering through obedience the very power to use his life. We cannot conceive a more perfect acknowledgment of the dominion of God and of our Lord's absolute dependence. It was a perfect sacrifice. St. Paul, who says, Christ became obedient unto death, even to the death of the cross, immediately adds, For which cause God also hath exalted him, and hath given him a name which is above all names. The obedience of Christ was followed by his glorious resurrection, his triumphant ascension, and by his being seated as man at the right hand of God, while his name was spread over the whole earth. By the words of the Mass, Holy Church recalls to our minds this glory which followed the bitter passion of Christ. And he himself has said, Ought not Christ to have suffered these things, and so to enter into his glory? The same will happen in our case. A life of childlike devotion to God, of reverent submission to his holy will in all our activities, will lead us to the glory of heaven with its eternal happiness. St. Thomas, in the short article which deals specially with the passion considered as a sacrifice, says, A sacrifice properly so called is something done for that honor which is due to God alone in order to propitiate him. And hence, Augustine says, A true sacrifice is every work that is done in order that we may be united with God in a holy fellowship, which is related to that consummation of happiness wherein we can be truly blessed. But, as is stated in the same place, Christ offered himself for us in the Passion, and the fact that he willingly bore the Passion was most acceptable to God, since it came from the greatest charity. Therefore it is manifest that the Passion of Christ was a true sacrifice. In relation to sacrifice, we should avoid all liturgical formalism, says Father Garajou Lagrange, O.P., the figure has value only in relation to the reality which is figured. Melchizedek keeps his name in religious history only in relation to Christ. A complete sacrifice exists there where God and Christ have wished it to be, there where there is internal oblation and immolation manifested by all the words and acts of the victim who offers himself. Chapter 3 the sacrifice of the cross, the mystery of the cross and of the altar. Having studied the nature of sacrifice in general, we must next approach the consideration of the sacrifice of the cross and the sacrifice of the mass. But to approach the cross or the altar is to draw near to the mysteries of the divine goodness. It is to come in very contact with the divine action. A veil of mystery ever covers the attributes and the actions of God. It must be so of necessity, for God is infinite and we are finite, and hence it is absolutely impossible for us to understand perfectly 
what God is or what God does. There must be a mystery, therefore, both in the sacrifice of the cross and the sacrifice of the Mass. But through the revelations of God and the teaching of God's instruments, the great theologians, we can see with sufficient clearness to recognize the overflowing goodness of God in His work of love for us on the cross and on the altar. And we are enabled to understand what He requires of us that we may draw spiritual profit from these mysteries. The Catholic Doctrine Our holy faith teaches that our Lord, as man, was appointed by His heavenly Father to offer sacrifice. He was made a priest, that in dying on the cross He offered a true and real sacrifice, that by this sacrifice He atoned for sin and merited for men grace and eternal life. The following points should be kept in mind. The priesthood of our Lord is set forth at great length by St. Paul in the Epistle to the Hebrews. Two verses are particularly explicit. Having therefore a great high priest that hath passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to what we confess. And, but this man, offering one sacrifice for sins, forever sitteth on the right hand of God. The sacrifice of the cross, like all other sacrifices, was an exterior sign which manifested an interior willing acknowledgment of God's absolute supremacy and of man's total dependence. This statement will become clear from a consideration of the disposition of our Lord and of the act of sacrifice on Calvary. The Dispositions of Our Lord on Calvary To realize the dispositions, we must recall his dispositions during the years of his life on earth. He never changed the attitude of his soul in regard to his heavenly Father. Jesus Christ yesterday and today and the same forever. His dispositions on the cross were the same as those maintained throughout his life. All his acts, whether internal or external, proceeded from these dispositions. Now what precisely were these dispositions of Christ? Our Lord had a created nature, and hence as man he was totally subject to God. His soul was created directly, and the material of his body, taken from Our Lady, had been originally drawn from nothing by a divine act. This body and this soul were preserved in existence by the continual action of the divine power. And hence, Christ Jesus, in his human nature, was absolutely dependent on the Creator. He lived his human life in the spirit of loving subjection to the divine will. My food, he said, is to do the will of him that sent me. He humbly submitted to those that represented God. He went down to Nazareth and was subject to them. He was subject to those who were less wise and less holy than himself. He toiled as a village carpenter until the age of thirty years. It was the divine will. His first recorded word was, I must be about my father's business. I must be obedient. And on the last night of his life on earth, he prayed to his heavenly father, saying, I have finished the work thou gavest me to do. His activity was the expression of his subjection. St. Paul says of him, referring to his motive, Christ did not please himself. The motive of his acts was to please the heavenly father. 
Christ as man, therefore, was utterly and absolutely dependent on the Creator of his body and soul. His human mind knew this truth, his human will embraced it, and all that flowed from it. He ever kept himself before the majesty of God in loving dependence, in lowliness, in holy fear. Father Faber puts this truth as follows. Can that sacred humanity, to which is given the uttermost parts of the earth for its possession, and to which all judgment and pomp of doom are solemnly committed, be possessed with fear, with dread, with reverence, with blissful awe? Yes, the faith teaches us that that immaculate flesh is pierced with reverential fear, that in that beating sacred heart and down those full veins and along those nerves and in that brain and in all the realities of the human frame which he has stooped to assume and in every sensitive faculty of that human soul which has not ceased to be utterly human, because, blessed by the infinitude of his compassions, it is now utterly his, runs the living reverential fear with which the presence of the Most Holy Trinity saturates the created nature. It runs there, it will run there forevermore, while the precious blood circulates in joy and gladness and rapture, and yet withal a fire of deepest, holiest, chastest fear. Every moment, like the pulses of its life, the thrill darts through it, by which the created nature, however glorified, recognizes, acknowledges, and does homage to the incommunicable majesty of the uncreated. But this homage, this profound reverence, was the homage and the reverence of a child for its father. Jesus was the Son of God, and the absolute subjection that characterized his life as man was the subjection of a child. His unreserved surrender to his father's will was the surrender of a child. He himself told us that we must become as little children, that we must have the spirit of children if we are to enter the kingdom of God. And again he said, Whosoever doth not receive the kingdom of God as a child shall not enter into it. That is, whosoever does not receive a humble spirit the revelation of the kingdom and the conditions for sharing it shall not enter therein. Our Lord himself is our example in this spirit of childhood. His obedience to his father was childlike. His dependence was childlike in its directness and simplicity. There's a beautiful fragrance in the gospel passages that speak of the subjection of Jesus to his father's will, a fragrance so delicate that it may easily escape us. It is the fragrance of the filial reverence and devotion to his heavenly Father, which so dominated his life. It appears in the very turn of his language, in the very way he speaks of his Father, in the very fact of the frequent repetition of his Father's name, many times, even in a short passage. His devotion to the Father has been called the dominating principle of his life. And these words give us an idea of the character of his unreserved surrender, of his absolute subjection to his father's will. To quote Father Faber again, he is constantly referring to the father. He is continually magnifying him who sent him. His father's will is all in all to him. His father's glory, the end, he has not so much come of his own accord 
as he has been officially sent to seek. Even his own immediate disciples are made to feel that it is the Father who is brought so prominently before them that he almost eclipses the dignity and authority of our Lord himself, which are so sedulously put forward rather as borrowed than as his own. His words to St. Peter when the apostle made public confession of his divinity showed that he himself had never explicitly taught his own divinity, even to those nearest and dearest to him. It was the Father who had revealed it to St. Peter. This, then, is the first thing we notice in our Lord's devotion, the constant reference to the Father, as if it was his own habit of mind, and as if he wished also to make it the habit of mind of those around him. His disciples have been taught by him to consider that he has an invisible rule in all he does, a heavenly harmony to which he times all his adorable and inexplicable movements. It is his Father's will. That is his religion. He lives in secret intercourse with the Father. It is not so much that he's inspired by him as that he communes with him uninterruptedly, whether he's hiding himself or showing himself whether he's among the mountains, in the plain, upon the lake, or in the streets of the city, they feel that it is the golden thread of his Father's will which he is following. He does nothing at random, and yet, so it seems, nothing on any preconcerted system of human prudence. Someone leads him. He talks with someone by his side, and it is someone, too, whose companionship does not oppress him. He hints at it, more than hints at it, as his Father's will. When we look over the whole span of the years which constituted the wonderful life of our Savior, we can see clearly that his whole life was governed by one principle, the loving conformity of his human will to the divine. His death was the crowning act of a life of childlike dependence on his heavenly Father. His willing and visible acceptance of the crucifixion was the supreme expression or sign of his internal filial subjection as man to the divine majesty. It was an act that flowed from his permanent disposition of unreserved surrender to his Father's will. It was an act of sacrifice, because it was the sign chosen by God to be the expression of the absolute obedience and loving submission of the human will of Jesus. The acts of obedience done by our Lord during his life were not sacrifices in the strict sense, because they were not chosen by God to be special signs of our Savior's subjection. The sign chosen was not merely arbitrary, but in some sense was quasi-natural. This act we must now consider very closely that we may reach a better understanding of the divine clemency and generosity and love which are therein manifested. THE EXTERNAL ACT OF SACRIFICE ON CALVARY We've already put before ourselves a general idea of the sign by which our Lord on Calvary acknowledged with most profound reverence the supreme dominion of God and His own total dependence. We have now to examine it in more detail. As we've seen, no manifestation of subjection and obedience could be more perfect than the willing acceptance of death. What is nearest to man is his life. It is his most precious possession. Hence the surrendering of a man's life when doing God's will involves this, 
is a most perfect expression of man's recognition that God is supreme, that God is the owner of all, even of man's own life. It is in this way that Christ, as man, expressed his worship of the majesty of God. Holy Church teaches that our Lord on Calvary offered himself to his heavenly Father in sacrifice, and that he thus made reparation for the sins of men and opened heaven to them once more. Now we should note carefully the precise meaning of the words, He offered Himself. We speak of a religious offering himself to his superior to go to a difficult mission, which has a deadly climate. We speak of a soldier offering himself to reconnoiter in the enemy's lines with imminent danger of death. We speak of a man offering himself to be a slave in place of another. St. Vincent de Paul, St. Raymond, and others have done this. We speak of a man offering himself to the surgeon that blood may be taken from his body and transfused into the body of a friend. In all such expressions, the words offer refers to an act or a word which manifests a readiness to do or to suffer for the sake of another person or for the sake of justice. A like use of the word offer is found in relation to sacrifice. St. Thomas says that the sacrifice which is offered exteriorly signifies the interior spiritual sacrifice in which the soul offers itself to God. That is, it declares its readiness to carry the cross God sends and to do God's will, to yield to Him all that the soul is or has, so that God may be all in all. These considerations will help us to understand what is meant by the words, Christ offered Himself to His heavenly Father. They mean that Christ offered Himself to bear the pains of death, that he was willing to die in obedience to his heavenly Father, and that he willingly submitted to the actual death of the cross, which was the appointed sign of his loving subjection. His internal offering was his willing acceptance of death. His external offering was his actually permitting his enemies to inflict mortal wounds on him. Christ, says St. Thomas, exposed himself to death of his own free will. For this reason, he is said to have offered himself. This willing offering of himself to die and his freely subjecting himself to death were manifested in the circumstances of the Passion and especially in his casting to the ground by a single word those who would take him prisoner in Gethsemane. And in his words, Therefore doth the Father love me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself, and I have power to take it up again. This commandment have I received of my Father. His death, therefore, was a supreme act of obedience. And hence the Church in Holy Week expresses her understanding of Calvary by repeating at each hour of the daily office, Christ was made obedient for us even unto death. It is the obedience, the subjection of Christ, that the Church puts in the forefront of her contemplation. Of all the wealth of Scripture texts which deal with the Passion, the Church takes only one. It represents her view of the sacrifice of Calvary. She never tires of repeating it. And her words remind us, besides, that we have gained by His obedience unto death. She would have us repeat it before and after meals, 
the grace given in the Roman breviary, the exact words of St. Paul are, He humbled himself, becoming obedient unto death, even to the death of the cross. For us he became obedient, that we might be admitted to the kingdom prepared for us, the kingdom of his heavenly Father. To understand better how our Lord offered himself in obedience, we must recall the following points. He was sent into the world by his heavenly Father to be the head and representative of the human race, to be the new Adam, to be the priest who could offer a perfect sacrifice and thus atone for man's sin. He was sent to give an example of a perfect human life. He was sent to preach, to instruct. For this was I born, and for this I came into the world, that I might give testimony to the truth. The gospel shows how perfectly he fulfilled his mission. The perfection of his human life consisted in the absolute conformity of his human will with the divine will. He himself gave a true and adequate description of his life of loving obedience when he said, I always do what is pleasing to him. And again, the chalice which my father gives me, shall I not drink it? His whole life, therefore, from the crib to the cross, was a testimony of the fundamental truth that God is supreme and that man is totally dependent on him. In the practical recognition of this dependence lies man's true happiness, for it is the condition for attaining to union with God. Our Lord's life of loving subjection to God and the corresponding doctrine he taught were in opposition to the self-seeking lives of the leaders of the Jews. Hence they resisted his teaching and his example. They envied his power, and they rose against him and crucified him. The divine intelligence foresaw that his life and teaching would lead to this particular death, and it was the divine will that Christ should submit to it, so that by this subjection and this bearing of pain he might, as head of the human race, make satisfaction for the twofold malice of sin, and thus re-establish man in his true relation of friendship with God. How sin was atoned for on Calvary. Christ, as we've seen, subjected himself to death out of obedience. He had come down from heaven for our salvation, and his obedience and his sufferings were directed by him to be an expiation and a satisfaction for sin. This is manifest from his words at the Last Supper. This is my blood of the New Testament, which shall be shed for the many unto the remission of sins. Now, what precisely was the nature of this atonement for this reparation of sin? In sin there is double evil. In the first place, sin is turning from God, a refusal to be subject to the Creator and Preserver of man and of all things. Hence follows for those in grace the loss of God's friendship, and for all the loss of God's special protection against the power of Satan, and unless they return to God, the eternal pain of loss. In the second place, sin is a turning to a creature. It is preferring some created pleasure to God. Hence follows the penalty of suffering, as we've already seen in the first chapter, when we also saw how Christ, by bearing pain, atoned for this choosing of pleasure. 
The supreme evil of sin, however, is in the refusal of man to be subject to God. Christ repaired this evil by an act of subjection. He atoned for man's refusal by his willing acknowledgment through perfect obedience of the divine dominion. In his act of submission, our Lord acted as head and representative and king of the human race, and because of the infinite dignity of his divine person, his act of submission as man was more pleasing to God than the refusal of man to be subject was displeasing, and hence it was a perfect atonement. His surrender was without limit. He offered himself even unto death. Because it was the will of his heavenly Father, he permitted the Jews to do as they would with his body, and by an act of his will he laid hold, as it were, of these mortal sufferings inflicted on him by his enemies, and made them a witness to his Father of the absolute subjection of the humanity that was his. It was a sacrifice, that is, it was an act chosen by God to express the subjection of Christ as man to the divine majesty, and thus to effect union between God and sinful men. By his sufferings, therefore, Christ paid for us the debt of pain due by reason of the seeking for inordinate pleasure, which is one element in sin. And by his subjection he rectified the want of subjection, which is the other and more fundamental element. Therefore, St. Paul says, As by the disobedience of one man many were made sinners, so also by the obedience of one many shall be made just. The long day of Good Friday was lived in obedience. The chalice which my Father gives me, shall I not drink it? It was a day of subjection. Jesus let the scourges play upon him. He let the cross crush him to earth. He rose again and went on, and again the weight crushed him down. He was atoning by his subjection for the want of subjection in men, and hence, when accused of want of subjection, Answerest thou the high priest so? He showed how unjust was the accusation. His subjection was the very center of his atonement. When on the cross, the Pharisees taunted him, If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. He could have silenced them, but such was not the divine will. And so, in subjection, he allowed the nails to hold him fast and seemingly helpless. It was obedience pushed to the furthest limit. Hence the crucifix should be for us an eternal lesson of docility, subjection, and obedience. The Love Manifested on Calvary Our Lord by His Passion did more than pay the debt of pain and rectify man's want of subjection to God. The most terrible and eternal consequence of sin to mankind was the loss of sanctifying grace. This disaster was repaired by our Lord through His Passion, because by His obedience unto death He merited our restoration to the divine life of grace. As man, as head and representative of the human race, he merited. He merited because his obedience was so pleasing to God. He merited for us what was most precious, the grace by which we became friends and children of God and heirs to his kingdom, even joint heirs with Christ. This grace is now at the disposal of all men, if they only really will to have it. 
we can have it by conforming our will to that of Jesus, our Savior. If now we look for the ultimate moving force that impelled our Lord to merit for us at such a cost, the power of possessing God eternally, we find it in His love. Our Lord merited through love. He did all through love. Through love He lived and died. Through love He expiated sin. Because as man He loved His heavenly Father with the absolute love of the most perfect heart, therefore He willingly accepted the death of pain which His heavenly Father willed Him to bear. And He wished us to know that love was the source of all His submission. That the world may know that I love the Father, He said, speaking of the passion of His obedience unto death. In the dialogue of St. Catherine of Siena on obedience are recorded these words spoken by the Eternal Father. I would have you view this excellent virtue of obedience in the spotless Lamb and have you understand its source in Him. If you ask me whence proceeded so prompt an obedience from my Son, know that it came from His love for my honor and your salvation. But whence came this love? From the clear vision which his soul enjoyed of the divine essence and of the eternal trinity. He always contemplated me, and this vision produced in him in a perfect manner that fidelity which the light of faith produces imperfectly in you. To me he has been very faithful, to me his Father. He has run to this glorious light in the way of obedience with all the ardor of love. But our Lord also died for the love of men. He loved us and delivered Himself for us. He Himself bore our sins in His body upon the tree. He did this because He loved us, that is, He wished us well. He wished us the best that God Himself could wish to give us, a share in His own life of infinite happiness. It was the love of Jesus that gave value to His sufferings. It was love that made His sufferings meritorious. Suffering as such, says St. Thomas, is not meritorious because its principle is exterior, but if we consider it as it is supported willingly and in consequence, as it has its principle in the interior, it is in this way meritorious. How meritorious then were the sufferings of Jesus, for their interior principle was nothing less than the unbounded created love of the God-man. To love a person is to wish him what will make him happy, what will make him happy in reality and not in appearance only. In real and perfect love we wish the person loved that which will give him supreme happiness, which will satisfy every desire and quiet every longing. We do not merely wish what satisfies the senses, but we wish what satisfies the soul, what brings rest to the mind and contentment to the heart. This real love is proved by the acts of the lover, by what he does to procure for his beloved the happiness that leaves no need for further aspiration. When love is perfect, the lover is ready to do all he can to secure the real happiness of his beloved, and he pursues this happiness with as much earnestness as he pursues what gives contentment to his own soul. Real love is made most manifest when the lover pursues the happiness of the beloved at the price of pain, when he gives up what pleases himself 
and faces suffering, even prolonged suffering, that he may secure the happiness of the one he loves. Understanding thus the nature of love and its manifestations, we may glimpse something of the reality of the love of Jesus for men. He wishes them what is good. He wishes them the supreme good that will make them supremely happy. He wishes them to possess God and to share the happiness of God. And his wish is so sincere, so real, so profound, that when he was on earth, he pursued this supreme interest of men in spite of all it was to cost. He was willing to be obedient in facing shame and sorrow, to be obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, that the human beings whom he loved with this astounding love might attain to happiness, to supreme and eternal happiness by the possession of God. He loved us and delivered himself for us. Love explains the obedience of Jesus. But Jesus was God as well as man. He is one in nature with the Father and the Holy Ghost. Because of this oneness of nature, there is one and the same love in the three divine persons. And hence, besides the created love of his human heart, there was in Jesus an uncreated love. This was the infinite, eternal, unchangeable love which is common to the three divine persons, the infinite love which surpasses all understanding, the divine love which sent Christ, the love which brought him down from the Father's bosom. For us men and for our salvation he came down from heaven. Love is the final explanation of the mystery of Calvary. In conclusion, the sacrifice of the cross was a great act of religion. In it, by his willing acceptance of death and submission to the will of his heavenly Father, our Lord, as man, acknowledged in the most perfect way that God was supreme and that he, as man, was totally dependent. By this great act of sacrifice, which included both obedience and the bearing of pain and had its motive in love, our Lord satisfied for the sins of men and merited their restoration to the state of grace and their final union with God in the happiness of heaven. When we contemplate the crucifix, when we gaze in wonder on Jesus made obedient for us unto death, his humility, his lifelong dependence, his unchanged filial devotion, the burning charity that brought him to the cross comes before us. To gaze on this absolute surrender to the divine will opens our soul to the understanding of the wrongness in our own life, which wrongness appears in our spirit of independence, in our love of our own way, in our desire to be our own master, and in our interior resistance to lawful authority. We begin to see how all this is in manifest contradiction to the total dependence and absolute obedience and zealous charity of Jesus. But when our mind considers the details of the death to which he was obedient, we are almost forced to contemplate the love for us that made him willing to be obedient unto such a death. For us, he was obedient even to the death of the cross. For us, he was crucified. It is the contemplation of this love, of this consuming desire for our welfare, of this amazing concern for our eternal happiness that will lead us to overcome the reluctance of our fallen nature 
and will draw us along the way of obedience to the divine will in all things, even the smallest. Our life, then, will be conformed to the life of Jesus by this utter surrender of ourselves to God in union with the surrender of Himself which He made on the cross. As by the disobedience of one man many were made sinners, so also by the obedience of one many shall be made just. An explanatory note. In this study of the holy sacrifice, the three following principles were accepted as a practical basis. In the Old Testament, we find in abundance types and figures of what was promised, of what was to come. What lies hid in the Old Testament, says St. Augustine, becomes evident in the New. Now every type is a type only in part, and when a type is examined, we have to extract from it that circumstance or accident which is typical. This is often difficult to do. Hence the Jews of our Lord's time had very confused and very wrong ideas of the Messiah, in spite of their study of the Scripture. It is the antitype that explains the type. It is in the light of the fulfillment of prophecy that we understand what was prophetic in the text of the prophecy. Our Lord's sacrifice on Calvary was preceded by many types, and from what has been said, it seems clear that if we begin to study His sacrifice by studying the types, we're likely to involve ourselves in obscurity. In consequence, we here begin by studying the antitype, the sacrifice of Calvary. In its light we shall understand what was typical in the types. We shall examine them after examining Calvary. St. Thomas suggests this method of procedure. Since the reason of the figure, he says, is taken from that which the figure represents, therefore the reasons of the figurative sacrifices of the old law should be taken from the true sacrifice of Christ. From the definition of sacrifice, we learn that the sacrifice of Calvary and all the types that went before were signs. They were signs of the inward disposition of him who offered the sacrifice. Now the right disposition of a rational creature before the Creator is more important than the sign which manifests it. To hoist a white flag in war is a sign of willingness to surrender. This disposition of willing surrender is more important than the sign which may be a flag, a green branch, or a tablet, or a placard bearing the word surrender. What this sign signifies is the important thing. This principle is true of sacrifice, which is the sign of a disposition to be subject to God. Hence, in our study, we pay special attention to the thing, the disposition signified, and less attention to the sign. By so doing, we're able to pass over much of the controversy regarding sacrifice, for the controversy is concerned principally with the sign, and not with the thing signified. St. Thomas, referring to the external sign, and the internal disposition or act which it signifies, speaks of them as the external sacrifice and the internal sacrifice. His words are, The sacrifice which is offered externally represents the inward spiritual sacrifice by which the soul offers itself to God. The soul offers itself to God as its beginning by creation and its end by beautification. From these words it is clear that St. Thomas distinguishes two offerings. In the first place, 
he speaks of the external offering. This belongs to the visible rite of sacrifice, which is the manifestation or sign of the internal surrender to God. This external offering presupposes, of course, the acts of mind and will required for its existence, and also the intention which directs this external act to be an expression of the internal disposition of subjection to our Creator and our Father. In the second place, he speaks of the internal offering in which the soul offers itself to God. This internal offering belongs to the disposition of dependence on God. It's an internal act which flows from this disposition. The soul depends on God for its continued existence at each moment and for all its activities. It depends on Him likewise for the fulfillment of its desire to enter into His own eternal life and share His endless happiness. God alone can satisfy its longings, and its aspiration to eternal happiness is the first element in the act of hope. Although the word offering is sometimes used to mean both the external and internal offering considered as one moral whole, it is more frequently used in reference to the external act of sacrifice. But since it may refer to the internal act of surrender to God, we should be careful to determine from the context in which sense it is used in a particular case. Otherwise, we may draw inexact conclusions from what we read. We will continue with the meaning of the Mass and sacrifice in the old law on side B of this tape. We continue now with The Meaning of the Mass by Reverend John Kearney, CSSP. Chapter 4, Sacrifice in the Old Law. God's Law Regarding Sacrifice The Holy Scripture tells us of the sacrifices which God commanded the Jews to offer, and it gives us the many and minute details which were laid down for these solemn acts of worship. All these sacrifices offered by the chosen people before Christ came were not only acknowledgments of the absolute dominion of God and the total dependence of man, they were also figures of the sacrifice of Calvary, the great sacrifice to come, from which, in the eyes of God, their value was derived. Hence, the death and destruction which appear in them were especially suitable. There were many acts which in themselves were quite suited to express man's recognition of God's supremacy and of his own willing and filial acceptance of his absolute subjection. But on account of the importance of divine worship, it is evident, as we've seen, that it would be very suitable if some competent authority set aside one particular act to be used for the sole purpose of manifesting the supreme worship of God. In the case of the chosen people, God himself selected the act of sacrifice, the sign they were to use to express their willing acknowledgment of his dominion and of their dependence. This sign was the offering to God of a material thing, which was changed in some way. The thing offered was called the victim, the host, or the oblation. The change was effected in most cases by destruction real or equivalent. 
The offering of the victim was, by God's command, reserved to an appointed man of a chosen family, the priest, who acted in the name of those who wished to unite themselves with the sacrifice he offered. The victim offered represented all men, but in particular the person who offered and those who united themselves with him. We should note that the offering of the victim to God was not transferring to him the ownership. God owns all. But it was a symbolic declaration or acknowledgement that he was the owner of all. Presenting the keys of a city to the king was a sign of the people's recognition that the king was already the supreme ruler and had supreme power. It is a remarkable fact that the ceremony or act of sacrifice, the offering and the destruction of a victim, is found at present in every part of the pagan world, and so it was in the past, even in the remote past. This uniformity in the act by which God is worshipped is most likely the result of an instruction or command given by God to our first parents and passed on by them to all their children. The idea that God gave our first parents an instruction concerning sacrifice is confirmed by the fact that the Scripture tells us of the sacrifices of Cain and Abel. Among the many points which are suggested for consideration by the text of the Old Testament that deal with the external act of sacrifice, we shall examine two only which have a more immediate bearing on our subject, the destruction of the victim and the offering of the victim. The destruction and offering of the victim in the old law was a type of the great sacrifice of Calvary in which God's dominion and man's subjection were so perfectly declared, manifested, and accepted. It was especially as a figure of Calvary that God commanded these acts of destruction. The blood was poured out and the fat burned, says St. Thomas, in order to foreshadow the shedding of Christ's blood and the abundance of his charity, whereby he offered himself to God for us. The text of the Old Testament puts before us the altar of sacrifice marked by the daily and almost continual pouring out of the blood of victims in the official and private sacrifices. And it tells us how on great occasions the number of victims was above counting. The reason of this scene of vast destruction and slaughter becomes clear when we keep in mind that it figured the copious pouring out of the precious blood of Jesus all the long hours of Good Friday. This rite of sacrifice ordered by God was considered in itself an act very suitable to express God's supreme dominion and man's total dependence. The change or destruction of the victim was affected by man's action. This showed forth man's dominion over the victim and the subjection of the victim to man, all of which aptly represented the absolute dominion of God and man's dependence on him. In particular, the total destruction of the victim by fire, the Holocaust, which was done by divine ordinance, was especially clear and vivid expression of God's absolute and complete ownership of the victim and of all creatures. It also signified that man was willing to be spent and consumed in God's service. In regard to sin, the destruction of the victim 
symbolized the destruction in man of the tendency to sin which man must be ready to destroy by mortification that he may keep himself subject to God. The destruction also symbolized the punishment which man deserved for his sins and his willingness to accept death like the victim which God permitted to be substituted for the sinner. The slaying of animals, says St. Thomas, signified the destruction of sin and that men were deserving of death for their transgressions. This striking signification of internal dispositions regarding sin helped in a marked way to perfect them. It is a law of man's nature that the external expression or sign reacts on and perfects the disposition from which it springs. To those who in reverence obeyed this law of sacrifice, God gave, on account of Calvary, the grace of contrition, so that pardon of sins might be obtained. St. Thomas repeatedly points out that the rite of sacrifice was given to the Jews as a preservative against idolatry that was widespread in the nations around them. It was also a preservative against the danger of making an idol of their own will and desire, as man does by using God's creatures without reference to the Creator. In the rite of sacrifice, the destruction, real or equivalent, separated the victim from ordinary human use. It put the use of this creature out of man's power by a public act. This placing of the victim out of man's power showed forth in symbol that to use creatures independently of God was out of man's moral power and that the offerer should not and would not use this or any other creature to minister to his self-interest independently of God. He would not use his own faculties independently of him. The expressiveness of this act will be manifest if we recall that man's sinful independence of God appears especially in his use of creatures in opposition to the will of the Creator who owns everything. St. Augustine puts all this very clearly when he says, Every visible sacrifice is a sacred sign of an invisible sacrifice, a declaration of the invisible giving up of all independent use of creatures. One other point may be noted. The more precious the victim which man removed from his personal use, the more clearly was indicated the reality of man's determination to give up using creatures for his personal advantage without reference to God. Hence the value of the victim entered into the perfection of the sacrifice. The ordinary use of the word sacrifice comes from its religious signification, for it means to deprive oneself of something which is considered to be of value. In connection with the act of offering, the following points should be kept in mind. Although God owns all things, yet he has given to man the power to own, but always in dependence on God's supreme ownership. Man can do what he pleases with what he owns, provided he does not act contrary to the divine will, and he may transfer his ownership to a fellow man by gift. In the rite of sacrifice, the victim offered or presented to God was called a present or a gift. But these words were not used in quite the same sense as they are used when we speak of one human being 
offering or giving a present to another. In this last case, the ownership of the gift is transferred from one man to another man. It ceases to belong to the first and begins to belong to the second. And this gift or present is offered in order that it may be of some advantage to the receiver. All this was not quite true when the gift was offered to God in sacrifice. No gift can be of any advantage to God, hence the words giving and gift must here have had a restricted meaning. Moreover, God owns all things, mea sunt omnia. All things are mine, he said to Moses. A man could not make a gift pass to God's ownership, but he could surrender his own ownership. He could devote what he possessed to the worship of God. The words, all things are mine, were spoken when God gave the law that the firstborn male of beasts and of men were to be set apart for the service of the Lord. These words indicate the reason of the law, which was that men might be led to realize the dominion of God over all things. He could place something in the hands of the priest to be used in sacrifice. In this sense, it was a gift. The victim then passed from human use. The former owner could no longer do what he willed with it. God's perpetual ownership alone prevailed. The victim had become sacred. It could be used by the priest only for the special worship of God. That the word give can have a metaphorical meaning is clear from the common expressions. Give my love to so-and-so. I give you my love. These are merely expressions of assurance that a person is loved by us and that we wish to convey to them a knowledge of this fact. The priest then laid the gift, the slain victim or its blood, on the altar. He laid it before God, or to use the customary words, he offered the victim to God, the word offer being used in the same sense as it is used when we speak of offering prayers. The sacrificial offering which the priest made was quite distinct from the offering made by him who gave the victim to the priest. The Latin word offero comes from ob before and fero to carry. Hence it means to bring forward, to exhibit. The past participle of fero is latum, hence the words oblatio or oblation, meaning the thing brought forward. Thus the church in her liturgy says, Hostius et praesis tibi domini laudis offerimus. We offer thee, O Lord, sacrifices and prayers of praise. In a similar sense, the archangel Raphael says in the book of Tobias, I offered your prayer to the Lord. The sacrificial offering made by the priest was a symbolic act. It was like the presenting of an address to the king or giving him the keys of the city. It was equivalent to saying, this creature, this life is yours, O God. All creatures are yours. We belong to you. The act of offering the victim signified, therefore, the absolute ownership and dominion of God and the total surrender of man to the divine will. It signified that the priest and those who united with him were prepared in heart to be obedient to God in all things as to their creator and preserver. Archbishop Leroy, CSSP, gives the following instance of an act of sacrifice in present use in Africa, which is clearly the offering of a purely symbolic gift. 
Among the Maasai, he says, the most significant sacrifice that can be made to the divinity is a handful of grass gathered in the plain offered to God or his representative as an homage. The meaning is this, it is you who have covered the earth with this grass, without which our herds and ourselves could not live. You remain its master. Behold it here. Archbishop Sheehan, in his lecture on the sacrifice of the Mass, gives and develops two beautiful illustrations of the act of sacrifice as the presentation of a symbolic gift. One of them is the custom of the Persians of old to present or offer to the king a handful of earth and a vessel of water as a sign that he was master of all the land and the rivers in his dominions. Sacrifice, therefore, is offered to God as man's sovereign lord, as man's first beginning. But God is not only man's first beginning. He is also man's last end. He is the source of man's happiness. In him alone is perfect satisfaction, perfect rest. He created man that he might manifest his perfections by giving man the power to share his own happiness, by being united with him and possessing him. Hence, man has not only to acknowledge his total dependence on God, his Creator, but also to acknowledge that God alone is his final contentment, that in union with God he looks for absolute happiness. This idea is also expressed by the external rite of sacrifice. But to manifest more perfectly this desired union with God, it was usual in the old law for those who offered certain sacrifices to partake of the victim, which, because it had been offered, had thereby been made something sacred. St. Thomas teaches the second signification of the sacrifice very clearly. The offering of sacrifice, he says, is intended to signify something. Now the sacrifice which is offered externally signifies the internal spiritual sacrifice in which the soul offers itself to God. The soul offers itself in sacrifice to God as its beginning by creation and as its end by beatification. The similarity and the difference between the sacrifice on Calvary, the antitype, and the figurative or typical sacrifices that went before will be made more clear by the following comparison. In the old law, the priest offered to God, in the sense explained, a victim destroyed or changed as a sign of his own subjection. On Calvary, our Lord, as man, offered himself to destruction as a sign of his absolute subjection. Hence the Church teaches that on Calvary, Christ was both priest and victim. Some Special Sacrifices The Paschal Lamb Among the sacrifices commanded by God in the Old Law, the most striking figure of the sacrifice of our Lord was the sacrifice of the Paschal Lamb. Our Lord was called the Lamb of God by St. John the Baptist. The figure was most perfect. It sets before us the gentleness of him who would not break the bruised reed nor quench the smoking flax. The sacrifice of the Paschal Lamb was a memorial of the delivery of the chosen people from the slavery of Egypt and the sacrifice of Jesus on Calvary is the cause of our delivery 
from the slavery of sin. The blood of the Paschal Lamb placed on the doorposts preserved the firstborn of the Jewish family from death, and the blood of Jesus preserves us from death, from eternal death. This is especially true when our lips are marked by the saving blood of Jesus in Holy Communion. By divine command, not a bone of the Paschal Lamb was to be broken, and on the cross, that the prophetic figure might be fulfilled, not a bone of Jesus was broken, while the bones of the two thieves were crushed. The perfection of this figure is before us every day, when we address our Lord in Holy Mass, as the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. In the canon of the Mass, reference is made to the sacrifice of our patriarch Abraham. This sacrifice was a great and touching type of the sacrifice of the cross. The innocent Isaac, carrying the wood on his shoulders up the mountain for the sacrifice of himself, was indeed a most striking figure of our Lord bearing his own cross to Calvary. But this sacrifice, which stands out so prominently in the history of the chosen people, was not only a type of what was to come, it was a marvelously clear revelation of the nature of sacrifice. All details, the preparation, the act, the reward, are so fully set forth by the Holy Ghost that it seems as if He wished in this sacrifice of the Father of the faithful to show to all men what a sacrifice really means. Considering closely the familiar scripture story, it becomes manifest that the act of Abraham was an expression of most absolute submission to God. It was an act chosen by God Himself. It was a supreme trial of Abraham's spirit, a spirit of total dependence on the Creator and Lord of all things. It showed clearly that Abraham put God's will before everything else, and so much so, that in obedience to God he was ready to destroy his own son and to commit to God's goodness the realization of all his future hopes. The scene on the mountain comes vividly before us. It was the revelation of the depths of a great human soul. In raising his hand to strike his son, Abraham expressed his recognition of the supreme dominion of God. His act was the sign of his willingness to obey. It was this subjection of will, and this alone that God asked, the subjection of the creature to the Creator. And at the last moment, God stayed His hand. He did not want the blood of Isaac. He wanted the perfection of Abraham. And then the divine good pleasure appeared in the reward. By my own self I have sworn, saith the Lord, because thou hast done this thing, and hast not spared thy only begotten Son for my sake. I will bless thee, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. From this example it is clear that sacrifice in its essence is a sign of obedience, a sign of subjection of will, and that it is the surrender of our will that God demands above all as the condition for receiving his greatest favors. St. Thomas on Sacrifice in treating of the sacrifices of the old law, St. Thomas gives us one of his brilliant summaries of the whole doctrine of sacrifice. He says, Sacrifice expresses the right relation of the soul to God. And he goes on, The right relation of the soul to God implies man's recognition that all he has comes from God as from the first beginning, 
and man's direction of all to God as the last end. Let us weigh these words of the Prince of Theologians. Sacrifice, he tells us, expresses something which is in the soul. It gives expression to a hidden disposition, to hidden acts of mind and will. It is a sign, a public declaration, a deliberate manifestation. What sacrifice expresses and declares and manifests is the right relation of the soul to God. It expresses the good disposition of the soul in regard to God. And the angelic doctor makes very clear what the disposition is in which the right relation of the soul to God consists. The right relation of the soul to God, he says, includes two things. First, it implies man's recognition that all he has comes from God. That is to say, his body and his soul and his faculties and his external goods have all come from God. God is the owner of all. Secondly, the right relation of the soul to God implies man's direction of all to God as the last end. That is to say, his life should be directed to God. His faculties should be directed to God by being exercised as God wills. His external goods should be used to help him to attain to the last end, the possession of God, the sharing of God's happiness. This direction of all to God as the last end expresses man's desire to be united to God and implies, or rather is identical with, the perfect conformity of man's will to the divine will. This perfect conformity implies not only doing the divine will and bearing all the divine will wishes man to bear, but doing and bearing for the motive of pleasing God so as to become united with him who alone is capable of satisfying all longings. Sacrifice, therefore, is the expression of the utter surrender of man's being and man's powers to God, his creator, his preserver, and the goal of his existence. By this utter surrender, man seeks for friendship and union with God. The Vocabulary of Sacrifice The text of the Old Testament gave with minute care all the various details of the right to be followed in the different kinds of sacrifice. These inspired words supplied a very full vocabulary which was used by the Jews when they referred to the sacrifices in the temple. During the first centuries, under the guidance of the church, beautiful prayers and ceremonial readings began to surround the simple act of sacrifice on the Christian altar, and many of the words chosen were those which the scripture had used in reference to the sacrifices of the old law. This was a very natural procedure. The early Christians were either converted Jews, who were familiar with the words used in speaking of the sacrifices of the law, or converted pagans, who were accustomed to somewhat similar sacrifices. Hence it was natural to take the words that they had heard and use them in reference to the one sacrifice of the new law, especially as the fundamental idea of sacrifice as a sign of subjection to God remained unchanged. These words had a literal meaning when applied to the figurative sacrifices of the old law, but had frequently only a mystical meaning when applied to the mass. Thus, for example, the word immolation, which meant the actual destruction of the life of a living victim, has a mystical meaning when used in reference to the Christian sacrifice.
when the priest offers the chalice at Mass, he asks God that it may ascend before thy divine majesty with an odor of sweetness. These words were adapted from those used in the old law in reference to the sacrifice of the burning of incense. Chapter 5 In the Book The Meaning of the Mass The Sacrifice of the Altar The Mass in Prophecy When we contemplate the wonder of the holy sacrifice being celebrated all over the earth, the divine goodness comes before us. The Savior of men, the Lamb of God, is laid each day on numberless altars so that all the members of the church may have that daily sacrifice so suited to the needs of man and receive through it the graces merited on Calvary. When we contemplate all these marvels, we are naturally led to expect that the prophets of the old law, who foresaw and foretold so many wondrous truths regarding Christ, must have spoken of the wonders of the Mass. And we do find in the prophet Malachias the prophecy which we expect. Hear the words written centuries before our Lord came. From the rising of the sun, even to the going down, my name is great among the Gentiles, and in every place there is sacrifice, and there is offered to my name a clean oblation. For my name is great amongst the Gentiles, saith the Lord of hosts. How marvelously the prophecy is fulfilled by the clean and unbloody offering of the Mass. For as moment succeeds moment, day is breaking in some part of the world, and with the dawn comes the morning Mass, the clean oblation spoken of by the prophet, which is thus being actually offered every moment from the rising of the sun even to the going down thereof. Thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. The Catholic Doctrine Our faith teaches that Holy Mass is a sacrifice, that Christ offers himself in this sacrifice through the ministry of his priests, that the sacrifice of the Mass is the same in substance as the sacrifice of Calvary, the difference being only in the manner of offering. The Mass, says Leo XIII, is not an empty or bare commemoration of his death, but a true and wonderful though unbloody and mystical renewal of it. And again he says, in the Mass the supreme sacrifice of Calvary is renewed in an admirable manner. Like all sacrifices, Holy Mass is a sign of loving recognition of God's dominion and of childlike subjection to Him. It is the sign or expression of the absolute dependence of our Lord as man on the Divine Majesty. Two points suggest themselves for our special consideration. The identity of the sacrifice of the altar and the sacrifice of the cross and the interior dispositions and acts of our Lord which are expressed by the Mass. The relation between the Mass and Calvary. As Holy Church teaches, the sacrifice of the altar is identical in essentials with the sacrifice of the cross. We can intensify our devotion to Holy Mass by considering this identity and endeavoring to penetrate more and more deeply into its mysteries so that we may understand in some way how the two sacrifices are the same. On account of the identity, it is evident that to understand the meaning of the Mass, we should keep in mind what we have learned of Calvary, and especially what we have learned of our Lord's dispositions when on the cross.
As we've already seen, Christ offered Himself on Calvary in sacrifice. He offered Himself to die for the expiation of sin and the salvation of men. He was the offerer, and He was offered. He was both priest and victim. Christ, says St. Thomas, exposed Himself to death of His own free will. Hence He is said to have offered Himself. On the altar, also, He offers Himself. He offers, and He is offered. He is both priest and victim. The act by which he offers himself needs very close consideration. To understand it, we must recall the words of St. Thomas already quoted. The sacrifice which is offered externally, the visible act, signifies the interior spiritual sacrifice in which the soul offers itself to God. The interior sacrifice of Christ on the cross was the interior act of offering himself to die. It was an act that proceeded from his constant disposition of unreserved surrender to his Father's will. St. Thomas teaches also that the interior sacrifice is more important than the exterior sacrifice. Sacrifice is twofold, as was said before. Of these, the first and more important is the interior sacrifice. But the exterior act adds much to the interior. It is its actualization, its consummation, its perfection. This interior sacrifice is related to the exterior and surpasses it, just as thought and desire and determination are related to the words which express them and are superior to this expression. The interior act is as the soul of the sacrifice, the exterior act is as its body. Now, it is this interior offering of himself, the interior sacrifice, that is one and the same on the cross and on the altar. We are here in the midst of mystery. But the great theologians give us partial explanations, explanations which leave the center of the mystery still in obscurity. St. Thomas indicates how we may approach the consideration of this matter. Quoting St. Ambrose, he says, As what is offered in every place is one body, so also it is one sacrifice. These illuminating words lead us to the following comparison. In the Holy Eucharist, as a sacrament, our Lord's body, while being one, is sacramentally present in many places at the same time. By this wonder, our Lord manifests His dominion over the laws of space. A similar marvel appears in the Holy Eucharist, considered as a sacrifice. On the altar, our Lord, who offered Himself once to die, is actually offering Himself in every Mass. His interior act is the same. It continues without change. His acceptance of the Passion is eternal. He is ever ready to be obedient even unto death. By this wonder, our Lord manifests His dominion over the laws of time. The interior sacrifice in which our Lord offered Himself to die in obedience to His heavenly Father, this interior act of offering unto death, must be expressed externally so that a sacrifice may exist. A sacrifice is a visible rite. On the cross, it was expressed by a real death. On the altar, it is expressed by a symbolic death. 
On the cross, the interior offering, or sacrifice, was expressed in a bloody manner. On the altar, the same interior offering, or sacrifice, is expressed in an unbloody manner. Thus, while the interior offering is the same, the manner of offering is different. On the cross, our Lord willingly and visibly submitted to actual death. This was the exterior sacrifice, the external sign of his interior sacrifice. On the altar, through the ministry of his priest, by the separate consecration of his body and blood, he is laid before his heavenly Father in the appearance of death. Delay not to pray for us, says St. Gregory Nazianzen, when thou drawest down the word of God by thy word, and using thy voice as a sword, dividest by a bloodless cutting the body and blood of the Lord. Since sacrifice is primarily a sign, it is the symbolism of the sign that matters, and hence death in figure can be as truly expressive as death in reality. And this death in figure on the altar is the expression of Christ's willing and perpetual offering of himself to the destruction of death. It is a sign chosen by himself as God to express his loving subjection as man. In the Mass he lays hold, as it were, of the chosen sacramental sign of death, and makes it signify to God the absolute dependence of himself as man on the divine majesty. Because of this unchanged and perpetual act of offering himself, and because of the symbolical form of death on the altar, which signifies his unchanged willingness to die, we speak of our Lord being on the altar as a victim, as one prepared for death. St. Thomas, in several places, tells us that in the blessed sacrament we have Christum Passum, Christ in a state of victimhood. This beautiful expression speaks to us very pointedly of the ever-enduring act of willingly offering of himself to die for us, for each one of us. The words Christ as a victim, Christus passes, bring to our mind also the apocalypse of St. John and his vision of the Savior in heaven, which he describes saying, I saw a lamb standing as it were slain, that is, as a victim, the external sign of that victimhood being the fact that our Savior still keeps the five wounds by which he was slain by which he shed his precious blood even unto death. With regard to the external act of offering in the Mass, we should note that our Lord is placed on the altar in the form of death by the acts of the priest in the double consecration. This is the external act of offering, and hence the priest truly offers the sacrifice. The consecration is his free act. But as our Lord instituted the double consecration and ordained that the consecration be renewed on our altars to the end of time, hence he really offers himself externally by the ministry of the priest. The Dispositions and Interior Acts of Jesus on the Altar Adoration Let us contemplate the soul of Jesus as he lies on the altar during Holy Mass. When we are present at the holy sacrifice, we are present at Calvary. The disposition of the soul of Jesus is unchanged. He's on the altar, just as he was all his earthly life, as he was on the cross, in a state of unreserved surrender 
to the will of his heavenly Father. But there's something more than that. The very act of his will by which he fully and freely offered himself to die, by which he accepted death in obedience to his heavenly Father, this very act is still operative. Christ, as a priest, says Pius XI, offered himself a victim for sins and offers himself perpetually. Our Lord as man, therefore, was and is ever in the disposition of profound reverence for and of loving filial dependence on the divine majesty. This absolute subjection is his unchanged attitude of soul. Jesus Christ yesterday and today and the same forever. On the altar he recognizes as man the supreme majesty of God, and he is ever in his position of subjection. When all things shall be subdued unto him, the Son, says St. Paul, then the Son also himself shall be subject to him, the Father, that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Christ is King. He will judge all men, and at the end of the world all things shall be subject to him. But as man he is ever subject to God, who put all things under him. At the Eucharistic Congress in Dublin, the Master General of the Dominicans, the very Reverend Father Gillet, O.P., read a remarkable paper entitled Eucharistic Harmonies. In this paper, he made the following clear statement on the point we are considering. Speaking of Calvary, he said, It is easy to see that all the value of the external passion comes from the internal passion, that the sacrifice of the body and blood of Jesus Christ has its source and explanation in the sacrifice or total surrender of his will to that of his Father. On the altar, as on the cross, we have the same invisible sacrifice of the loving will of Jesus Christ completely immolated to the will of his Father. The disposition of Jesus on Calvary was a disposition of adoration. All his life he was in the disposition of adoration and that disposition found expression in many acts. The act of offering himself to die was an act of adoration, for adoration is the acknowledgment of God's supreme dominion and of man's total dependence. It was the climax of the series of acts of adoration which were so prominent in his life. This act of absolute adoration is being made on the altar during Holy Mass. It is being made for us, our Lord, as man and as head of the church, adores his heavenly Father for all the faithful, and it is by him the angels of heaven adore the divine majesty as we read in the preface of the Mass. This unreserved surrender of himself in adoration, which was his reparation for man's refusal to be subject, this act of Jesus as he hung on the cross, which was the very soul of his sacrifice, and which is truly in being as he lies on the altar, this internal disposition and this act were manifested in the circumstances of the Passion and especially in his last words, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. We will continue with the meaning of the Mass by Reverend John Kearney on tape number three. Please join us. We continue now with The Meaning of the Mass by Reverend John Kearney, CSSP, and the sacrifice 
of the altar. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. He who said these beautiful words is on the altar and in the same attitude of childlike surrender in which he spoke them on Calvary. To contemplate our Lord in his disposition of unreserved surrender to his heavenly Father, the disposition in which he lived his earthly life, in which he died and in which he lies on the altar, to contemplate our Lord thus is a kind of prayer in which we may be engaged from the consecration to the communion of the Mass. Such contemplation will open to us more profound depths in the knowledge of Christ and will lead us to desire and to endeavor to keep ourselves in a like disposition of unreserved surrender to God during the holy sacrifice and to determine to live thus during the day. Any one of the four following ways of contemplating Jesus as he lies on the altar will be sufficient to occupy us in prayer during the rapid moments between the consecration and the communion. Love, the act by which Jesus offered himself to die for our salvation, was an act at once simple and complex. It was simple because it was pure and sincere. It was complex because it was the expression of the motive from which it proceeded, and hence must be considered as including that motive. From this point of view, it was an act of love, an act of love ever the same, ever enduring, an act of love for us which was supreme. Greater love than this no man hath that a man lay down his life for his friends. That act of love is ever really enforced during the Holy Mass. It is an eternal, unchanged, ever-present act of love for us, his human brothers. As on the cross, so on the altar, Jesus is consumed by the desire for our eternal happiness, and this is love. To love is to desire the happiness of another, and to desire it so earnestly that the lover is ready to take all means to procure that happiness is supreme love. Love for us, such as this, is in the soul of Jesus as he lies on the altar under the form of that death which he's still willing to bear for us. This act of love, let us repeat, is the act of willing offering of himself to die for us, to die that we might live, to bear the death by bleeding symbolized by the double consecration, just that we might reach eternal happiness. It is an act of perfect love, for by that act he makes our interest to be his own, and he's still ready to face death for these interests. The contemplation of this act of love, still really effective during Mass, draws us to want to make his interest to be ours, to want to prevent sin, to want to lead others to do the good that pleases him, and to want to act thus is to love. Let us love the Lord Jesus because he has loved us first. Praise. The act of willing offering of himself to die on Calvary, this ever-enduring act of offering, was also an act of praise. By this act our Lord praised the Heavenly Father. It was an act which proclaimed the divine perfections, the divine goodness, this will be evident if we recall that the act of offering flowed from the love of the heart of Jesus for his heavenly Father, which love arose in the divine heart from his knowledge of the infinite goodness, the infinite lovableness of God.
These infinite perfections were set forth therefore and manifested by the visible subjection to death which was the sign of the interior act of offering himself to die. Now praise is nothing else but the declaration of the perfection of the person praised. Hence the three hours on the cross were one series of acts of praise, one continued sequence of acts which declared the divine perfections. That supreme praise is continued in the Mass, and we who assist are present at that act by which God is praised, with praise which is worthy of Himself. On the altar, Christ praises God in the name of the children of the church of which He is the head. He praises God in the name of the angels. It is by Him the angels praise the divine majesty to quote the preface again. To know this is a special joy for all lovers of God who see with distress that God's goodness is forgotten, that it is not praised, that His kindness, His patience, His generosity, His lovableness are seldom spoken of. To speak of these is to praise God, and He is not praised as He should be by men. Such souls contemplate with great contentment and deep joy that perfect praise which is being given to God by Jesus as he lies on the altar in the form of death. It is possible for us to enter into this act of praise and to make it our own in a special way. How we do this will be seen in the next chapter. With the praise of God is intimately associated the glory of God, for glory is nothing else, as St. Thomas teaches, but clear knowledge accompanied by praise. Our Lord in the Mass gives infinite glory to God by the expression of His subjection as man to the Divine Majesty. In His holy soul He has unbounded knowledge of the adorable perfections of God, in particular of His supreme dominion over all created things. Now Holy Mass is the acknowledgment and declaration of this supreme perfection of God and of our Lord's willing acceptance of all its consequences. Hence, in the Mass, he gives glory to God, and the glory is infinite because of the dignity of his person. Holy Church reminds us of this when, at the end of the great sacrificial prayer after the consecration, she puts these words on the lips of her priests, Through him, and with him, and in him, is to thee, O God, the Father Almighty, in the unity of the Holy Ghost, all honor and glory, forever and ever. Amen. Thanksgiving. Consideration of the fundamental fact that God is the only being who exists from Himself, all other beings are dependent on Him, leads us to some understanding of the universality of our own dependence on God as regards time. We are dependent on God at this moment. We were always dependent. We shall always be dependent. In every moment of our past existence we were receiving favors from Him. We receive favors, spiritual and temporal, without number. Our fulfillment of the duty of gratitude for these favors is an acknowledgment of our dependence in the past. Our blessed Lord, as man, has a created body and soul. He has created faculties. And hence He is dependent at each moment, present, past, and future. His dependence in reference to the time past is expressed in His gratitude. 
During his life, Jesus often expressed his gratitude to his heavenly Father. I thank thee, Father, that thou hast heard me. And he added, I know that thou hearest me always. When the end of his life came and Jesus instituted the holy sacrifice, he made a special act of gratitude before each of the two consecrations. From this has come the very name Eucharist, which means thanksgiving. Our Lord is ever grateful. He's grateful to his heavenly Father as he lies on the altar. His gratitude flows from, or rather, is a mode of his fundamental disposition of dependence on God. The act of surrender which issued from that disposition on Calvary was also an act of gratitude, and the actual acceptance of death manifested the depth of this gratitude. That act of thanksgiving is being made in our very presence during the Mass. Our Lord thanked and now thanks His Heavenly Father for all the favors given Him as man. He gives thanks on the altar for all the blessings given to the children of the church, for the faith, for the sacraments, for actual graces, for sanctifying grace, for the protection of our Blessed Lady, and for the temporal favors which men receive as helps to the good use of the spiritual favors. All this thanksgiving takes place before our eyes when we assist at Mass. We should contemplate this thanksgiving when Jesus lies on the altar as a victim and rejoice that our generous God is so abundantly thanked for all that He has given us. But each of us has a personal duty of gratitude. To fulfill it, we must enter into our Lord's thanksgiving and make it our own. St. Thomas does not fear to say that the passion of Christ belongs to us as really as though we ourselves had suffered it. The passion is before us on the altar, and we can thank God we can fulfill our duty of thanksgiving by Holy Mass. Jesus thanks for us. Hence the faithful, with correct vision, wish to have Holy Mass offered in thanksgiving. But to enter intimately into the thanksgiving of Christ in the Mass at which we assist, we require to conform ourselves to His dispositions. How this is done will occupy us at a further stage of our study. Petition The Scripture tells us that our Lord in heaven is always living to make intercession for us. Not only does He as man thank the Divine Majesty, and as head of the church make thanksgiving for us, her members. But likewise, as head of the church, he intercedes for us. As priest, he prays for us, and as God, he is prayed to by us. So wrote St. Augustine. St. Thomas explains this, saying, Christ intercedes for us as our advocate, and that in two ways, by presenting to his Father his humanity, which he took for us, and in which he suffered for us, and by expressing to his Father the desire he has for our salvation. Although our Lord as man prays for us, the church refrains from using the invocation, Christ pray for us, lest the person of Christ should be confounded with that of pure creatures. In the sacrifice of Calvary, the act of offering by which Jesus offered himself to die for our sake, was, as we repeatedly said, an act of willing recognition of his total dependence as man. 
The fact of his dependence is true of all time. It is true of the future. A prayer of petition is a willing recognition of dependence in the future. On the cross, Jesus prayed a prayer of petition. He asked that his merits might be distributed to those for whom he was dying, even to those who were doing him to death. Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. He prayed with hands extended. He showed his mortal wounds to his heavenly Father. This prayer was also for us, for us sinners, who, as St. Paul says, have crucified again the Son of God and made a mockery of him. This prayer was heard. In the days of his flesh, says St. Paul, he offered prayers and supplications with a strong cry and tears, and he was heard for his reverence, for his humble recognition of his dependence. From that prayer, with the petition of Our Lady, came the conversion of the thief, the conversion of the centurion, the conversion of those who returned to the city, striking their breasts, as St. Luke records. On the altar, Christ is still praying for us. He is always living to make intercession for us. He prays his Father that his merits and satisfactions may be applied to our souls. He asks that what he has earned for us by his passion be given to us. He lies on the altar in the form of death, in the form of the death he actually died by the separation of body and blood. He shows his death, a death through obedience, to his heavenly Father when he asks that his merits be given to all his children. His prayer on the altar is heard. There is no soul that does not receive, through the Mass, some of the graces merited on Calvary. This grace flowing from the Mass is at work all over the world, and for this unmerited giving Christ prays on the altar. But Christ not only prays for us during Mass, He offers our prayers to His heavenly Father. This is especially true when our prayers are those which the Church puts on the lips of her priests during the Holy Sacrifice. Christ offers these prayers. He, as it were, makes them His own, and they ascend to the Father of mercies in union with the prayers which He offers as head of the Church, and which express the absolute dependence of His mystical body. The prayers of Christ and our own prayers can be united, therefore, during Holy Mass in a real, if mysterious, way. The intimacy of this union depends on ourselves under God's grace. If we participate very perfectly in the Holy Sacrifice, those prayers bring down unthinkable treasures of grace. How we can do this, we shall consider later. The Propitiatory Power of the Mass on Calvary, as we've seen, our Lord made satisfaction for sin and merited grace. It is the design of God's providence that by the Mass, these merits and this satisfaction for sin should be applied to the souls of men. And hence, the Mass is really a propitiatory sacrifice for sin. We can summarize the Catholic doctrine on this point in the following few words. In the Mass, Christ expresses his adoration, his praise, his love, his gratitude, his petitions. He neither satisfies for sin nor merits grace, but he applies the satisfaction and merits of the cross to the souls of those who participate in the Mass. 
This participation in the Mass by the faithful and the fruit received may vary. The lowest degree is found in the participation by a member of the church who is in sin and has only faith, who thinks seldom of and cares little for the holy sacrifice. Even such a one receives some little grace from his participation in the Mass. To have faith means that a person willingly believes that he is, he willingly subjects his mind to God. Therefore he is subject to God in some degree, and in that degree he can participate in offering Mass. Passing from this participation through various degrees of perfection, we reach the participation of the saint who, present at Mass, is conformed in disposition to Christ and unites himself with the sacred act. Such a one makes the sacrifice of Christ to be his own sacrifice and receives unthinkable treasures of grace. But how can we make the Mass to be our sacrifice so as to receive an abundance of grace? This question will be fully examined later on. The Mass as offered by the Church The dispositions and the interior acts of Jesus on the altar constitute his interior sacrifice, and the external sacrifice which expresses all these is the separate consecration of his body and his blood as explained. The contemplation of all these acts of Jesus brings before us the magnificence of the Mass considered as offered by Christ himself. But the sacrifice of the Mass is offered also by the Church. The priest at the altar is deputed to offer sacrifice in her name, to lay Jesus on the altar in the form of death, as the expression of her subjection to God, even unto death. The church is holy. She is always pleasing to God, but in varying degrees according to the perfection of the sanctity of her children at the time. Her subjection to God, therefore, varies in perfection, and hence the sacrifice considered as offered by the church although always pleasing to God, is not infinitely pleasing. Nevertheless, the general sanctity of the church, the solid sanctity of so many of her children, and especially the heroic sanctity of her living saints, bring before us the magnificence of the adoration and thanksgiving and petition that is expressed and signified by the Mass considered as offered by the church. We see, therefore, that each time the holy sacrifice is celebrated, God is, in a manifest way, adored and praised and thanked by our Lord and by the Church. And this is true even if no one be present save the priest, and even if the priest himself be a sinner. This fruit of the holy sacrifice is put before us by the Church at the close of the great sacrificial prayer after the consecration, in the most solemn and beautiful of all her doxologies. Through him, and with him, and in him, is to thee, O God, the Father Almighty, in the unity of the Holy Ghost, all honor and glory, forever and ever. Amen. But the holy sacrifice considered as offered by Christ and by the Church has also fruits of salvation and sanctification for the souls of men. It is an application of the merits and satisfactions of Christ to the individual soul. These fruits consist of actual grace leading to contrition and to charity, together with the remission of temporal punishment and other spiritual and temporal favors. These precious fruits come to the individual members of the church 
in the measure of the donation of Christ. This measure is God's secret, but they are bestowed in a specially abundant manner on those for whom the Mass is offered. Catholic doctrine teaches us that the priest has the power to direct by his intention certain special and abundant graces, satisfactions, and favors to the souls of others. This he does when he offers Mass for them. Hence there is no greater charity than to have Mass offered for the conversion of a sinner. Indeed, the Council of Trent tells us that through the Mass the Lord grants graces and the gift of penance and blots out crime and sins, even heinous sins. This grace leads the sinner to seek forgiveness in the sacrament of penance. The souls in purgatory and the children of the church are each and all members of the mystical body of Christ. Hence we can mitigate or terminate their sufferings by applying to them the special satisfactory fruit of the Mass. This is one of the consoling consequences of the communion of saints, the communion of all who are members of the mystical body of Christ. The faithful realize this very well, and in their desire to help the souls dear to them who are detained in purgatory, they, under the guidance of the church, seek to have the holy sacrifice offered for these souls. It is a great charity, and it brings, through God's generosity, the reward of a similar charity towards themselves, when they, in their turn, are among the holy suffering souls. St. Thomas, speaking of the satisfactory effect of the Mass, says, It becomes satisfactory for those for whom it is offered, and even for the offerers, according to the measure of their devotion. And the saint defines devotion as the promptitude of the will in the service of God. It is the idea of subjection again. Union in Charity The fact that the holy sacrifice is offered by the Church, the mystic body of Christ, brings before us the union in charity with those around us which should follow from our presence at the same sacrifice. All those who come to unite in offering the Mass do so because they have the same faith and the same disposition of childlike submission to God of all majesty. This disposition of dependence on God is united to the disposition of the head of the mystic body and expressed by one common sign. It is manifest from all this that assisting at Mass should perfect our union in charity with one another, and the actual graces given by the holy sacrifice have this charity as a special object. This union in charity is signified also by the invitation of Christ given to all through His Church to receive the sacred victim. To come willingly to partake of the same banquet is a sign of friendship among all men, not merely a friendship with Him who invites, but a friendship among His guests. Hence, the Holy Eucharist is so well called the Sacrament of Charity. Chapter 6 in the book The Meaning of the Mass The Mass is our sacrifice, our daily Mass. The holy sacrifice is the sacred sign of the subjection and surrender of our soul to God, our Creator and our Father, in union with the subjection of Jesus, who was obedient unto death, by which surrender we open our soul to the gifts of eternal life. The power we have of participating in the sacrifice of the Mass. 
Sacrifice is an act of religion by which we acknowledge God's supreme dominion over us and our total dependence on Him. It is an external act by which man signifies and expresses and declares that he looks up to God as his Father and desires to live as his creature and as his child in perfect submission to and union with his divine will. In the sacrifice of the altar, our Lord expresses and declares his absolute subjection as man to his heavenly Father, his unchanged willingness to be obedient even unto death. But can we say with truth that the Mass which is the sacrifice of our Lord is really our sacrifice also? Let us listen to the Church which gives an affirmative answer. The faithful of Christ, says the Council of Trent, can do no work more holy, more divine, than this tremendous mystery. These words bring before us the fact that the faithful can unite with the priest in offering the sacrifice. The Mass is a work they do. This statement leads to the question, Who are the offerers of the Mass, the visible sacrifice of our altars? When our Lord said to the apostles, Do this in commemoration of me, he thereby made them priests, and he commanded that they and other priests should offer his body and blood. So the Council of Trent teaches. But in the Mass, Christ himself is always the principal offerer. He is a priest forever. And the celebrating priest acts and consecrates in his name. It is he who instituted the Mass and commanded his priest to offer it. And in the Mass, it is Christ before all others who offers the sacrifice. But with him, the Mass is offered not only by the priest at the altar, but also by the whole church, and especially by those who are present or who have cooperated in any way with the actual offering. The very text of the Mass itself shows us that those who assist can participate in offering the sacrifice. During the canon, at the memento for the living, the priest says, Be mindful, O Lord, of thy servants, and of all here present, for whom we offer to thee, or who offer to thee, this sacrifice of praise. And again, before the consecration, the priest says, We therefore beseech thee, O Lord, graciously to accept this oblation of our servitude, as also of thy whole family. And after the consecration, he continues, Wherefore, O Lord, we thy servants, as also thy holy people, offer to thy most excellent majesty, a pure host, a holy host. It is manifest, therefore, that we who assist at Mass can really unite with the act of the priest. Hence, we can really participate in the sacrifice. This doctrine is set forth by Pope Pius XI in his encyclical on reparation, when he says, those whom our high priest Jesus Christ uses as his ministers to offer to God a clean oblation in every place from the rising of the sun even to the going down, they indeed are partakers of that sacred priesthood in that office of offering satisfaction and sacrifice. But not they alone, the whole body of Christians, rightly called by the prince of the apostles, a chosen generation, a kingly priesthood, must offer sacrifice for sins, both for themselves and for the whole human race. End quote, Pope Pius XI. The Mass, therefore, is really our sacrifice. 
we can really offer the Mass. We can really unite with Christ in offering his sacrifice. There is wondrous truth which should be well understood. It raises several questions. We shall consider three. What are the special advantages that come from participating in the Mass? What must I do to participate very perfectly in the sacrifice of Christ, to make it my sacrifice, so that I may enter into the supreme worship given to God by the Mass? And what graces will come to my soul from the participation in the Mass? And how may I receive them in abundance? The Advantages of Participating in the Mass Participation in the sacrifice of the Mass brings to our soul two priceless advantages. In the first place, by this participation, we are naturally united with the interior sacrifice of our Lord on the altar. We enter into His act. We make it our own in a mysterious but very real way. The act of the head of the church becomes the act of the members. As we've already seen, the fundamental interior act of our Lord on the altar is an act of submission, of filial obedience, of total surrender to the divine will. This act is inconceivably rich. It can be looked at from many points of view. It is an act of adoration, of praise, of thanksgiving, of petition. When we unite with that act, we adore God, we praise Him, we thank Him in a most perfect way, and our petitions are rendered most fruitful. We fulfill all our great religious duties. In the second place, by participation in the Mass, we receive in rich abundance the fruits of the sacrifice of Calvary, that is to say, the satisfactions of Christ for sin are applied to our soul, and the actual graces He merited are conferred upon us. The perfection with which we participate in these two priceless advantages of the Mass depends on our dispositions. We have now to consider very carefully these dispositions and also the precious advantages of which they are the necessary conditions. We may, for the purpose of clarity, consider these two advantages separately, although the condition each calls for is one and the same. The conditions necessary that we may participate in the supreme worship given to God in the Mass. Our blessed Lord lived on earth to give us an example of a perfect life, to teach us how to live so that we may attain to the eternal possession of God. This perfect life and the consequent endless happiness is found for us in our conforming ourselves to Christ. The saints, as St. Paul tells us, were made by God to be conformed to the image of His Son. And the saint exhorts us to this conformity, saying, Put ye on the Lord Jesus. But how can we do this? What's the meaning of putting on the Lord Jesus? The answer is simple. We must find from the Gospels the principle that guided the life of Jesus, and we must make that principle be the guiding and governing principle of our own lives. St. Paul indicates this conformity, saying, Let that mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, what was the principle that governed and directed the life of Jesus? We know the answer from the text we have already considered. In all our Lord's activity, and in all His sufferings, His human will was absolutely conformed to the divine will. 
I always do what is pleasing to him. These words give the principle that directed the life of Jesus. A remarkable modern writer, Carl Adam, puts the question and the answer thus. We want to discover, he says, what holy quickening forces, what impelling religious conceptions were at work in that miraculous human figure. We want to discover what it was that dominated and animated him. This can be answered at once. The ultimate and profoundest motive force, the mainspring of his activity, was an unreserved surrender to his Father's will. To be Christ-like, therefore, we must make this simple principle to be the dominating and directing principle of our lives. We must always be determined, with the help of grace, to keep God's commandments down to the last detail, to keep them because this is pleasing to Him. And we must be determined to carry every day the cross, which we should accept, because this is the divine will, even if the immediate cause be a human will. In a word, we must surrender our will to our Father in heaven. To secure this state of mind and heart, we should place our soul each morning in the position of childlike subjection to God. Unless you become as little children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. The external sign which expresses this disposition is sacrifice. The Council of Trent teaches us that our Lord instituted the Mass in order that he might leave to his beloved spouse, the Church, a visible sacrifice as human nature requires. The Holy Council indicates, therefore, the natural need we have of a visible daily sacrifice. Being made of body and soul, we need a visible sign by which we can express our acknowledgment of God's supreme dominion and ownership and of our own total dependence on Him. We require an external act by which we can manifest our thanksgiving for favors received, our dependence in the past, and our sorrow for our former want of docile dependence, our desire and our needs of God's favors, our dependence in the future, and our determination to be always docile to the divine will. All these various dispositions and acts flow from and are expressions of our childlike, lowly reverence for and adoration of God's supreme majesty. Consider now the wonderful ways of God's goodness. Since the fall of our first parents, no human being can approach God except through Jesus Christ. No one cometh to the Father except by me. This is especially true of the great fundamental act of religion, sacrifice. Christ has made our approach very easy. Having given us access to God by His sacrifice on Calvary, He perpetuates that sacrifice in the sacrifice of the altar. His reverence and loving subjection as man are expressed on the altar by a new sign, which is a memorial and a representation of the first sign on Calvary. The interior act by which he offers himself to God in obedience is one and the same on the altar and on the cross, since his act of offering continues unchanged through all time. And he's made it possible for us to unite with him in this sacrifice, both interior and exterior, and make it our sacrifice. 
To understand this truth, we must keep in mind that our blessed Lord is most closely united to all the members of his church. This union is so intimate that the Holy Ghost in the scriptures compares it to the union that exists between the head and the members of the human body. God hath made him head over all the church, which is his body. Hence we all form one mystic body with Christ. He is the head, we are the members. As our head, he cares for us, he directs us. If we, the members, are persecuted, Christ himself is persecuted. Saul, Saul, why dost thou persecute me? Were his words, when the future Paul, as yet unconverted, was breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. St. Thomas shows how far-reaching is this doctrine when he says, The head and the members are as one mystic person, and therefore the satisfaction of Christ belongs to all the faithful as being his members. In offering the sacrifice of the altar, Jesus Christ acts as head of his mystic body, the church. We are members of the body, hence his act belongs to us. We can unite with his act of offering himself. We can make his sacrifice ours. Each of us can say, I offer to thee, O heavenly Father, this sacrifice. But sacrifice is the sign of the loving subjection of the soul to God. Christ as man is ever subject to his Father, and he declares his subjection in the Mass. We must try, therefore, to have towards our heavenly Father the same attitude of soul as Jesus had. The perfection of that disposition cannot, of course, be attained in a moment. It is only by trying to live in a spirit of docility to the divine will that we gradually become conformed more and more perfectly to the dispositions of our Lord, and more and more capable of uniting ourselves with his interior sacrifice, and therefore with his external sacrifice. But when we are subject in some degree, we can unite with this great act by our intention, and if we do so, the visible rite of the Mass will be the expression of his subjection and of ours, and the more perfect our subjection, the more perfectly shall we enter into his sacrifice and participate in his supreme worship of his Father and our Father. It is not correct to say that our Lord adores for us in the Mass, and we have nothing to do but to be present. We cannot have the intention of uniting ourselves with his adoration unless we want to adore also, that is, unless we want to declare our dependence on God, for adoration is simply the declaration that God is supreme and that we are totally dependent. The Protestant idea of the manner in which we profit by our Lord's sacrifice on Calvary is that we need do nothing but believe, and we shall be justified and shall be saved. They deny the truth that to profit much by the sacrifice of Christ, we must make the effort, often painful, to put our soul in a disposition of conformity to the attitude of dependence which Christ manifested on the cross. There is a real danger that this Protestant idea may influence Catholics in the way they assist at Mass. They may imagine that by the mere fact of their being present with faith in the real presence, they do practically all that's required 
to unite with the sacrifice of Christ and to make that sacrifice their own. Let us repeat, so as to be quite clear, the perfection in which we enter into the sacrifice of Christ and by it fulfill our duties of adoration, thanksgiving, and petition depends on the perfection of two conditions. As regards the external sacrifice, it depends on our nearness to the sacrificial act and our willingness to be united with it. If this willingness is in the soul, the priest who celebrates is nearest of all. Those who are present in reality are nearer than those who are present only in desire, and those who are attentive are nearer than those who are distracted through carelessness. As regards the interior sacrifice, it depends on the perfection of our conformity to Christ in his soul's attitude before his Father. The dominant feature of his soul's attitude was and is his disposition of humble and filial dependence on God, of perfect conformity of will with the divine will. Therefore, when in some degree we make our own, as we may by the help of grace, this disposition of Jesus, we are conformed to him in that degree, and we can unite with him in his sacrifice. Examining this in detail, the perfection of conformity to Christ in his loving dependence, which we must endeavor to attain, means that we are ready to do all that God wishes us to do, that we are resolved to spend ourselves in doing his will, that we are ready to be obedient unto death, if that were necessary, and in particular, that we are determined to be very charitable and to fulfill the duties of our state of life. We will continue with the Mass as our sacrifice on side B of this tape. Please join us. We continue now with the book, The Meaning of the Mass, by Reverend John Kearney, CSSP, and the chapter on the Mass is our sacrifice. Examining the perfection of conformity to Christ in his loving dependence, which we must endeavor to attain, means that we are ready to do all that God wishes us to do, that we are prepared to accept all the crosses he may please to permit to press upon us. This complete surrender of our soul to God, when it is perfect, implies that we are absolutely devoted to our Father in heaven as his creatures and his children. It implies that like the little flower, we are determined to refuse him nothing. It implies the absolute conformity of our will with the divine will. When we are in a state of grace, the conformity of our will with the divine will, which we must have in some degree to participate in offering the Mass, demands an exercise of faith, hope, and charity. This to surrender our soul to God in union with Christ, we must believe in the Holy Trinity, in the Incarnation and the redemption. We must expect with confidence through the merits of Christ that God will give us the eternal possession of himself. And we must have some degree of divine charity. This we have since we are in grace. And the perfection of charity will be attained when our conformity to the divine will is perfect. To conform our will to that of God, says St. Alphonsus, is the summit of perfection and perfection is in charity. When the soul, says St. John of the Cross, cast away from itself 
all that is contrary to the divine will, it becomes transformed in God by love. Holy Mass, as we've said, is the expression, the manifestation, the sign of our disposition of surrender to God, of our filial subjection to His divine will. This idea is put before us very clearly by the Church in the words of the liturgy. When the canon, the central and sacrificial part of the Mass, begins, the Church prays for all her children. She places herself in communion with the Blessed Virgin and the saints in heaven. And when the supreme moment of sacrifice, the consecration, arrives, she orders the priest to spread his hands over the matter of the sacrifice, and she bids him use words which describe what she is about to do. Under her guidance, the priest speaks to God of the sacrifice as the oblation of our servitude, of our subjection, of our obedience, and also the oblation of the subjection of all thy family united here. At this most solemn moment, therefore, the Church declares her way of looking at what is done in the consecration. It is a sign of loving servitude, of filial promptitude to obey. And then the Church continues the wondrous words of the canon until the great act is complete, and when all is finished, she tells her children to depart that the Mass is ended. Ite Messiest. To this she adds the blessing of the priest, but before he gives it, she bids him bow before the altar and look back on the great work he has done and once more express clearly what the work was in regard to her children. She puts on his lips words similar to those used before the consecration. The Mass just offered, he says, was the homage of my servitude, the homage of my obedience, the sign of my total dependence as God's creature and God's child. During Holy Mass, our interior disposition of filial subjection and surrender to God may take various modes or forms according to the needs of our soul and the attraction of God's grace. At one time we humbly acknowledge our nothingness before God and His absolute and infinite supremacy. Our sacrifice is the expression of our adoration. It is truly the offering of our subjection. At another time the past comes before us. We see how God has given us all we have and all we are. We see that we have always been dependent on Him. We recognize His goodness to us in the past, and our sacrifice becomes the expression of our gratitude. It becomes a sacrifice of thanksgiving. In truth is it worthy and just, right and salutary, that we should always and in all places give thanks to Thee, O Holy Father. And then our sins come before us. We have offended God. We are sincerely sorry. We need absolute forgiveness. We look to Calvary, the sacrifice of atonement for sin, and we look to the Mass by which the satisfactions and merits of Calvary are applied to our soul. We offer the Mass as the expression of our present subjection, which implies contrition and good resolution. We offer the Mass that perfect forgiveness may be given us. To us sinners, who trust in the multitude of thy mercies, vouchsafe to grant some part and fellowship with thy holy apostles and martyrs, into whose company we beseech thee to admit us, not in consideration of our merits, 
but according to the bounty of thy pardon, through Christ our Lord. Again, we look to the future. We keenly realize that we depend altogether on the divine goodness through the merits of Christ for all our needs of the morrow, of next week, and of next year, for the graces of faith, hope, and charity, that we may continue in conformity of will with God's will. We manifest our desire and our expectation by our sacrifice. It becomes a sacrifice of impetration. By it we manifest especially our petition that God our Father would give us the possession of Himself and all we need for that end. We therefore beseech Thee, O Lord, grant that we be saved from eternal damnation and numbered in the flock of Thine elect. Deliver us, we beseech Thee, O Lord, from all evils past, present, and to come, and through the intercession of the blessed and glorious Virgin Mary. Mercifully grant peace in our days, that by the assistance of Thy mercy we may be always free from sin and secure from all disturbance, through the same Jesus Christ, Thy Son, our Lord. The total dependence on God, both of the celebrating priest and of all the members of the Church, is expressed most clearly in these petitions. For petition is the expression of need, of desire, of expectation, and therefore of dependence. Hence we see why the idea of petition appears so prominently in the words of the Missal. Our petitions during Mass should be made with the greatest confidence, because we can rely on the merits of the Passion of Christ, who is actually manifesting before our eyes in the double consecration that he is still willing to pour out his blood for our sake. He himself will present our petitions to his heavenly Father. He's always living to make intercession for us. We are all conscious of our many spiritual needs. We want help in our temptations. We want grace to be generous with God, to do His will constantly, to carry the cross He sends. What we have set forth above shows us that in Holy Mass we have the great means of obtaining all we require for our spiritual advantage, and also for the spiritual advantage of others, for the conversion of sinners, and for strength for those in temptation. The faithful, when about to assist at Mass, very often express their fundamental disposition of dependence on God in such words as these, I offer myself to Thee, O God, in this Mass. I offer my sufferings to Thee, my Father, in this Mass, in union with the sufferings of Jesus. I offer this Mass in thanksgiving for all God has given me. I offer this sacrifice for my sins. I offer this sacrifice to obtain a special grace. I offer myself means I am willing to bear all God permits to afflict me. I am willing to be spent in doing the divine will. And I unite this, my offering, with the interior offering of Himself, which Jesus makes in this Mass. I offer my sufferings means I offer myself to suffer. I conform my will to the divine will, and I willingly accept the sufferings God permits. I wish to suffer in the same spirit in which Jesus suffered, and I unite my dispositions to those Jesus expresses in this Mass. 
I offer the sacrifice in thanksgiving means I offer the sacrifice as a sign of my grateful acknowledgement that I was absolutely dependent on God's kindness for the favors he gave me, that I owe all to God, and I unite my thanksgiving with the thanksgiving which Jesus makes on the altar. I offer this sacrifice for my sins means I offered this sacrifice as a sign and declaration that I now desire to conform my will, in essentials at least, to the divine will, and that I wish to unite this subjection, imperfect though it be, to the subjection of Christ, so that I may get grace to be contrite, and so that my want of subjection in the past may be rectified and atoned for by an application of the merits and satisfactions of Calvary. I offer this sacrifice to obtain a special grace, means I offer this sacrifice as a recognition that I am absolutely dependent on God for the favor I ask, and I ask it in union with the petition of Jesus, who is always making intercession for us. When we unite our act of subjection, in whatever form it takes, to the divine act of loving subjection which Christ expresses in the Mass, our act is completely changed. It has a different value in the eyes of God. It has become most acceptable to the Divine Majesty, and God at once imparts to us a special, rich share in the merits and satisfactions of Calvary. Do we often thank God for the privilege of being present at Mass? Do we ponder in prayer on this privilege? What a favor is given us when we have the power of uniting intimately our feeble acts of adoration and thanksgiving and petition with those of Christ, expressing them by the same external act by which He expresses His total dependence as man on the Divine Majesty, and receiving through our union with Him the graces that bring us to eternal life. Nothing is so consoling, so piercing, so thrilling, so overcoming as the Mass. It is a great action, the greatest action that can be on earth. The graces of the Mass, and how we may receive them in abundance. The fruits of the sacrifice of Calvary are received most abundantly through the sacrifice of the Mass, as the Council of Trent tells us. These fruits, which are usually called the fruits of the Mass, include the application to the soul of the satisfactions of Calvary, so that part at least of our debt of temporal punishment may be remitted. This debt remains after the forgiveness of personal sin on account of the imperfection of our charity. But the fruits of the Mass consist especially in actual graces. These actual graces lead us and help us to reject more perfectly whatever is displeasing to God. Special graces of contrition are given in great abundance. Through the Mass, says the Council of Trent, the Lord grants grace and the gift of penance and blots out crimes and sins, even heinous sins. This grace leads us to seek forgiveness in the sacrament of penance, and not infrequently raises our soul to perfect contrition, so that forgiveness, even of mortal sin, is granted at once, and with it a diminution at least of the temporal punishment usually due for sin already forgiven. When we prepare for confession, 
we can with great advantage unite ourselves with the Mass which is being celebrated at that moment, so that these special graces of contrition may be given to us. In the second place, the actual graces given by the Mass help us to exercise and develop the virtues of faith, hope, and charity, so that we may be enabled to persevere in and to perfect our disposition of filial docility to God, and thus, confiding in the merits of Christ, to live the Mass during the day. Living the Mass means that we live in the disposition which is expressed by the Mass, that we strive all day long to please God and to accept willingly the cross He wills us to bear. It is, of course, manifest that to profit in some degree by offering the Mass, we must be already in a certain disposition of submission to God. This is our conformity to Christ. And, as has been said, the graces of the Mass lead us and help us to perfect this childlike spirit of surrender to our Creator and our Father. From the history of the Apostles we can learn something of what this means. The Apostles had left all things at the call of our Lord. Behold, says St. Peter, we have left all and have followed thee. They had spent nearly three years in his holy society under the attractive influence of him who was divinely lovable. And yet our Lord, towards the end of the third year of the public life, announced to these very Apostles that they had a further perfection to acquire. They were to be changed. They were to advance in the spirit of childlike surrender to God. Addressing them, he said, Unless you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. The graces of the Mass are intended to lead us to this. The grace of faith given by the Mass brings before us clearly the divine majesty of God and our utter dependence on Him. It is the foundation of the childlike spirit. The grace of hope leads us to aspire with absolute confidence through the merits of Christ to the acquisition of more childlike conformity to our Father's will. He in whom we trust is before our eyes in His perfect submission. To help us to realize this, the Church insists that an image of the crucifixion be above the altar on which Mass is being offered. The grace of charity enables us to attain to a greater perfection of sincere and childlike surrender to our Heavenly Father. This surrender, when perfect, implies the destruction of our disorderly self-will and is a sign and a proof of perfect love. We may describe these actual graces given through Holy Mass by saying that they are given to help us to become more Christ-like. They enlighten our minds to see things as Jesus sees them, to judge and evaluate things as He does, to put first the things that He would put first. These actual graces also influence our will. They attract us to act as Jesus would act, to do all things for the motive of pleasing our Heavenly Father. I always do what pleases Him, to bear the daily cross as Jesus bore his cross. Whosoever doth not carry his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. But how should we assist at Mass, or rather offer Mass, so as to receive these precious graces in rich abundance? 
this question is of supreme spiritual importance. The answer is already familiar. The richness of the graces we receive through the Mass depends on the perfection of the conformity of our soul to the soul of Jesus in his filial dependence on and surrender to his heavenly Father. The necessity of endeavoring to put our soul in a disposition of docility to God, in some degree at least, if we would profit by offering the Mass, is set forth by Reverend Dr. Moran of Maynooth in the following clear and grave words. The ritual, or outward sacrifice, is the visible sign of the invisible sacrifice of the will. In other words, we offer sacrifice to God in token of our submission to His will and of our dedication of ourselves to His service. Now, this inward disposition of the soul, this submission of the will to God, has to be cultivated by each individual Christian for himself. No one else can supply it on his behalf. If a person in his inmost heart refuses to serve God, even the Mass, insofar as it's offered by him, is only an empty token of his submission that he is not prepared to make. He may benefit by the Mass, insofar as it is a sacrifice of his fellow worshippers or of the Church at large, but as offered by himself, it will produce no fruit because of his bad dispositions. This strong statement reminds us that in offering Mass, our surrender to God and our resolution to be subject to the divine will in doing and bearing may be more or less perfect. And of course, as children of God, our endeavor should be to attain to the greatest perfection in the surrender of ourselves. Now, when our disposition is really generous, this surrender involves much that is painful to our fallen, self-seeking nature. It involves our giving up all that displeases God, even in the slightest degree. Hence, it involves real self-denial, the giving up of the habit of making ourselves the center of our activity, the giving up of our self-centeredness. This idea of the sacrifice of the Mass calling for the sacrifice of ourselves is nothing new. It is found in the Fathers of the Church. St. Augustine, as we've seen, tells us that every external sacrifice is a sacred sign of an interior sacrifice. And St. Gregory says, During the holy function we must offer ourselves with compunction of heart as a sacrifice. For when we commemorate the mystery of the passion of our Lord, we must imitate that which we celebrate. The Mass will be a sacrifice for us when we have made an offering of ourselves to God. Hence, in the ceremony of ordination, the ordaining pontiff addressing the new priest says, Imitate what you are engaged in. Imitate what you do. The priest is engaged in the ministry of sacrifice. Through his ministration, Christ manifests by a visible sign his utter subjection, his absolute devotedness to God. The priest and we who unite with him must imitate that. The sacrifice we offer must for us also be the external and solemn expression and protestation that we too desire and are determined to be absolutely devoted to the Divine Majesty. 
the necessity of this interior sacrifice of ourselves, or this painful interior renovation, if we would draw from Holy Mass its real treasures, is set forth by Pope Pius XI in these impressive words. With the august sacrifice of the Eucharist must be united the immolation of the ministers and also of the rest of the faithful, so that they too may offer themselves a living sacrifice, holy, pleasing to God. Hence, St. Cyprian says that the sacrifice of the Lord is not offered with its complete effect of sanctification unless our offering and our sacrifice correspond with the Passion. A real but spiritual immolation of ourselves is therefore required. We must make of ourselves a living sacrifice. The sacrifice of ourselves must correspond to the Passion of Christ. It should be made in union with Him, and we should be ready to be obedient unto death, should God so require. Otherwise, the complete effect of sanctification, the rich graces of the Mass, will not be ours. In another place, the Holy Father comes back to the same idea and makes it still more definite when he says, the more perfectly our oblation and our sacrifice correspond to the sacrifice of Christ. In other words, the more we sacrifice our self-love and our passions and crucify our flesh with that mystical crucifixion of which the Apostle speaks, the more abundant will be the fruits of propitiation and expiation that we shall receive for ourselves and for others. These words make quite clear what is involved in the interior sacrifice of ourselves. We must sacrifice, we must give up self-love which has such a hold on us, we must be determined to mortify our passions, to crucify our flesh. Those that are Christ's, says St. Paul, have crucified their flesh with its vices and desires. To receive the rich fruits of the Mass we must be mortified. It is only by mortification that we can attain to that perfection of conformity to the divine will, which is the condition required for that great fruitfulness of the Mass which leads to intimate friendship and union with God both here and hereafter. The Holy Father in the above extracts is only expounding the doctrine set forth by the Council of Trent. This Holy Council, speaking of the fruits of the Holy Sacrifice, tells us that through the Mass we receive mercy and grace in opportune aid provided we approach God with a true heart and a right faith, with fear and reverence, contrite and penitent. These conditions demand the same surrender of soul, the same destruction of self-centeredness, the same subjection to God our Creator and our Father as Pius XI requires of us. We should not be discouraged by such strong statements of Catholic doctrine. The Holy Father does indeed make it very clear that much is required of us if we would participate perfectly in the Holy Sacrifice and draw from it the rich treasures of grace that are at our disposal therein. But in our efforts to perfect our participation in Holy Mass, we are not alone. The Mass is a social act. It is offered by the priest in the name of the Church, and by each member of the Church. And it is offered by them for all the members, so that the actual grace merited by Christ on Calvary, 
may in some degree at least be given to each and all. This grace will help us in our efforts to make ourselves more perfectly conformed to Christ as man in his disposition of subjection. On our part, we must generously cooperate with this helping grace. That is, we must try to cast from us all attachment to venial sin. We must try to determine to live according to the good pleasure of God. And we should encourage ourselves to this by keeping in mind that in the ordinary way of divine providence, the abundance of grace we so sorely need for the future will come to us through the Mass in accordance with our dispositions of childlike surrender to God. But our weakness is great. The perversity in us from original and actual sin is deeply rooted. And in consequence, it is not astonishing that when we sincerely want to subject ourselves to God, we cannot at once rise to perfect conformity with His will. We cannot in a moment reach the perfection of self-surrender. We cannot root out the hidden attachment to our own will, the obscure but real egotism that is in us. Hence we must appeal to God, asking Him in His goodness to be pleased with our imperfect subjection, to be pleased with our sacrifice, which is the expression of this subjection, for the Mass is the sign both of the subjection of Jesus and of our own subjection, imperfect though it be, which we unite to His perfect subjection. This is what the Church means when in the text of the Missal she so repeatedly asks God to accept the sacrifice we offer, that is, the sacrifice considered as the sign of our subjection. Thus, before the elevation, she prays, We therefore beseech Thee, O Lord, graciously to accept the oblation of our servitude, this expression of our dependence. And after the consecration, in the first great prayer, upon which oblations vouchsafe to look with a propitious and serene countenance, and to accept them as Thou wast graciously pleased to accept the gifts of Thy just servant Abel and the sacrifice of our patriarch Abraham. The sacrifice of Abraham, the immolation of his son, was the expression of his absolute subjection to God, of his most perfect obedience. God always listens to the prayers of the Church, and hence He will be gracious to us who offer the Mass. He will accept the expression of our imperfect subjection. He sees our weakness and our perversity. He also sees our genuine goodwill, our sincere, if imperfect, desire to surrender our will to His will. And He will grant us a share in the graces that flow from the Mass. These graces of faith, hope, and charity will enable us to perfect our disposition of filial surrender so that the next Mass may be more fruitful, and thus, through patient perseverance, we can hope by His generosity to become more and more pleasing to Him. The Holy Communion We should keep in mind that the graces given through the Holy Sacrifice are actual graces, and that there is something still more precious which is not given directly by the Mass. Actual graces are given to help us to perform acts which will preserve and strengthen the divine life of sanctifying grace. This life is the ultimate end of all our Lord has done and is doing for us. 
It is the degree of this divine life of sanctifying grace which measures both the perfection of our vision of God in heaven and the perfection of our intimacy with Him as the guest of our soul here below. In the divine plan it is before all else the reception of Holy Communion, the partaking of the divine victim that is to confer on us the fullness of this life of sanctifying grace. The act of sacrifice to which we unite ourselves at the consecration is the manifestation of our dependence on God in union with the dependence of Jesus. At that moment especially, the actual graces merited on Calvary stream into our soul. They lead us to still more perfect conformity with our Lord in childlike surrender to our Father in heaven. Unless you become as little children, says Christ, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And then the Holy Communion confers on us, through union with Jesus, a new degree of the divine life in accordance with these dispositions. It is to this consummation the priest looks forward when after the consecration he bows profoundly before the most holy sacrament and humbly beseeches God Almighty through Christ our Lord that as many as shall partake of the most sacred body and blood of thy Son at this altar may be filled with all heavenly graces and blessings. And again, when contemplating the final effect of this sacramental union with Jesus, he prays as he drops into the chalice a particle of the sacred host. May this mingling and consecration of the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ be unto life eternal for us who receive it. Thus the great act of sacrifice concludes with the partaking of the divine victim. We who have looked on the visible manifestation of the unchanged love of Jesus for us are finally united with our great lover in the most intimate of unions. This union with Jesus, although it lasts but a short time, brings with it one great blessing which is to be eternal. The increase in sanctifying grace in communion means an increase in the intimacy of our permanent union with God. God Himself, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost have come to us and made their abode with us. Our union with God, with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost has become more close. We are in a yet more perfect way the permanent living tabernacles of the Most High. Know you not that you are the temple of God? And this union with the Holy Trinity is by its nature to be eternal. The life of glory will be but the development and the perfecting of this life of grace. Hence the canon of the Mass speaks of the holy bread of eternal life and the chalice of everlasting salvation. The explanations given above set before us how the increase in the intimacy of the permanent indwelling of God produced in Holy Communion depends on our dispositions and how the actual graces of the Mass lead us and help us to perfect these dispositions. Realizing these facts, we shall see the advantage of receiving Holy Communion during Mass as the Church desires. This understanding of the relation between Holy Mass and Holy Communion should increase our appreciation of both the one and the other. The magnificence of the act which God has designed as a 
preparation for Holy Communion, and the amazing union with Him for which the sacrifice prepares us, these are wonders beyond all human words. St. Thomas quotes St. Augustine, who explains the union of sacrifice and sacrament by saying, The effect of sacrifice is that we may cling to God in a holy friendship. The condition on our part for entering into these marvelous designs of God's generosity in the holy sacrifice, let us say it again, is the surrender of our soul to God in filial subjection. The sacrifice which is offered externally, says St. Thomas, signifies the interior spiritual sacrifice in which the soul offers itself to God. In other words, offers itself to bear the cross God sends and to spend itself in doing His will. And St. Thomas continues, The soul offers itself in sacrifice to God as its beginning by creation and as its end by beatification. The interior offering is man's willing recognition that he depends on God as his creator and that he looks to God as the source of his final happiness. The fruits of the Holy Mass also include temporal favors which are given by God as means to help us to live our life in conformity with his divine will. Hence it is lawful to have Mass offered for these temporal blessings. It will be very advisable at this stage of our study to consider carefully some points in which all of us are liable to fail in subjection to God. By this failure we render ourselves unfit for perfect participation in the Mass and thus deprive ourselves of the rich graces which are therein at our disposal. If we keep in our heart the slightest resentment against our neighbor, we are not wholly subject to our Father in heaven. If we do not reject all inordinate affections, we are not perfectly subject to God. If we are determined to pursue and secure some gratification which we know is not pleasing to God, we are not subject to Him as we should be. If we yield to that dead apathy which ignores God's law of charity and makes no effort to benefit the souls or bodies of others, we are not using our power of activity as God's dependent creatures should do. In fact, if we look closely, we shall see that all that is wrong in us, all that displeases God in us, may be reduced to our want of profound reverence for the majesty of God and to our unwillingness to accept our position of dependence on Him who drew us out of nothing and who wants us to be His children by adoption and heirs to His kingdom. Those living in religion are wanting in subjection to God and therefore cannot unite perfectly with the holy sacrifice when they deliberately keep possession of anything without due permission, when they are habitually neglectful of rule and have no determination to rectify this disposition, when they have the unresisted tendency to criticize the regulations or line of action of their superiors, this assuming by a subject of the right to judge is the very opposite of the docile dependence in imitation of Jesus, which should characterize all religious. It is the very opposite of the disposition required for sacrifice. And looking outside the circle of our own lives, it's easy to see that the fundamental fault in the lives of most Catholics 
is the want of reverence for God, the want of willing subjection to God and to those who represent God. It is the pride that will not imitate Jesus in his willingness to do all that his Father desires. This it is that prevents them from receiving the spiritual treasures contained in the holy sacrifice. In summary, it is the plan of divine providence that the merits and satisfaction of Calvary are applied to the souls of those who participate in the Mass. The perfection in which these merits are applied depends primarily on the perfection in which the dispositions of the soul are conformed to the dispositions which Christ expresses in the Mass. It also depends on the nearness to the act of sacrifice. Hence, to receive, by offering the Mass, those treasures of grace and satisfaction merited by Christ, we must not only be present and desire to unite ourselves with Him, but we must strive to make our soul conform to His soul. That is, we must place ourselves in a docile, humble, childlike attitude marked by a profound reverence. This involves our casting away all that is displeasing to God, and this demands much from which our fallen nature shrinks. What a pity for us if we do not try each morning at Mass to place our soul in this disposition of filial obedience to God, determining, or at least desiring, through His grace and in spite of our weakness, to give up all that is opposed to His divine will, to do what He wants us to do, in particular to be very charitable and to carry the cross of the day. If we did this, the rich graces merited by Christ on Calvary would be applied to our soul in such abundance that we would advance with great rapidity along the path of perfection. We would live in contented confidence, conscious of God's care for us. We would be generous in doing all to please Him, and the approach of death would be accepted in the same spirit of childlike abandonment to the kind care of our Father. The last words of Jesus, Into thy hands, my Father, I commend my spirit, were a simple, clear, and sweet declaration of the unchanged attitude of His holy soul, which was ever lovingly dependent on the divine will. And if we live in this state of filial dependence on God, our death also will be an act of sweet abandonment to the divine goodness. It will be the final act of surrender, which will initiate us into the full joys of life everlasting. Unless you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. We will continue with the meaning of the Mass on tape number four. Please join us. Continuing now with the meaning of the Mass by Reverend John Kearney, CSSP, and the chapter on the Mass is our sacrifice. Unless you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. God does not want our submission for his own sake, but for ours. In his goodness, he desires our friendship and our eternal happiness, and the union of our will with his 
is the necessary condition both for this friendship, friends will the same things, and for our entering into his happiness in eternity. He that doth the will of my Father who is in heaven, he shall enter the kingdom of heaven. The explanations of the Mass considered as a sacrifice which are given receive a striking confirmation from the very words used by the Church in the celebration of the holy mysteries. These words of venerable antiquity, the date of whose origin is lost in the first centuries, and which the Council of Trent has honored in one of her canons, must be pondered over if we are to grasp the general spirit that animates them. This spirit will then be seen to be the spirit of one who, aspiring to God, recognizes that he is God's creature and God's child, and manifests this spirit in his words. They are therefore words that express the same disposition of, of dependence on God, surrender to him, and desire to be united with him, which is expressed by sacrifice. Reading the ordinary, we cannot but notice the calm and grave tone of the whole. There's little sign of enthusiasm or what might be called emotional piety, although the act around which the text is woven is well calculated to stir our emotions most profoundly. The whole text suggests reverence for the majesty of God. All speaks of and expresses the utter dependence of the creature on the Creator, the utter surrender of the child to the Father who gives him true life. The words refer for the most part to the sacrifice inasmuch as it is offered by the priest in the name of the church, in the name of the faithful, that is, inasmuch as it is a sign of their willing dependence on God. Petition is very prominent. Petition for spiritual favors, for protection from all evil, for eternal life. And petition is the language of a soul which is intimately penetrated by the truth of its complete and absolute dependence on the Creator for everything. These remarks on the general character of the ordinary are borne out by the fact that the word love is not used even once in the text recited every day. The prayers are so characteristically those of a creature who recognizes his dependence on the Creator for this life and the next that ideas of reverence and surrender to God occupy the soul. We have already stated that the sacrifice of the Mass is offered by Christ as head of his mystical body, the Church. This figure, taken from the human body, the head and the members, brings before the simplest mind some idea of the intimate union that exists between the man-God and each of the members of the Church. In virtue of this union, his sacrifice becomes, in an intimate way, the sacrifice of each one who participates in his act. The Mass, therefore, has a social character. Moreover, the Mass is offered by the priest in the name of the whole Church, and especially in the name of all present, considered as a united body. This doctrine implies that the Mass is a social work, a work done in the name of a body whose individual members are bound together by a spiritual bond. The union of the members of the mystical body with one another follows from the union of each with the head. This social character of the Mass appears in the use of the plural all through the ordinary. It appears in the touching prayers which honor the memory of the members of the Church triumphant, through whose merits and prayers we beg to be defended and protected. It finds powerful expression in the prayer 
which ask God to accept the oblation as the oblation of our service and that of thy whole family. It appears in the frequent repetition of the Dominus Vobiscum, which is a manifestation of the desire of the celebrant that all should be united in the Lord. This salutation, the Lord be with you, recalls the greatest of all salutations, that of the angel to Our Lady, the Lord is with thee. The opening of the priest's hands is an expression of affection for all who are united with him in the sublime act of sacrifice. The answer, and with thy spirit, is taken from St. Paul. The Lord Jesus Christ be with thy spirit. The last verse of the last epistle St. Paul wrote. The Dominus Vobiscum should be associated with the prayer that comes immediately after. It is a charitable reminder to all present that they should unite in spirit with the prayer that follows. Chapter 7 In Union with Mary The Mother of Jesus and the Mass The attitude of Our Lady's beautiful soul as she assisted at the Mass offered by St. John and as she stood beneath the cross on Calvary was the same as that which was hers on the day of the Annunciation. The disposition of her soul never changed. There was never a question of reversing or altering it. It became more perfect with her advance in grace. The disposition of that most perfect soul was revealed by her words when the angel of the Incarnation stood before her. At that supreme moment of her life, when God's messenger told her of the design of His goodness in her regard, when He opened to her gaze the secrets of the divine mercy, of the divine condescension. She was troubled, as the gospel says, but she was not changed. Although she knew she was to be drawn so intimately into the divine glory, she was not dazzled by the splendor of her privilege. She never forgot who she was. She had ever before her the fundamental truth that she was God's creature, totally dependent on Him for her existence each moment, that her every faculty was God's gift, Hence, as being absolutely God's property, she was in readiness to do His holy will always and in all things, and she was with full will completely in His hands that He might do with her according to His good pleasure. This attitude of truth, this attitude of humility, she expressed in two phrases, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to Thy word which was God's word, let God do with me as he wills. I am his handmaid, I am his born woman slave, to use the exact word inspired by the Holy Ghost in the original Greek. I am ready to spend myself in doing his will. Let him deal with me according to his good pleasure. Let him fulfill his holy will in my regard. It was in this state of total surrender to the majesty of God that she received the privilege of the divine maternity. Called by God to cooperate in so close a manner in the mystery of the Incarnation, Mary was given to understand with an understanding which corresponded in some way to her perfect conformity with the divine will, what was the characteristic disposition of her divine Son. She understood that His first act was an act of complete oblation of His whole being to his heavenly Father. Behold, I come to do thy will. 
Thus, when the august mystery of the Incarnation was accomplished, Mary's part was to rest in her state of absolute surrender to the Divine Majesty, in union with the absolute surrender of her Divine Son. And as the years passed, in the closest of unions with God made man, her own Son, her grace increased beyond all understanding, her knowledge grew with her grace, and according to this knowledge her humility and her surrender to God were ever reaching to greater perfection. Let us now contemplate the mother of Jesus, assisting at the Mass offered by St. John. There was no change in the attitude of her soul. She was always as she was when the angel spoke to her. She was always the handmaid of the Lord, ever prepared to accomplish His will. She was always ready to accept all that God wished her to accept. In the same wholehearted conformity to the divine will, she had stood beneath the cross when the great sacrifice was being offered, and in the same disposition she assisted at the Mass of St. John. Her soul was perfectly at one with the soul of her divine Son in his total surrender to his heavenly Father, and she united her disposition of complete abandonment with the disposition of her Son. And thus the sacrifice was the expression both of the surrender of Jesus to the Divine Majesty and of the surrender of Mary. When we assist at or offer the holy sacrifice, let us think of the soul of the Mother of Jesus. Let us unite ourselves to her, and let us try to conform our disposition to hers. Behold the handmaid, be it done unto me. The Church recommends this union with our Blessed Lady, she suggests to her priest in preparation for Mass the following prayer. O Mother of love and mercy, most blessed Virgin Mary, I, a miserable and unworthy sinner, fly to Thee with all my heart and all my affection, and I beseech Thy maternal kindness, that as Thou hast stood beside Thy most sweet Son hanging on the cross, so also Thou wouldst in Thy kindness and clemency assist me, a miserable sinner, and all the priests who this day are offering the whole church, that through thy help we may be enabled to offer a worthy and acceptable sacrifice in the presence of the Most High and Undivided Trinity. Amen. Now, since the faithful are co-offerers of the Mass, they can make this prayer their own. In the text of the Mass, the Church frequently names our Blessed Lady, and she invokes her in each important part of the great act. At the beginning, when the priest and the faithful desire to purify themselves from past offenses, they confess their sins to God Almighty and also to the Blessed Mary, ever a virgin. And they beseech the Blessed Mary, ever a virgin, to pray to the Lord God for them. At the offertory, when the priest asks the Holy Trinity to accept the offering which he realizes is the sign and expression of a more or less imperfect surrender to God of himself and those united with him, he adds at once that it is offered in honor of the Blessed Mary, ever a virgin, that she may in her goodness intercede for us in heaven. Again, when the climax of the great act, the canon, begins, at this most solemn moment after praying for the church and for special persons, the priest asked the Lord to be mindful of all those present and of all their needs, and he supports his request 
by saying that they make their act of offering, communicating with and honoring in the first place the ever-glorious Virgin Mary, Mother of our Lord and God, Jesus Christ. Finally, at the end of the canon, after the Our Father, when the Church begins her multiplied petitions for peace, her priest prays the Lord that by the intercession of the blessed and glorious Mary, ever a virgin, he would mercifully grant peace in our days, that we may be always free from sin, the destroyer of peace, and secure from all disturbance the opposite of peace. And concluding the prayer, he asks, that the peace of the Lord may be always with those present. Then directing the prayer to Jesus himself, he asks the Lamb of God to grant us peace, and reminding him that he had said to the apostles, My peace I leave you, my peace I give you. He asks for the whole church that peace which is agreeable to his will. Peace is the tranquility of order, the tranquility that follows order. The order in a human soul that causes peace is the relation of dependence of the creature on the Creator, of the child on the Father. As we've already seen, some degree of the spirit of dependence on God is necessary in order to participate in offering Mass, and the actual graces of the Mass have as end and object to lead our souls to greater perfection of dependence on God, to perfect in us the order of dependence which brings with it the tranquility of order which is peace. The tranquility of order, therefore, is the special grace of the Mass, and hence the Church asks it so repeatedly, and the series of petitions for peace are poured forth to God, assisted by the prayers of Holy Mary. Perfect peace is the result of the total surrender of a soul to God. In our Blessed Lady we have a supreme example of such surrender. It is in union with Our Lady's total surrender to the divine will that we should surrender our own will during Holy Mass. It is through her assistance that we should try to perfect this surrender of ourselves to God. Through her prayers, the actual graces will be so strong that they will carry us on towards the perfection of this surrender. Our union with the Holy Sacrifice, therefore, must be through Mary and with Mary, through her assistance and in union with her total abandonment to the Divine Majesty. Without her motherly help, we can never hope to overcome our inordinate self-seeking so as to give ourselves to God without reserve in union with Jesus, making the divine will our sole guide in all we do. But through her assistance, we can confidently expect, in spite of our weakness, a real advance in the conformity of our will to God's will, a rapid advance in the perfection of our surrender to God in union with the surrender of our Lord. This total surrender of our will to the divine will brings us into the perfection of divine love. The way of conformity of will with God in doing and bearing is truly the way of perfection. It is the way of love. And in this way of surrender to God, Our Lady is both our model and our support. It is by following her and by her help that we can attain to the heights of divine love. Hence, she is truly, as the Church calls her, the mother of fair love. 
For our great consolation, let us treasure the truth that those who in union with Our Lady endeavor to conform their will to the divine will in all things, are walking in the way of divine love. In other words, those souls are fulfilling the great commandment of charity, who with her help aim at doing everything to please God, and who aim at carrying the cross of the day because it is His will that they bear it. The saints are most emphatic in their statement on this point. We've already quoted St. Thomas as saying, By the fact that we reverence and honor God, our souls are subject to Him, and in this their perfection lies. And subjection to God implies the conformity of our will to His will. Perfection consists, says St. Vincent de Paul, in so uniting our will with that of God that His will and ours are properly speaking only one and the same, willing and not willing, and he that excels the most in this point is the most perfect. All our perfection, says St. Alphonsus, consists in the love of our God, infinitely amiable, and the perfection of love is found in the union of our will with the divine. St. Teresa of Avila is particularly clear. Never forget this great truth, namely, that those who are beginning to devote themselves to prayer should first of all endeavor with all their power, with all their courage, and by every possible means to conform their wills to the will of God. In this conformity, believe me, consists the most sublime perfection of the spiritual life. All our spiritual progress is measured by the degree of our conformity to the divine will. And again, she says, the height of perfection does not consist in, but rather in rendering our will so conformed and submissive to God's will that we embrace with our whole heart whatsoever He ordains, and accept as gladly the bitter as the sweet the moment we perceive it to be His good pleasure. When describing love, she repeats the same idea. Love does not consist in great sweetness of devotion, but in a firm determination to please God in all things, in avoiding all that would offend Him as far as possible, in praying for the increase of the honor and glory of His divine Son, and for the growth of the Church. When our will is conformed to the divine will, all that St. Teresa asks will be present. St. Catherine of Siena, when in ecstasy, heard these words, Look at those creatures who are clothed with the mystical garb, that is, the garment of love. Should you ask me who these are, I should reply, said the sweet, lovable word of God, they are another myself, inasmuch as they have lost and denied their own will, and are clothed with mine, are united to mine, are conformed to mine. St. John of the Cross says, God communicates himself most to that soul, that has progressed farthest in love, namely, that has its will in closest conformity with the will of God. And the soul that has attained complete conformity and likeness of will is totally united and transformed in God supernaturally. And in another place, the union of likeness comes to pass when the two wills, namely that of the soul and that of God, are conformed together in one and there is not in the one that is repugnant to the other. And thus, 
when the soul rids itself totally of that which is repugnant to the divine will and conforms not with it, it is transformed in God through love. And the saint goes on to point out the perfection of union to which we should aspire. This is to be understood, he says, of that which is repugnant not only in action, but likewise in habit, so that not only do the voluntary acts of imperfection cease, but the habits of those imperfections, whatever they be, are annihilated. That is, our union of will with God is not perfect until we have rooted out from our soul all disposition to make self the center of our life to the exclusion of God. All these statements of the saints are but repetitions of the words of our Lord. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And again, you are my friends if you do the things that I command you. It is manifest, therefore, that the graces of the Mass lead us to the height of perfect charity, because they lead us to perfect conformity with the divine will. One of the greatest theologians of our time, Father Garajou Lagrange, O.P., puts this fundamental and consoling truth in the following clear and incisive words. The love which is most pure consists as a fact in feeding oneself on the will of God following the example of our Savior, who has said, My food is to do the will of him that sent me to accomplish his work. I seek not my own will, but the will of him that sent me. It is for this that I came down from heaven. There is, in consequence, no way of loving God more noble, more perfect, more pure, than to make the divine will to be our own by accomplishing his will as signified to us, and by abandoning ourselves to his good pleasure. For the souls that follow this way, God is everything. They end by being able to say, My God and my all. God is their center, and their peace is in him alone, by submitting all their aspirations to his good pleasure, and by accepting tranquilly all he does. These strong statements of saints and theologians will be clear if we keep in mind that every soul in grace possesses the infused virtue of charity in a degree proportioned to that grace. This virtue gives the soul a power of eliciting supernatural acts of love, and it gives also an inclination to act through the motive of divine charity, both in working and also in bearing our crosses. Hence, unless there be some obstacle, Divine love will be naturally the motive of all our acts. Whether you eat or drink or whatsoever else you do, do all for the glory of God. The real obstacle to the activity of the virtue of charity and to our making the love of God the motive of our acts is the tendency in us to make our own will to be the directing power of our life in place of the will of God. When therefore we conform our will to the divine will, doing every act because it is his good pleasure, we are eliminating the obstacle. There is nothing in our will to oppose the operation of the virtue of charity, and our very act of conformity becomes an act of love. The virtue of charity resides in the higher faculties of the soul and not in the sensitive faculties. Its existence and its operations are outside the sphere of our consciousness. We can be great lovers of God 
even though we may feel cold as ice. The way of total surrender is indeed the way of love, the way of perfection. It is the little way of the little flower. It is the way that brings us, through Mary's help and in union with Mary, safely and rapidly to that intimacy with God which he has prepared for us. And the Mass is the sign and the declaration that through Jesus and with Jesus and in Jesus we want to live that life of total submission and surrender to our Father in heaven. The Mass and Our Spiritual Life The perfection of our spiritual life is simply the perfection of the sanctifying grace in our soul, and our place in heaven will be according to the perfection of the grace we have at the moment of our death. This grace is God's gift. It is a participation in His divine nature. It gives us the power of returning His love in a way altogether divine. It unites us with Him in intimate friendship. God gives us an increase in this sanctifying grace through the sacraments and through the meritorious works which we do with the aid of His actual graces. But He gives us this grace according to our disposition. The more perfect our disposition, the greater is the sanctifying grace we receive by the sacraments and by our meritorious works. From the above it is manifest that the great endeavor of our spiritual activity is to keep ourselves in this necessary disposition and to try to make it more perfect, seeking the help we need for all this in the sources of actual grace. What now is the disposition on which depends our advance in union with God, and without which even the marvelous sacraments will produce little effect? The all-important disposition is simply the conformity of our soul to the soul of Jesus. The perfection of our spiritual life, our union with God, depends on the perfection of this conformity to Christ our Lord. This conformity implies conformity to the disposition of his soul, and his disposition is one of deepest reverence for and of absolute filial subjection and unreserved surrender to God. This is the one condition, the perfection of which determines the perfection of our spiritual life. To fulfill this condition should be the object of our constant desire and of our constant endeavor, so that we may enter into God's plan in our regard and thus attain to the eternal union with Him which He has prepared for us. St. John of the Cross states all this very clearly. He, God, only permits and wills that there should be one desire where He is, which is to keep the law of God perfectly and to bear upon oneself the cross of Christ. The soul that aspires to naught else than the keeping of the law of the Lord perfectly and the bearing of the cross of Christ will be a true ark containing within itself the true manna, which is God. These words are fundamental. What God wants in the soul is one desire that dominates and directs all other dependent desires. One desire, one all-ruling aspiration, one supreme longing. And this desire, this aspiration, this longing is to subject our will perfectly to the divine will by observing His holy law and by carrying the cross of Christ. Childlike subjection and surrender of our soul is the secret of sanctity, the condition of that union with God 
which is sanctity. In that most perfect of prayers, the Our Father, taught by our Lord Himself, we find the first three petitions are the petitions of a child who makes his father's interest to be his own, who desires everyone to honor his father, who wishes his kingdom, heaven, to come to all men, and his holy will to be done as perfectly on earth as in heaven. The other four petitions are those of one who recognizes his utter dependence on God, and who in consequence asks for his daily needs, who asks forgiveness for the past and protection for the future. They are more characteristically the petitions of a creature. Thus, this wonderful prayer proceeds from a soul who prays both as a creature and a child. It proceeds from the disposition of filial dependence on God, and this disposition, which constitutes the condition of holiness, is the disposition expressed by sacrifice. We should now see clearly how Holy Mass touches the very core of our spiritual life. It both expresses the disposition God requires as the condition of advance in sanctity, and confers on us the graces that help us to perfect this disposition. Let us repeat again the summary of what we've considered. Holy Mass is a public act by which we declare that we look to God as our Father, and want to live as his creature and his child in docile obedience and surrender to his divine will. That we want to live thus in union with our Lord, who always lived in filial surrender to his heavenly Father. And that by this union with Jesus, we expect with confidence to attain to the eternal possession of God. In the Mass, we protest by an outward, symbolic, public, and significant act that we are in heart and soul subject to God in union with the loving subjection of Christ, that we are prepared to fulfill the divine will in our lives even though it cost us death. In so doing, we posit the condition required that God may communicate himself personally to us, and the communion we receive is the sign of this loving communication as the consecration is a sign of our childlike subjection. But how or how can we poor creatures, sinful creatures, ever hope to live in this disposition of childlike docility to God? We're so perverted by original sin and so warped by the consequence of our actual sins that we may easily be led to think it completely beyond our power. There is a complete solution to this difficulty. There is a secure way of doing what seems beyond our power. Our Lady can enable us to do the impossible. Through Mary's help, and in union with Mary, we shall be able to reach a disposition of soul that is completely beyond our unaided efforts. Through Mary, and with Mary, we can make the great surrender of ourselves to our Heavenly Father in union with the surrender of Jesus. An Offering of Holy Mass My Father in Heaven, Father of mercies, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, through the same Jesus, and with him and in him, I offer thee this sacrifice as the acknowledgment of thy supreme dominion and of my total and absolute dependence on thee, my Creator, who by thy divine power supportest me in existence every moment. Through Jesus, and with Jesus, and in Jesus, I offer thee this sacrifice 
as the manifestation and declaration of my desire and determination with the help of thy grace to be subject to thee and docile in the doing of thy divine will as thy creature and thy child in union with the subjection of the same Jesus who always did what was pleasing to thee I offer thee this sacrifice as the sign that I surrender myself to thee so that thou mayest deal with me according to thy good pleasure it is a sign of my readiness to submit to thy will in all things no matter how great be the suffering that such obedience demands even were it death itself and I make this surrender of myself in union with the surrender of himself which Jesus made all through his life even to the moment when he commended his holy soul into thy hands I offer thee this sacrifice in union with the offering of Jesus that his merits may be applied to my soul so that my past refusals to be subject to thee as thy creature and thy child with all their consequences may be so completely blotted out that nothing may stand between my soul and thee my God I offer this sacrifice as a sign and a declaration that in thee alone is the contentment that I crave for that in thee alone I look for and hope for beatitude and peace and perfect rest that thou art the supreme object of my desire and that through the merits of Christ I confidently expect to attain to perfect union with thee thou hast made me for thyself and my heart ever restless can find in thee alone its complete repose I beseech thee my father through the prayers of the Holy Mother of the same Jesus Christ thy son that thou wouldst grant me by his merits the grace to persevere in this childlike docility and this surrender of myself through all the days of my pilgrimage here below so that I may through thy fatherly goodness come safely to the eternal possession of thyself amen eternal life and holy mass st. Thomas reminds us that the soul offers itself in sacrifice to God as our first beginning by creation and our last end by beatification sacrifice expresses not only our acknowledgement that God has dominion over us by creation but also that God is our beatitude that he is the supreme object of our desires the being in whom we hope to rest with eternal contentment sacrifice therefore as we've stated in earlier chapters is the supreme expression of this supreme desire and hence we find in the words of the ordinary clear frequent and touching expression of this longing even when the priest and the server confess that they are sinners they ask that God may bring them to eternal life the collects and the corresponding secrets and post communions are permeated with expressions of desire for the eternal possession of God at the offertory the priest elevating the host prays that both to him and to all Christians it may be a means to salvation in eternal life and he repeats the same idea when offering the chalice for our salvation and that of the whole world a similar thought appears in the various prefaces in the canon to note only the most remarkable expressions the priest asked that God would command that we be numbered in the flock of his elect he speaks of the holy bread of eternal life 
and the chalice of everlasting salvation. He asks that we may be given a part with his apostles and martyrs, and he names several, not in consideration of our merits, but through the bounty of his pardon. He prays that the consecration and the mingling of the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ may be unto eternal life for us who receive it. And gazing at the sacred host, he asks that he may never be separated from the Lord Jesus. Finally, when receiving the body and blood of the Savior, he asks that they may keep his soul unto eternal life. Sacrifice expresses our willing acceptance of our position of absolute dependence on God, our Creator, and our Father. This filial subjection is the necessary condition for our attaining to the eternal possession of God. Sacrifice, then, expresses our desire for that eternal possession and undying union. Chapter 8 in the book The Meaning of the Mass by Father John Kearney A General View of the Prayers of the Mass The Spirit of the Words Used in Holy Mass a study of the Missal brings out the fact that what the Mass itself signifies is also signified by the words said by the priest. What the Mass signifies has been explained in previous chapters. We may summarize as follows. The angelic doctor, St. Thomas, Prince of Theologians, makes the following three statements regarding the signification of sacrifice. They apply to the sacrifice of the Mass. One. The offering of sacrifice is for the purpose of signifying something. The Mass, therefore, is said for the purpose of signifying something. 2. St. Thomas makes the statement more definite, saying, The sacrifice which is offered externally represents the inward spiritual sacrifice by which the soul offers itself to God. The soul offers itself to God in the recognition that from God it came and that it can find its happiness only in returning to God. The Mass, therefore, represents the interior spiritual sacrifice by which the soul offers itself to God as its creator and its beatifier. 3. In yet another place, the Holy Doctor repeats in fuller development, Sacrifice expresses the right relation of the soul to God, and the right relation of the soul to God implies man's recognition that all he has comes from God as from the first beginning, and man's direction of all to God as to the last end. The Mass, therefore, expresses man's willing acknowledgment that from God all comes, in particular man's creation and man's beatification, and man's willingness to direct all his acts according to God's will. For in God alone can man find that perfect happiness for which he craves. From these clear statements of St. Thomas, it is manifest that the Mass is a sign, a sign of the internal acts and dispositions of a human soul, dispositions of obedience and humility. This is true of the very central and essential act of this divine sacrifice. But we know that Holy Church has surrounded the simple act of the sacrifice of the Mass with solemn ceremony and beautiful prayers. It's easy to conclude that the part of the text of the Mass which does not change must have been chosen by the Church under the guidance of the Holy Spirit to express what the Mass expresses 
that is, the right relation of the soul to God. And hence, the natural way for understanding and reciting these prayers is to consider them as a richer expression of the interior sacrifice, which is expressed by the external rite of sacrifice itself. To get a convincing view of the dominating idea expressed by the prayers of the ordinary, we may examine the first prayers of the three great divisions in the action of Holy Mass, the offertory, the canon, including the consecration, and the communion. And we will do that on side B of this tape. Please join us. Continuing now with The Meaning of the Mass by Reverend John Kearney, CSSP, and the chapter on the prayers of the Mass. To get a convincing view of the dominating idea expressed by the prayers of the ordinary, we may examine the first prayers of the three great divisions in the action of Holy Mass. In these prayers, God is addressed with such epithets as manifest our faith in Him as the absolute supreme Lord. At the offertory, we address Him as omnipotent, eternal, living, and true, as the giver of eternal life. At the preface to the canon, we address Him as Holy Lord, Father Almighty, Eternal God, whom the angels worship, crying out, Holy, 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 whose glory fills the heavens and the earth. Before communion, God made man is addressed as taking away the sins of the world, as the giver of peace and of eternal life. In these same prayers, the priest and those who with him offer sacrifice speak of themselves as totally dependent on God. At the offertory, they speak of themselves as unworthy servants, guilty of innumerable sins, faults, and negligences, dependent on God for salvation and eternal life. At the preface to the canon, they speak of their obligation to give thanks always and in all places. All blessings have come from God. At the communion, they speak of their dependence on God-made man for peace, for pardon of past iniquities, for protection from all future evils, for the grace to keep in his friendship, and to be preserved from eternal separation. They ask that all, unworthy as they are, their receiving of Holy Communion may not, by his mercy, displease him, but may be a safeguard and a medicine for the soul. One dominant idea stands out, that God is supreme, and man is utterly dependent on him for everything. The prayers express emphatically and in a loving childlike spirit that God is the source and the beginning of all that man has, and that he is that end whose possession will alone satisfy man's craving for happiness. The text of the ordinary, therefore, expresses the same ideas as the act of sacrifice itself. They express the attitude of soul in which we should approach and participate in the sacrifice of our Savior. And it is in this spirit that the prayers should be recited. All these prayers end with the words, Through Christ our Lord, because it is only through Him and in union with Him that our acts and expressions of docile submission are acceptable to our Father in heaven. This dominant idea of God's majesty and our own willing dependence as His children 
should always be carried forward to the thought of our final union with Him in happiness. Our surrender to God here is a means to the more perfect union with Him. In this union, and only in this union, all our desires, all our cravings, will be perfectly satisfied. For Thyself Thou hast created us, O Lord, and our hearts are restless till they rest in Thee. The Ordinary and the Proper In the text of the Mass we have the words that refer to the sacrifice, they are always nearly the same, and those that refer to the feast of the day. The former constitute the ordinary of the Mass, the latter the proper. The words used by the priest at Mass thus form, as it were, two parallel streams. They express two parallel lines of thought. These two lines of thought are intimately related to one another. The ordinary is the expression of the state of soul one should be in when offering Mass, a disposition of profound reverence and childlike submission to God in union with the dispositions of Jesus. The proper, on the other hand, puts before us thoughts which are calculated to help us to place our souls in this disposition and to keep them so. In the proper of the Mass, either our Lord in His mysteries, His Blessed Mother, the angels, or the saints with the special characteristics of their lives come before us as an example, an encouragement, an inspiration, or as manifestations of the goodness of God. Thus we are led to thank God for the past, to ask Him for all we need for this life and the next, to acknowledge our dependence on Him in everything, to resolve to please Him in all things. In a word, we are led to realize and accept our position as God's children and as destined to share His eternal happiness. All this implies a disposition of filial subjection and loving surrender to God, which disposition makes us conform to Christ and capable of uniting ourselves with His sacrifice. The spirit of the proper is condensed, as it were, in the collect. The first part of the collect refers to God, and the words used about Him manifest profound reverence, while the second part, by words of petition for a favor suggested by the feast, expresses how absolutely we depend on Him for our present needs and for our eternal happiness. The words of the ordinary should be carefully and prayerfully considered. The number of Catholics who use the Missal at Holy Mass is now considerable. They read the words of the ordinary at the same time as the priest says them. These words placed on the lips of the priest by the Church during Holy Mass have to be recited rather rapidly both by the priest and by those who use the Missal. Hence, for those who use the Missal every day, there may be a danger that the words of the ordinary be read without the realization that they are permeated by the one great idea which is expressed by the sacrifice, and without understanding how each prayer is linked with those that precede as also with those that follow. In consequence, the words may be recited in a mechanical manner. The following study of the ordinary is intended to be a help to better understanding and a more prayerful reading of the text. This result will be most surely attained if the explanations we give are used as a help 
when the text of the ordinary is made the subject of mental prayer. The points we develop in the following chapter are therefore entitled Materials for Meditation on the Text of the Ordinary of the Mass. A great many excellent books have been written on the text of the ordinary. The history of each prayer has been set forth. The depth of devotion in the individual words has been explained. The origin of the ceremonies has been made clear. Those who love the holy sacrifice will naturally be drawn to study these books and will do so with profit. The following chapter has a different object. We take the words said by the priest as given to us by the church and as praised by the Council of Trent. We give a simple explanation of the line of thought they suggest so that when saying them the fundamental idea of sacrifice may be kept in mind and the sequence of thought as one prayer follows another may be easy and natural. These explanations of the text will make it clear that the meaning of the act of sacrifice is found all through the prayers presented by the church. Some special ceremonies associated with the ordinary. During Mass, the priest kisses the altar frequently. This is a mark of respect for the altar, which is the throne of the most blessed sacrament, and an expression of affection for Christ himself, of whom the altar stone is a figure. He is the stone which was rejected, but which became the chief cornerstone of the building. You are fellow citizens with the saints and the domestics of God, says St. Paul, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. The priest holds his hands extended when he prays. It is an attitude of supplication or petition, and as we've seen, nearly all the prayers are prayers of petition. The posture recalls that of Christ on the cross, who prayed with arms extended. At the close of the prayer, the hands are joined to signify an increase of fervor in our petition. This is so natural that anyone praying fervently would do the same. The priest raises his eyes to heaven several times during Mass. This he does in imitation of our Lord, who, as the Gospel records, acted thus. The sign of the cross is frequently made three times together. This is to remind us of the Most Holy Trinity, whose absolute dominion is expressed by the Holy Sacrifice. The priest bows profoundly before the altar. This is a manifestation of reverence for God, adoration of His Majesty, recognition of man's absolute dependence, all of which, united in one disposition of soul, are expressed by sacrifice. The sign of the cross over the host and the chalice is made before the consecration to remind us that by the merits of Christ crucified we expect blessings. Hence the word bless is always used after the consecration to remind us that it is the same body that was attached to the cross. The significance of certain words used by the church in the Mass. In her liturgy, the church uses words with a certain freedom when there is no doubt as to her meaning. Thus, for instance, in the Requiem Mass, she speaks of the judgment of the departed soul as if it had not yet taken place. After the consecration at Mass, she speaks of the Blessed Sacrament as the holy bread of eternal life, although there is no bread there. The word gift 
in the early centuries when the faithful received holy communion under the species of both bread and wine it was customary for them to bring and to present at the offertory the bread and wine required for the holy sacrifice on account of this the material of the sacrifice was called a gift or oblation or present the gift of the faithful all through the text of the prayers during the offertory the word gift has this meaning but the church continues to use the words gift or present or oblation in the same sense during the canon of the mass up to and even after the consecration the word gift is used thus by the church because although only the appearances of bread and wine remain the faithful have given the bread and wine the word sacrifice in sacrifice as said already we distinguish the body of the sacrifice that is the sign or act which signifies the disposition of the will the soul of the sacrifice that is the disposition of the will which is expressed the disposition is called the interior sacrifice the act which expresses this is called the exterior sacrifice in practice we find that the word sacrifice is used during mass for both elements taken together and also for each taken separately moreover the word sacrifice is sometimes applied to the matter the bread and wine which is being prepared for use in the act of sacrifice when in referring to holy mass we speak of an acceptable sacrifice or when we ask god to accept our sacrifice we refer to our interior sacrifice in other words our disposition and we ask god to perfect our disposition of surrender to him and of union with our lord's disposition so that our sacrifice may be on this account acceptable or to be pleased in his goodness with the expression of our real though imperfect subjection and union the word to offer the meaning of the word offer when used in relation to sacrifice has been explained in the text but on account of its importance it seems advisable to give some further details the word offer comes from the latin offero towards and to carry hence it means to bring forward towards to bring forward to exhibit the past participle of pharaoh is latum hence the words oblatio oblation meaning the thing brought forward the greek words which are found in the book of leviticus and the epistle of saint paul to the hebrews which are translated in the vulgate by offero means simply to bring forward to set before as we've seen the expression to offer when used in relation to sacrifice means to bring forward to lay before god this act is symbolical it expresses god's ownership of the things brought forward and of all creatures the word is used in the same sense when we speak of offering prayers thus the church says we offer thee o lord our prayers and our gifts we lay both before thee we bring both before thee the priests of the old law laid the victim or the blood at the altar the priests of the new law laid jesus on the altar the word offer has other meanings also we say to offer an insult to offer an apology to offer violence to offer resistance to offer to go on a difficult mission to offer to die for another to offer my actions to god 
to offer my sufferings to God. These examples show that the word offer is used in the sense of doing or saying in the presence of another something special which expresses the state of the will of the speaker or doer. It expresses a deliberate willingness. Thus our Lord is said to have offered himself on the cross because he willingly accepted death. To quote St. Thomas, Christ exposed himself to death of his own free will. For this reason he is said to have offered himself. To offer my sufferings to God means that I wish to bear them in God's presence, because it is God's will that I bear them. I offer myself to God when I express my willingness to do His holy will in all things, and to bear in union with Christ the daily cross which He wishes me to bear. When we speak of transferring the possession of something to another person, the word offer is not quite the same as give. To give implies the actual transference of the possession. The thing in question begins to belong to the recipient. To offer means to propose to give, to ask the other person to accept, to lay the thing before him. As regards Holy Mass, to offer may refer to the act of presenting the material of the sacrifice, that is, the bread and wine, to the act of consecration by which Jesus is laid on the altar. The word victim. In the sacrifice of the old law, the animal that was killed was called the victim. It was a figure of Christ on the cross. Our Lord on the cross was a victim. He let himself be crucified. He accepted to suffer. He was a willing victim. He was a victim of love because it was his love that made him to be willing to suffer. In the Mass, our Lord is still called the victim because he suffered on the cross, and the Mass is the perpetuation of the sacrifice of Calvary. Our interior sacrifice, which is expressed by the Mass, implies the destruction in us of all that is opposed to our total surrender to God. It implies destruction, therefore, and hence we ourselves are the victim of the interior sacrifice. In ordinary language, the word victim is used of a person who is made to suffer. The word priest. It is the priest who unites together the interior sacrifice and the exterior sacrifice. That is, it is the priest who by his words or acts gives the spiritual meaning to the exterior sign. He makes the ritual ceremony to be a sacred sign of divine worship. The priest, by doing this, offers the sacrifice. Our Lord, by his words before the Passion, and especially at the Last Supper, gave the spiritual meaning to his death. He was, therefore, the priest of the great sacrifice. Chapter 9 Materials for Meditation on the Prayers of the Mass We may divide the text of the ordinary into seven parts, the text itself suggests a division. The preparation from the beginning of Mass to the end of the Creed. The offertory from the beginning of the offertory to the end of the secret prayers. The preface from the beginning of the preface to the end of the Sanctus. The canon from the Sanctus to the end of the little elevation. 
the Our Father, and the beginning of the prayers for peace, from the beginning of the potter to the end of the Pax Domini, the communion, from the Agnus Dei to the end of the communion of the faithful, and the thanksgiving, from the communion to the end. The following is the line of treatment. After a general introduction to each part, we shall consider the prayers, and for each one, after the Latin title, the first words, we will give an explanation of the content of the prayer, and then give the text. Thus the text can be read in the light of the explanation. In a few cases, a short note is inserted in the text of the prayer. The explanations given before the text are in most cases very simple as complicated or subtle ideas normally give little help to prayer. The Preparation From the Beginning of Mass to the End of the Creed The text of the ordinary, in this first part, is governed by the idea of preparing the soul to enter more fully into the disposition of reverence, of filial subjection, and loving surrender to God in union with the unreserved surrender to the will of His Father which was the characteristic of our Lord. The following short paragraphs give a general idea of the sequence of thought in the first part of the Mass. Consideration The Psalm Judica Mei Deus is a meditation or contemplation on the work we're going to do and a petition for the help which we realize to be so necessary. Contrition The Confitior, with the prayers said ascending the altar, and the Kyrie eleison are petitions for pardon. Sin is the opposite of the filial submission to God which is expressed by sacrifice. Joy and gratitude. The Gloria in excelsis breaks in, as it were, in the general line of thought followed in this first section of the ordinary. It is a cry of joy drawn forth by the adorable goodness of God manifested in the Incarnation. Petition. After the Gloria, the Church makes solemn petition in the Collects for spiritual favors, all of which lead the soul to perfect her disposition of dependence on God as a creature and a child. Instruction Instructions and exhortations from the Old and New Testaments follow the Collects. These are contained in the Epistle, the Gradual, and the Gospel. They likewise lead us to place our soul in the disposition of reverence for and docility to God. Faith. The first part of the ordinary concludes with the creed, which is the great fundamental act of childlike reverence for God. In the act of faith, we willingly subject to God our mind, our highest faculty, by willingly believing all He has revealed, just because we have His word for it. Judicame Deus. This psalm expresses the dispositions of soul which should be found in the priest about to offer the holy sacrifice, and in the souls of all who are united with him. It contemplates God as the source of all blessings, as the source of grace, of strength, of perfect happiness. And it contemplates God's human creature as conscious of sinfulness, of weakness in face of its spiritual enemies, and hence oppressed by sadness, yet confident in God and desirous of casting off the old man and of offering to God the supreme sacrifice. Antiphon 
I will go unto the altar of God, to God who giveth joy to my youth. Judge me, O God, and distinguish my cause, this sacrifice, from the nation that is not holy, from the unjust and deceitful man, my sinful self, deliver me. For thou art God, art my strength, why hast thou cast me off? And why do I go sorrowful whilst the enemy afflicteth me? Send forth thy light and thy truth. They have conducted me and brought me to thy holy mount, the altar, and to thy tabernacles. And I will go on to the altar of God, to God who giveth joy to my youth. I will praise thee on the harp, O God, my God. Why art thou sad, O my soul? And why dost thou disquiet me? Hope in God, for I will yet praise him, who is the salvation that I look for, and my God. The Confidior and the Prayers that Follow The account already given of the nature of sacrifice proves clearly the need of contrition when we prepare to celebrate or unite with the celebrant in Holy Mass. Contrition implies the redirection of our will towards God and away from sin. Hence the priest and the server, who represents the people, both say the confitior. The priest, going up to the altar, says, Take away from us our iniquities, we beseech thee, O Lord. When he kisses the altar, he asks pardon for his past sins through the intercession of the saints, Aramus te domine. And after the introit, he again asks for mercy in the nine petitions of the Kyrie eleison three to the Father, three to the Son, three to the Holy Ghost. The old Irish custom of striking the breast at the elevation expresses the instinctive understanding of the simple faithful that to offer the sacrifice we should reject all that is opposed to our obedience to God, for sacrifice is a sign of our soul's submission. We cannot be contrite except by God's grace, Hence the priest, before he begins the confitior, says, Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. I confess to Almighty God, to Blessed Mary Ever-Virgin, to Blessed Michael the Archangel, to Blessed John the Baptist, to the holy apostles Peter and Paul, to all the saints, and to you, brethren, that I have sinned exceedingly in thought, word, and deed, through my fault, through my fault, through my most grievous fault. Therefore I beseech the Blessed Mary Ever-Virgin, Blessed Michael the Archangel, Blessed John the Baptist, the Holy Apostles Peter and Paul, all the saints, and you, brethren, to pray to the Lord our God for me. May the Almighty God be merciful to us and forgive us our sins and bring us to eternal life. Amen. May the Almighty and merciful Lord grant us pardon, absolution, and remission of our sins. Amen. Thou wilt turn to us, O God, and give us life, and thy people will rejoice in thee. Show us, O Lord, thy mercy, and grant us thy salvation. O Lord, hear my prayer, and let my cry come unto thee. The Lord be with you, and with thy spirit. The prayers when ascending the altar. Take away from us, we beseech thee, O Lord, our iniquities, that we may be worthy to enter with pure minds into the Holy of Holies. Through Christ our Lord, amen. We beseech thee, O Lord, 
by the merits of thy saints, whose relics are here. He then kisses the altar, and of all the saints, that thou wouldst deign to forgive me all my sins. Amen. The introit. This belongs to the proper. Kyrie eleison. Lord be merciful. Christ be merciful. Lord be merciful. The Gloria in Excelsis Deo. In this angelic hymn, we praise each of the three divine persons. We adore, we give thanks, we beg for mercy, we ask that our prayers be received. Thus we mention the four ends for which we offer Mass. Glory be to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men of good will. We praise Thee, we bless Thee, we adore Thee, we glorify Thee. We give Thee thanks for Thy great glory, O Lord God, Heavenly King, God the Father Almighty. O Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son, O Lord God, Lamb of God, Son of the Father, who takest away the sins of the world, have mercy on us. Who takest away the sins of the world, receive our prayer. Who sittest at the right hand of the Father, have mercy on us. For Thou alone art holy, Thou alone art Lord, Thou alone art Most High, O Jesus Christ. Together with the Holy Ghost, in the glory of God the Father, Amen. The Collects, the Epistle, the Gradual, the Alleluia, and the Gospel all belong to the proper. The Credo. The Creed should be said with a firm soul, but in a spirit of humble gratitude. Our faith is God's gift. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, and born of the Father before all ages, God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, by whom all things have been made who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and became incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary, and was made man. He was crucified also for us, suffered under Pontius Pilate, and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures, and he ascended into heaven. He sitteth at the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, of whose kingdom there shall be no end. And in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and Giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father and the Son, who together with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church, I confess one baptism for the remission of sins, and I expect the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. The Offertory From the beginning of the Offertory to the end of the Secret Prayers The prayers of the ordinary during the Offertory are concerned with two main ideas, the preparation and the presentation to God of the matter, the bread and wine, and the preparation of the souls of the priest and of those united with him for the interior sacrifice. The Offertory closes with the Secret Prayers. Preparation for the External Sacrifice In the early centuries, the faithful brought forward and laid before the priest the bread and wine needed for the sacrifice 
and for the communion of the faithful, and also for the support of the priest. Hence this part of the Mass got the name Offertory. We read in the office of St. Wenceslaus, King, that he appreciated this early custom so much that with his own hands he sowed and reaped the wheat and pressed the juice from the grapes so as to have a large share in preparing the bread and wine. A reminder of this beautiful custom is found in the Mass of the consecration of a bishop. The priest, about to be consecrated, presents to the consecrating bishop two loaves of bread and two small barrels of wine. The external sacrifice for which we prepare at the offertory is the expression of the wholehearted surrender of Jesus to the will of his heavenly Father, and also the expression of our surrender which we unite with that of Jesus. Unfortunately, on account of the perversity in us through original and actual sin, the subjection of our will to God is seldom perfect, and we are seldom perfectly united to Jesus. Hence we frequently, during the Mass, ask God to accept our sacrifice, that is, to be pleased in His goodness with the expression of our imperfect dispositions. This petition implicitly asks that God would perfect these dispositions. We know, of course, that God will accept our sacrifice if it represents sincere, although imperfect, subjection, and if this subjection is united with that of Jesus. But we can ask God for what we know He will grant, just as Jesus asked His Father to glorify Him. Susipi Sancte Pater The first prayer directed to our Father in heaven is said by the priest when holding up the host on the paten. The paten is the gold plate on which the host is laid. In this prayer the thought of the priest envisages the consecration for which he is preparing, and the graces of contrition and forgiveness and salvation which are given at that moment to all Christians. Accept, O Holy Father, Almighty Eternal God, this spotless victim, which I, thy unworthy servant, offer unto thee, my God, the living and true, for my own innumerable sins, faults, and negligences and for all here present, as also for all faithful Christians, living and dead, that it may avail both me and them unto salvation in life eternal. Amen. We pray for persons and also for favors. Deus qui. In preparing the chalice, the priest puts a drop of water into the wine. The union of water and wine recalls the goodness of God in assuming our human nature the mystery of the Incarnation, and also our intimate union with Him. We are made partakers of the divine nature by grace. O God, who in a marvelous manner didst create and ennoble man's being, and in a manner still more marvelous didst renew it, grant that by the mystery of this water and wine we may be made partakers of His divine nature, who hath deigned to share our human nature, Jesus Christ, thy Son, our Lord, who with thee, in the unity of the Holy Ghost, livest and reignest God forever and ever. Amen. Offeremus Tibi. The priest then presents the chalice, as he did the host. His thought and his words again go forward to the consecration, to the sacrifice of Jesus with which the Church unites her internal sacrifice of childlike subjection. 
This sacrifice, according to the dispositions of men, will bring the grace of salvation to the whole world. We offer unto thee, O Lord, the chalice of salvation, beseeching thy clemency, that it may ascend before thy divine majesty with an odor of sweetness for our salvation and for that of all the world. Amen. The Preparation of the Internal Sacrifice Having prepared and presented to God the matter to be consecrated, the priest turns to the preparation of his own soul and the souls of all who are united to him, the perfecting of the disposition of filial submission to and a dependence on God, which is expressed by sacrifice. To this internal sacrifice are referred the remaining prayers of the offertory. In Spiritu Humilitatis Humbly bowing down before the crucifix, the priest asks that God may perfect our dispositions of humility and contrition and childlike submission to His Majesty, so that our sacrifice, which is the expression of this disposition, may be pleasing to Him. The words used indicate simply and clearly the fundamental dispositions required for and expressed by sacrifice. In the spirit of humility, and with a contrite heart, may we be accepted by Thee, O Lord, and thus may our sacrifice be so offered in Thy sight today that it may be pleasing unto Thee, O Lord God. Veni Sanctificator Raising his eyes and his hands to heaven, the priest makes the sign of the cross over the host and the chalice. While so doing, he asks God for the blessings which the Mass brings so abundantly the blessings merited by our Savior. The Gospel told us that Jesus Himself blessed the bread and wine before the consecration. Come, O Sanctifier, Almighty, Everlasting God, and bless, make a source of blessings, this sacrifice made ready for the honor of Thy holy name. Lavabo the perfection of our union of will with God implies our aversion from and our rejection of any attachment to sin, even to the smallest sin. The sincere desire for this disposition is expressed by the priest washing the tips of his fingers, not his hands, while saying the words inspired by the Holy Ghost which the Church has chosen. The psalm expresses the desire for purity the appreciation of the privilege of being engaged in the worship of God, and also the need of divine protection. I will wash my hands among the innocent, and will compass thy altar, O Lord, that I may hear the voice of praise and tell of all thy wondrous works. I have loved, O Lord, the beauty of thy house, and the place where thy glory dwelleth. Destroy not my soul, O God, with the wicked, nor my life with men of blood in whose hands are iniquities, their right hand is filled with gifts. But as for me, I have walked in my innocence. Rescue me, and have mercy on me. My foot hath stood in the right way. In the churches I will bless thee, O Lord. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Sociti Sancta Trinitas. The Mass is a sacrifice and also a memorial of the Passion and the celebrant bowing down before the altar asks God to accept, to be pleased with, our act inasmuch as it is a memorial. 
He then asks for eternal salvation through the prayers of the Blessed Virgin and the saints, whom he honors by associating them with the holy sacrifice. Receive, O Holy Trinity, this oblation, which we make to thee in memory of the passion, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, and in honor of the Blessed Mary, ever a virgin, of Blessed John the Baptist, of the holy apostles Peter and Paul, and of those whose relics are here, and of all the saints, that it may be available to their honor and to our salvation. And may they whose memory we celebrate on earth vouchsafe to intercede for us in heaven. Through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. Orate Fratris. When the priest has asked the prayers of the blessed in heaven that God may accept the expression of the humble docility of all present and of the whole church, he turns to the faithful and asks their prayers also, saying, Brethren, pray that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God the Father Almighty. The server, in the name of the brethren, prays as requested. May the Lord receive the sacrifice from thy hands to the praise and glory of his name, to our benefit and to that of all his holy church. This clear public statement shows that all present form one with the priest in offering sacrifice. The Mass is a social act. The word sacrifice, as the prayers indicate, means first of all the interior sacrifice, the interior disposition of each one present. This disposition should be similar to the disposition of Christ and should be united to his disposition. This is possible because he is the head and we are the members of one mystic body. He is the vine and we are the branches. The Secret Prayers the offertory ends with the secret prayers. These prayers unite the ideas of the preparation of the matter and the preparation of the soul of the priest, and they ask God to be pleased with the offerings of the faithful and to give his blessings. As examples, consider the secret in the Mass of St. James. We beseech thee, O Lord, that the blessed passion of St. James the Apostle may render the offerings of the people pleasing to thee and the secret of the last Sunday after Pentecost. Be propitious, O Lord, to our supplications, and while accepting the offerings and prayers of thy people, convert all our hearts to thyself, that being free from earthly desires, we may pass to heavenly longings. The meaning of the Mass and meditation on prayers of the Mass will continue on tape number five. Please join us. We continue now with The Meaning of the Mass by Reverend John Kearney, CSSP. Materials for Meditation on the Holy Sacrifice and its Relation to Our Spiritual Life. The Preface From the Beginning of the Preface to the End of the Sanctus Before beginning the canon, Holy Church, in a dialogue between the priest and the server, calls on the people to unite more intimately with her. Then, in the preface, she proclaims that it is, in truth, just and salutary, to thank God in all places and at all times, through Christ our Lord. Several prefaces then put before us one or more of the adorable perfections and mercies of God. We give here the preface of the Blessed Trinity, and thus the spirit of thanksgiving passes into the spirit of praise. The conclusion of the preface varies. 
In some cases, it refers to the praise given to God by the angels, who ever sing, Holy, Holy, Holy. In others, it refers to the praise given by ourselves, who unite with the angels in singing the eternal, Holy, Holy, Holy. In others, again, we ask God to command that we be admitted after this life to sing with the angels the hymn which on earth in lowly praise we now repeat. The text of the preface expresses the overflowing of the soul in gratitude and praise, which springs from the contemplation of the marvelous works of God, and especially of our Lord's sacrifice, with which even we are being associated. Each word of this sublime act of thanksgiving, of contemplation, and of praise should be pondered over so that we may enter into its spirit when we repeat it at the Mass. The Preface of the Holy Trinity It is truly meet and just, right and salutary, that we should always and in all places give thanks to Thee, O Holy Lord, Father, Almighty, Eternal God, who together with Thy only begotten Son and the Holy Ghost art one God and one Lord, not in a singleness of one person, but in a trinity in one substance. For that which on Thy revelation we believe about Thy glory, the same we hold about Thy Son, the same about the Holy Ghost, without difference or distinction, so that in acknowledging the true and everlasting Godhead we shall adore distinction in persons and unity in being and equality in majesty whom the angels and archangels, the cherubim also, and seraphim praise, and cease not to cry out daily with one voice, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of thy glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The text of the preface leads into and makes one with the Sanctus, and both together are linked with the opening of the canon by the word, therefore. The sequence of thought is as follows. It is truly just and salutary to give thanks and to give praise through Christ our Lord, therefore, and we, etc. Now the canon, from the end of the Sanctus to the end of the little elevation. The canon is the most solemn part of the Mass. All the prayers refer most particularly to the act of sacrifice. Hence, on Good Friday, when no sacrifice is offered, these prayers are all omitted. In the first part of the canon, up to the consecration, the prayers speak of the persons who join in the Mass and those for whom the Mass is offered, mentioning the special graces asked for through the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary and the saints. A renewed petition is made that God may accept the sign and expression of our sincere, if imperfect, surrender to Him. Dei Getur. This long prayer is printed in several divisions. In the first division, expressions are used which refer to the bread and wine not yet consecrated. In this sense, the priest asks God to accept what has been given to be used in sacrifice and to bless with the blessing of transubstantiation and thus to make a source of blessing for us, the bread and wine, which, because given by the faithful, he calls gifts and presents, and which, looking forward to the consecration, he calls spotless sacrifices. Therefore, we humbly pray and entreat thee, O most clement Father, through Jesus Christ thy Son, our Lord, 
that thou wouldst accept and bless these gifts, these presents, these holy, stainless sacrifices. In primus quae tibi offeremus, the priest, or rather Christ, using the ministry of the priest, is about to offer, to lay before the divine majesty, his body and blood in the appearance of death, as a sign of his filial and unchanged dependence on God. The two separate consecrations which separately place the body of Christ and his blood on the altar place him there in the appearance of death. His acceptance of death is eternal. Those who unite with him also recognize their dependence, in particular their dependence on God for all future needs. Descending to details, the priest refers to the needs of the church, to the needs of the pope, of the bishop, of all the faithful in general which we offer unto thee in the first place for the holy Catholic Church, that thou wouldst deign to give it peace, to guard, unite, and rule it throughout the world, and for thy servant, our Pope, and our Bishop, also for all Orthodox believers and professors of the Catholic and Apostolic faith. Memento Domine, the commemoration of the living the priest next directs his thoughts to and prayers for those for whom he offers Mass, and for those who are actually taking part in offering the sacrifice. The outline of the thought expressed in this final division of the prayer is as follows. It is one long sentence. Be mindful, O Lord, of thy servants, and he names them, and of all here present for whom we offer this Mass, or who themselves offer this sacrifice, and then follows the objects of their petitions, and of those who now pay their vows to thee, fulfill their promise or intention of having Mass offered, all of whom in this sacrifice are communicating with and honoring the glorious ever-Virgin Mary, Mother of our Lord and God Jesus Christ, and also the saints, through whose merits and prayers grant, O Lord. The verb on which the whole depends is to be mindful, the verbs on which communicating with depends immediately are we offer and who pay their vows and who offer. As we recite the names of the glorious saints who are named here in the canon, we should recall that they were all great servants of God, great lovers of Him. They all died for Christ, and by so doing they expressed their total submission to His holy will. Only martyrs are named in the canon. Be mindful, O Lord, of thy servants, men and women, and he names them, and of all here present whose faith and devotion are known unto thee, for whom we offer to thee, or who themselves offer to thee, this sacrifice of praise for themselves and all those dear to them, for the redemption of their souls, for the hope of their salvation and safety, and of those who pay their vows to thee, eternal God, the living and the true being united with and honoring the memory, in the first place, of the glorious ever-Virgin Mary, Mother of our Lord and God, Jesus Christ, as also of the blessed apostles and martyrs, Peter and Paul, Andrew, James, John, Thomas, James, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Simon, and Thaddeus, Linus, Cletus, Clement, Sixtus, Cornelius, Cyprian, Lawrence, Chrysogonus, John and Paul, Cosmas and Damian, and of all thy saints, by whose merits and prayers mayest thou grant that we may be always guarded by the help of thy protection. Through the same Christ our Lord. Amen.
Ankegetur. Because we are united to the saints, we therefore, Egetur, with all the more confidence, ask God to accept the sign of our submission to him, to grant us peace in this life, to save us from hell, and to give us the happiness of heaven hereafter. Here the priest spreads his hands over the host and the chalice. We therefore beseech thee, O Lord, graciously to accept this oblation made by us thy servants, and also by all thy family. Mayest thou dispose our days in thy peace, and grant that we be saved from eternal damnation, and numbered in the flock of thine elect. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Kium Ablatium We are conscious of our imperfect dispositions, but we ask the Most Clement Father to make this oblation, this expression of our imperfect servitude, to be blessed, a source of blessings, to be recorded in heaven, ad scriptum, to be confirmed, ratified in heaven, and by perfecting our dispositions, to make it to be the expression of a service which is according to a spiritually enlightened reason enhanced to be acceptable in his eyes, so that the bread and wine will become to our advantage the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. St. Thomas explains this difficult prayer as follows. Vouchsafe to make this oblation blessed, that we may receive a blessing, enrolled that we may be enrolled in heaven, ratified that we may be incorporated in Christ, reasonable that we may be stripped of our animal sense, acceptable that we who in ourselves are displeasing may by its means be made acceptable to his only Son. And mayest thou deign, O God, in all respects, to make this oblation to be blessed, to be recorded, to be confirmed, to be reasonable, and to be acceptable, so that to our advantage it may become the body and blood of thy most beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Qui Prati At this solemn moment, the Church, in the words she uses, shows forth the reverent dispositions of our Lord before his heavenly Father, and his generosity to men. The whole prayer breathes this reverence and generosity. Every word should be meditated. Who the day before he suffered took bread into his holy and venerable hands, and having lifted up his eyes towards heaven to thee, O God, his almighty Father, giving thanks to thee, he blessed it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat ye all of this for this is my body. The first genuflection of the priest, which follows immediately, is an act of faith in the real presence. When the sacred host is raised, we can ask our Savior, through the Blessed Mother, for the gift of divine love. The second genuflection is an act of adoration. Simile modo. This prayer likewise expresses the reverence and generosity of our Lord with special reference to the sins of men, for the forgiveness of which he was so willing to shed his precious blood, obedient unto death, even unto the death of the cross. In like manner, after he had supped, taking also this excellent chalice into his holy and venerable hands, giving thanks also, he blessed and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and drink ye all of this, for this is the chalice of my blood, 
of the new and eternal testament, the mystery of faith, which shall be shed for you and for many unto the remission of sins. And as often as ye shall do these things, ye shall do them in memory of me. The first genuflection is again an act of faith in the real presence. At the elevation of the chalice we may ask for contrition for all our sins, so that the blood of Christ may not be shed for us in vain. It was shed unto the remission of sins. The second genuflection is likewise an act of adoration. In the second part of the canon there are three prayers, as we know, from the three conclusions. They express and should be said in a spirit of childlike reverence for God our Father, on whom we absolutely depend for everything, including our own continued existence. This reverence is manifested in the text. We speak of God's most excellent majesty, and we speak of ourselves as slaves, who humbly beseech the Almighty God. The first prayer is printed in three divisions. Undi et memoris. This first division is linked up with the previous words, Ye shall do them in memory of me, by the conjunction, Wherefore. It recalls that the Mass is a memorial of the Passion, and also a sacrifice in which we lay on the altar before God a spotless victim, which is his own special gift. God so loved the world as to give his only begotten Son. The prayer mentions the resurrection and ascension, which were manifestations of God's good pleasure in the obedience and charity of the Passion. In this prayer the priest speaks in a special way as representative of the whole church. This is manifested by the words, As also thy holy people. The sacrifice which he offers in the name of the whole church expresses its humble submission to God in union with the absolute and unchanged submission of Jesus. Wherefore, O Lord, we thy servants, as also thy holy people, calling to mind the blessed passion of the same Christ, thy Son, our Lord, his resurrection from the dead and glorious ascension into heaven, do offer unto thy most excellent majesty of thy gifts bestowed upon us a pure victim, a holy victim, a spotless victim, the holy bread of eternal life and the chalice of everlasting salvation. Supra Quay the priest continues, and in the name of all present, ask God to accept, to be pleased with, the sacrifice, inasmuch as it is the sign of their obedience and surrender, which they unite with the dispositions of Jesus. And mayest thou deign to regard them with a propitious and serene countenance, and to accept them, as thou wast graciously pleased to accept the gifts of thy just servant Abel, and the sacrifice of our patriarch Abraham, and that which thy high priest Melchizedek offered to thee, a holy sacrifice, an immaculate victim. Supplices te regamus. The priest then prays in particular for all who are about to receive Holy Communion. This prayer refers, as St. Thomas indicates, to the internal sacrifice, to the internal acts of the priest and people. It asks, to use the words of St. Thomas, that the angels standing by at the divine mysteries may present to God the prayers of both priest and people according to the words of the Apocalypse. 
and the smoke of the incense of the prayers of the saints ascended up before God from the hand of the angel. We most humbly beseech thee, Almighty God, that thou command these offerings to be carried by the hands of thy holy angel to thy altar on high, in the sight of thy divine majesty, that as many as shall partake of the most sacred body and blood of thy Son at this altar may be filled with all heavenly graces and blessings. Through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. Memento. The second prayer is for the dead. In this second prayer the priest, having just recalled the eternal home of the angels and saints, asks God that those in purgatory, who are all sure of salvation, may speedily attain to the possession of God. The church in purgatory, like the church on earth, depends on God for all blessings. Be mindful, O Lord, of thy servants, men and women, and here he names them, who are gone before us with the sign of faith and rest in the sleep of peace. To these, O Lord, and to all that rest in Christ, grant we beseech thee a place of refreshment, light, and peace. Through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. Nobis coque peccatoribus. The third prayer is for the priest and for us who are present at the Mass. After the prayer for the departed, who are certain of entering heaven, the priest remembers all of us here present, servants of God, who have yet to strive for it, and he asked the Father of mercies in his gracious kindness to give us also, sinners though we be, a place with the saints. Even with the apostles and the martyrs, a wonderful prayer characterized by its spirit of confidence. But are we fit to associate with the martyrs? All those named are martyrs. And to us sinners, thy servants, who trust in the multitude of thy mercies, vouchsafe to grant some part and fellowship with thy holy apostles and martyrs, with John, Stephen, Matthias, Barnabas, Ignatius, Alexander, Marcellinus, Peter, Felicity, Perpetua, Agatha, Lucy, Agnes, Sicily, Anastasia, and with all thy saints, into whose company we beseech thee to admit us, not in consideration of our merits, but according to the bounty of thy pardon, through Christ our Lord. Amen is not said. The prayer continues. By whom, O Lord, thou dost ever create, sanctify, vivify, bless, and impart to us all these good things. These words refer to the divine action through Christ in regard to the matter of the sacrifice. The sequence of thought is as follows. By whom, O Lord, our Father, thou dost ever create, all things were made by him, and creation is continued in preservation. Sanctify at the offertory, make living at the consecration, bless, make a source of blessing especially in the tabernacle, and give unto us at Holy Communion all these good things, the most holy sacrament, the best of all the good things God has given us through Christ our Lord. Having enumerated all God has done for us through Christ, we recall that through Christ as head of all creation, Glory is given back to God by all creatures. We unite ourselves with Jesus in this, saying, while the signs of the cross are made with the sacred host, through him and with him and in him, 
Thou hast, O Almighty Father, in the unity of the Holy Ghost, all honor and glory. Saying these last words, the priest raises a little both the sacred host and the chalice, the little elevation. All glory is given to God through Christ, and only through Him, per Christum Dominum Nostrum. Without Him nothing could honor the divine majesty, but with Him, cum Christo, great glory is given. In His sacred heart, in Christo Jesu, we find the absolutely perfect honor and glory of God, the Father Almighty, in the unity of the Holy Ghost, forever and ever. These last words are said aloud, so that the faithful may answer, Amen, to all the prayers said in secret since the beginning of the canon. The sign of the cross, made three times with the host over the chalice, signifies that the host and chalice contain, whole and entire, the same Christ who was crucified. The Our Father and the Beginning of the Prayers for Peace from the beginning of the potter to the end of the Pax Domini. This part of the ordinary is made up of a series of petitions for the spiritual and temporal favors we need. Petition is a clear expression of our dependence on God, who is our Father, who is all-powerful, and who can therefore grant us all we need. Pater Noster, Our Father. This great prayer of desire, with its seven petitions, asks that God, our Father, may be praised and served, and that all we need in order to attain to the possession of God may be given us. The first three petitions of the Our Father are acts of perfect love. The soul concerns itself with the glory of God. It asks in the first of these petitions that God may be known and loved by all. Then in the next petition, that all may attain to His eternal kingdom as He desires. And thirdly, that all may fulfill the necessary condition for entering His kingdom, obedience to His will. All the graces asked in the last four petitions are given through Holy Mass, and are given very richly. Admonished by Thy salutary precepts, and instructed by Thy divine direction, we dare to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Libronos. The Our Father is followed by the prayer, Deliver us. This prayer is an expansion of the last petition of the Our Father, Deliver us from evil, which petition has been spoken by the server in the name of the people. We ask in this expansion to be freed from all evil of the past, our sins, of the present, our temptations especially, and of the future, ingratitude, mortal sin, loss of God. In this prayer we hear also the first of a series of petitions for peace, the peace which the world cannot give, the peace of soul the tranquility of soul which comes by God's grace to those who endeavor to live always in childlike dependence on God our Father. These petitions have been explained before. At the words, Grant Peace, the priest makes the sign of the cross on himself with the paten. Peace is through the cross. 
He then kisses the patent to manifest his reverence for the sacred body which is to be placed on it. Deliver us, we beseech thee, O Lord, from all evils past, present, and to come. And through the intercession of the blessed and glorious ever-Virgin Mary, Mother of God, and of thy holy apostles Peter and Paul, and of Andrew, and of all the saints, grant peace in our days, that by the assistance of thy mercy we may be always free from sin and secure from all disturbance. Through the same Jesus Christ, thy Son, our Lord, who with thee and the Holy Ghost liveth and reigneth for ever and ever. Amen. May the peace of the Lord be always with you and with your spirit. While pronouncing the last words of the prayer through the same Jesus Christ, the priest, after a new genuflection, an act of faith in the real presence, breaks the sacred host into three pieces while holding it over the chalice. The breaking of the host reminds us how the body of Christ was lacerated and broken by the scourges, the crown, and the nails. The breaking thus signifies his death, and the dropping of a part of the host into the chalice recalls the union of the body and blood at the resurrection. The three signs of the cross made over the chalice with the particle of the sacred host when saying, May the peace of the Lord, Pax Domini, be always with you, remind us that the Holy Trinity established peace by the blood of Christ. Giving peace, says St. Paul, by the blood of his cross. And also, he is our peace. The priest again genuflects in adoration. The Communion From the beginning of the Agnus Dei to the end of the Communion With the Agnus Dei there begins a very fundamental change in the prayers of the Mass. Up to that moment they were addressed to God, to the Holy Trinity, and in particular manner to God the Father, and were addressed to Him by the priest in the name of the Church through Christ our Lord. The Agnus Dei and the prayers that follow are addressed directly to the Lord Jesus. We give Him the title, The Lamb of God, which reminds us of His surrender without complaint to the death of the cross. He shall be dumb as a lamb before His shearers and of the gentleness that would not break the bruised reed or quench the smoking flax. This title brings our Lord before us as one to whom we can go with confidence because of this gentleness. He is meek and humble of heart. He has taken on him all the sins of the world. Hence we can ask him to have mercy on us and to give us the peace of soul that comes from surrender to God to which by his grace we aspire. Lamb of God, who takest away the sins of the world, have mercy on us. Lamb of God, who takest away the sins of the world, have mercy on us. Lamb of God, who takest away the sins of the world, grant us peace. Domine Jesu Christi In the three prayers before Holy Communion, the Domine Non Sum Dignus, and the other prayers, we should note how the tender devotion of these upliftings of the heart is dominated by the calm character which appears all through the ordinary. The three prayers before receiving come from a soul which is filled with confidence in the Lord Jesus. They manifest the humility of the creature before the Creator. They are petitions for the fundamental grace of the Mass, the grace of more perfect union of will with God, which is asked for all present and for the whole mystic body of Christ. 
The first of these prayers is for the church. It asks our Lord that by His grace all the members may be united in the peace which comes from conformity to God's will, and which can only come thus. It asks Him to look at the faith and loving obedience of His body, the church, which are expressed by the Mass. Lord Jesus Christ, who did say to Thy apostles, I leave you peace, my peace I give you, regard not my sins, but the faith of Thy church, and deign according to Thy will to grant her peace and unity, who livest and reignest, God, for ever and ever. Amen. The second prayer is for the fruits of Holy Communion, deliverance from all sin and all future evils, with the strength to keep our will united to God, and the grace of final perseverance. Never suffer me to be separated from Thee. Everything we need is included in this beautiful prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, who according to the will of the Father, with the cooperation of the Holy Ghost, hast by Thy death given life to the world, deliver me by this Thy most sacred body and blood from all my iniquities and from every evil and make me always cleave to thy commandments, and never suffer me to be separated from thee, who with the same God the Father and the Holy Ghost livest and reignest God for ever and ever. Amen. The third prayer is a further petition for all the graces needed to receive Holy Communion worthily, and for the precious graces it gives, perfect purification from the effects of sin, and the protection from future danger. Let not the communion of thy body, O Lord Jesus Christ, which I, though unworthy, presume to receive, turn to my judgment and condemnation. But of thy mercy may its reception help me as a safeguard for both soul and body in the future, and as a healing remedy for the effects of past sin, who with God the Father in the unity of the Holy Ghost livest God forever and ever. Amen. The priest then genuflects to express once more his faith in the real presence by his adoration. Then, taking the host in his hands, he says, I will take the bread of heaven and call upon the name of the Lord. He knows what he is before God, but he trusts in the power of the Savior. So, striking his breast, he says thrice the prayer of the centurion, which was at once answered by the cure of his servant, from a sickness unto death. Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldst enter under my roof. Say but the word, and my soul shall be healed. Receiving the sacred host, the pledge of future glory, he says, May the body of our Lord Jesus Christ preserve my soul to life everlasting. Amen. Deeply grateful for all God has given, but conscious of his weakness in face of his spiritual enemies, and hence his need of help, the priest says, What return shall I make the Lord for all that he has given to me? I will take the chalice of salvation, and call upon the name of the Lord. Praising, I will call upon the Lord, and from my enemies I shall be saved. Receiving the precious blood, the price of eternal salvation, he says, May the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ preserve my soul to life everlasting. Amen. The words used in taking the ablutions refer to the effects of Holy Communion, eternal salvation and the means to it, preservation from sin. 
Taking wine as the first ablution, the priest says, Grant, O Lord, that what we have taken with our lips we may receive with a pure mind, and that from being a gift of this life it may become for us a remedy unto life eternal. Taking water and wine as the second ablution, he says, May thy body, O Lord, which I have received, and thy blood which I have drunk, cleave to my inmost being, and grant that no stain of sin may remain in me, who have been refreshed by this pure and holy sacrament, who livest and reignest for ever and ever. Amen. The Thanksgiving From the Beginning of the Communion Antiphon to the End of the Last Gospel The Communion and Post-Communion are part of the Thanksgiving. They belong to the proper of the Mass. These are followed by the dismissal and the blessing of the people. On the day of the priest's ordination, the ordaining bishop prayed while anointing the young priest's hands, Consecrate, O Lord, these hands, so that whatever they bless shall be blessed. But before giving his priestly blessing, the priest bows with reverence before the altar and asks once more that the expression of his humble subjection may be acceptable to the Holy Trinity and that the sacrifice may be fruitful for himself and for those for whom it was offered. May the homage of my servitude, O Holy Trinity, be pleasing unto thee, and grant that the sacrifice which I, though unworthy, have offered in the presence of thy majesty may be acceptable to thee, and through thy mercy win thy favor for me and all for whom it has been offered. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. And then, blessing the people, the priest says, May Almighty God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost bless you. Amen. In Principio Erat Verbum The opening words of the Gospel of St. John make a fitting close to the sublime prayers of the Mass. The sacrifice of Christ on Calvary was the great act of His life on earth. It was for that great work He descended from heaven and became man. For us men, and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, became incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary, and was made man. The sacrifice of our Savior, which is perpetuated in the Mass, is therefore indissolubly united with his incarnation. He became incarnate that he might offer a perfect sacrifice for us and for our salvation, and that he might leave to the church a perfect sacrifice which would be a perpetual memorial of Calvary. The Incarnation was the beginning of His sacrifice. The Church of Christ is ever trying to keep before our minds the wonderful fact of the Incarnation which made the Mass possible. Every day during the Holy Sacrifice she commands her priest to read the Gospel twice. In the first Gospel we hear day by day the different details of our Lord's life on earth. But in the last gospel, we hear the same words every day, the opening words of the gospel of St. John, which tell us of the mystery of the incarnation, that the word of God was made flesh and dwelt amongst us. Finally, we should note that the church commands her priest to genuflect during the creed when saying, He became incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary and was made man. And again during the last gospel, when saying, The Word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us. The Church has so commanded 
that by these genuflections during the holy sacrifice she might express her adoration, her gratitude, her love for him who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven, was made man, and was crucified also for us. Chapter 10 In the Meaning of the Mass The Mass and the Youthful Mind Introduction it is a sad fact that many Catholics all the world over have little appreciation of Holy Mass, and indeed the neglect of the Sunday precept is one of the anxieties of the Church. Even when the precept is faithfully fulfilled, as in Ireland, it is to be feared that some are led to go to Mass out of custom or by the example of others, and that this is no rash suspicion is proved by the fact that many Catholics on leaving Ireland give up the practice of assisting at Mass on Sunday. This neglect suggests that if a better understanding of the holy sacrifice were given to school children, they would grow up with a real appreciation of the privilege of being present at Mass. This appreciation would, by God's grace, continue and develop and make them ready to accept the difficulty often attached to the fulfilling of the Sunday precept and even lead them to fulfill the Sunday duty with joy and gratitude. This chapter shows how to put the meaning of the Mass in a simple way that can be used for instructing the young. The reader will find a definite order of ideas set forth in the ten paragraphs, like ten lessons. The teacher should follow this order, but should express and expand the idea of each paragraph in words chosen to suit the age of those listening. The order in which the ideas are presented has been chosen for the following reasons. It emphasizes the obligation of childlike submission and obedience to God, which is of supreme importance and is easily forgotten. It avoids the complications arising from making the sacrifices of the old law the source of our idea of sacrifice. In this, we follow the indications of St. Thomas. The sacrifice of the cross manifested the loving obedience of Jesus. Unless ye be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. A good Catholic family is an image of the holy family at Nazareth. In such a family we find an affectionate union between children and parents, and this union ensures the happiness of the home life. If we consider very carefully, we shall see that the pivot of this affectionate union is the loving obedience of the children. The word of father and mother rules the home. The wish of father and mother is final for good children. This spirit of loving submission appears in many forms. The children look with confidence to father and mother to take care of them. They know instinctively that they depend on them for all they need, and they are grateful to them. Disobedience brings the destruction of the affectionate union between the parents and the children and the destruction of the happiness of the home. God is our Father. We are His children, and we should be lovingly obedient to our Father in heaven. We should do what He wishes us to do. We should desire always to please Him. If we live as affectionate children of God, we shall enjoy the happiness of His home in heaven. Disobedience to God in small things tends to break our affectionate union with Him and may lead to our being shut out from the happiness of His kingdom. 
Our Heavenly Father wishes very much that we all should get to heaven, and He sent His divine Son to teach us the true way. The Son of God came down from heaven. He became man. He taught us the way of reverence and of loving obedience to God. He was Himself obedient. As man, He was obedient to Mary and Joseph, God's representatives, although they were less holy and less wise than He was. We too should be obedient to God and to those that represent God. We should be obedient to our parents and to the church of God and to all who have God's authority. We will continue with Mass and the Youthful Mind on side B of this tape. Please join us. We continue now with the meaning of the Mass, materials for meditation on the Holy Sacrifice and its relation to our spiritual life by Reverend John Kearney, CSSP. We continue with the chapter on the Mass and the Youthful Mind. When Jesus our Lord taught, he worked miracles to prove that he came with God's authority. The leaders of the Jews were envious of his power. They would not accept his teaching. They wished to get him out of the way. So they got the Roman governor to put him to death. Jesus knew that the Jews would hand him over to the Romans and persuade them to have him crucified. But Jesus did not stop teaching. By word and example, he continued teaching the way to heaven. He was sent to teach, and because he continued to teach the truth, he was crucified. He was obedient to his Father, even unto death. He truly died on the cross. His blood was separated from his body. Our Lord's acceptance of death in his obedience to his heavenly Father was an act by which he showed that he, as man, acknowledged his heavenly Father as supreme Lord, and that he himself, as man, was a reverent and affectionate and obedient child, obedient even unto death. This public act of obedience unto death was a great act of the worship of God, the greatest ever made. To worship God or to adore God is to declare that God is supreme and that man is utterly dependent on him. Such a great act of worship is called a sacrifice. The word sacrifice is also used to mean the giving up of something which we like. A sacrifice is a sign. In a good Catholic family, if the children are away from home at Christmas, they would very naturally want to write and tell father and mother that they all wish them every Christmas blessing. In such a case, the natural thing is to write a united Christmas letter. The eldest child writes in the name of all, and puts at the end of the letter, your loving and obedient children. This letter would express and show clearly the loving obedience hidden in the hearts of the children. The letter would be a sign of their loving obedience. A sign is something not hidden, which shows clearly something that is hidden. A signpost shows the hidden place to which a road leads. A good resolution is hidden until a person does something to show it. This shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the infant wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. Our Lord's death on the cross was a sign of the disposition of loving obedience which was hidden in his sacred heart. A sign such as our Lord's death on the cross through obedience is called a sacrifice. 
A sacrifice, then, is an act which is not hidden, which is chosen by God himself, which is done by an appointed person, and which shows clearly a good disposition of soul that is hidden. This disposition of soul is one of deep reverence for God and loving obedience to God. It shows that man admits that God is supreme and that man depends on God for everything. In other words, sacrifice expresses the right relation of man's soul to God. The sacrifice of Christ on the cross was a sign chosen by God to express and make clear to men our Lord's hidden disposition of loving obedience. Just before going to Gethsemane to begin his passion, Jesus referred to this when he said, That the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father hath given me commandment, so I act. Arise, let us go. Our Lord's obedience unto death was a great act of religion. His loving obedience as man was most pleasing to his heavenly Father, and he showed his loving obedience before all men on Calvary. A group of men always use a sign when they desire to express before the whole world their reverence for any great person and their devotion to him. If the great person is a king, men present to him the keys of the chief city. If a benefactor, they present to him a paper, giving him the freedom of the city, or they present an address which one person reads in the name of all. These are signs of respect, gratitude, and obedience. A sacrament also is a sign of something which is hidden. It's a sign of the grace given to the soul. In our worship of God, we need a sign, a sacrifice, to express our adoration, our gratitude, our sorrow, our petitions. Firstly, because God requires us to so express them. He wishes us to worship Him by sacrifice. Secondly, because it is necessary to manifest them before men. Everyone that shall confess me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. And also, because such an expression intensifies our own dispositions. Finally, this expression is required because our body, being God's creature, should take part in his worship. How God gave us the sign we shall next consider. The sacrifice of the cross is continued in the Mass. Our Lord knew that it was the divine will that we should worship God by the right of sacrifice, and hence that we, the human children of God, would need a sign, a great act to express before men our loving obedience to God. To have such a sign is according to our human nature. It is something natural. It is something we should expect God to give us. To give us such a sign, our Lord found a wonderful means of putting within our reach his own chosen sign of loving obedience, and in such a way that we could use it as the expression of our own childlike reverence and submission. To do this, he perpetuated his own great act of worship. The great sign of loving obedience which he made on Calvary is to last forever. Our Savior, as man, is still reverent in heaven before the majesty of his Father. He is still ready to die. He is still filled with the spirit of loving obedience. 
to manifest this unchanged disposition and thus to perpetuate his sacrifice on Calvary, he selected a new sign that would also be a memorial and an image of his blood shedding on the cross. This new sign is the Mass. On Calvary, his body and blood were really separated. In the Mass, they are represented as being separated. At Mass, by the two separate consecrations, the priest, through the power of God, places the body and blood of Jesus on the altar. This is an image of the separation of the body and blood of Christ on Calvary. It is the chosen sign which expresses the unchanged loving obedience of Jesus as man to his Father in heaven. We can see now how the sacrifice of the altar is the same as the sacrifice of the cross. Both express the same unchanged disposition hidden in the heart of Jesus. The Mass, then, is the sacrifice offered by Jesus. It expresses his own humble dependence on his heavenly Father. In his divine goodness, our Lord wishes us to unite with him and to make his sacrifice to be our sacrifice. How this is done, we shall next consider. We can unite with Jesus in the sacrifice of the Mass and make it our sacrifice. The Mass, as we've seen, is the expression, it is the sign of the loving obedience of our Lord to his heavenly Father. Our Lord desires that when we assist at Mass, we would wish the Mass to be the sign of our own spirit of docile, childlike obedience to God and we would wish to unite our spirit of obedience with the obedience of Jesus. How can we unite our spirit of obedience with that of our Lord? Our Lord said, I am the vine, and you are the branches. The vine and the branches form one tree. They live one life. They are all intimately united. And our Lord tells us that we are united in the same way with himself. Hence, we can unite with him if we wish to be united, and if our disposition of soul is like his, that is, if we wish to be obedient children of God, then the Mass will be the sign of our obedience, as it is the sign of the obedience of Jesus. Even if our disposition is poor and weak, yet if we have some reverence and some wish to be obedient, we can unite this poor disposition with the perfect disposition of our Lord, and the Mass will help to make our disposition better. To assist at Mass with such dispositions is to declare openly that we wish to live as docile, obedient children of God. It is the greatest act of worship that we can make, and as creatures we are bound to worship God. To offer Mass as would a saint, we do so when we make ourselves to be of one mind with Jesus by surrendering ourselves wholeheartedly and without reserve to the will of our Heavenly Father. To assist at Mass with these dispositions is an act more pleasing to our Father in Heaven than any other act of private devotion. St. Paul tells us, We are the sons of God, and if sons, heirs also, heirs indeed of God and joint heirs with Christ. Christ, then, is like our elder brother. Hence, at Mass, we can really unite our spirit of loving obedience with his loving obedience. We Catholics go to Mass, 
we offer the sacrifice that the world may know that we love the Father, and as the Father gives us a commandment, so we act, and are determined to act so always. The loving obedience of Jesus unto death satisfied for sin. Every sin is an act of disobedience. Everyone who commits a serious sin is no longer God's friend. If he dies in sin, he cannot enter heaven, because heaven is for God's friends only. He will be punished in hell. God wishes all men to get to heaven, and he accepted our Lord's great act of obedience on Calvary to make up for the disobedience in the sins of men. He accepted our Lord's pains in place of the punishment which the sin of men deserved. And he will forgive men their sins on account of Jesus if they are really sorry. Moreover, on account of the great love in the heart of Jesus during his passion, God gives men help to have real sorrow for sin so that they can get forgiveness in confession. Without real sorrow, there can be no forgiveness. Real sorrow comes to us abundantly through Holy Mass, and hence forgiveness of our sins come to us through Holy Mass. This real sorrow comes to our heart from the wounded heart of Jesus, wounded on the cross for our sins. Hence, the importance of assisting at Mass frequently. We are sinners, and Mass will give us grace to be sorry for all our sins, great and small. Every sin is disobedience. A mortal sin kills the soul, for our soul has a spiritual life called sanctifying grace, and a mortal sin kills this life. If a child is disobedient to parents and eats a poison, it dies. It can never ask to be forgiven by its parents. It can never join the family circle again. Its dead body is put away to rot in the ground. It is only God who could give that life back again to the dead child. Consider now the case of a mortal sin. God alone can forgive mortal sin by restoring the life of grace. He does this when sin is forgiven in those that have real sorrow. Real sorrow is given especially through the Mass. The loving obedience of Jesus merited all blessings for us. Our Lord's loving obedience unto death was most pleasing to His heavenly Father. Not that His Father was pleased to see His beloved Son suffering, but He was pleased with the great charity of Jesus for Himself and for sinful men. It was this charity that led Jesus to be obedient in continuing to teach the way to heaven, even though he knew it would cost him his life. By this supreme act of charity so pleasing to his Father, Jesus merited, he earned, all the graces, all the helps that sinful men would need to get to heaven. These favors include the grace of real sorrow for sin, and all the spiritual graces that help men to live so as to be always pleasing to God by doing his holy will and bearing in patience all the sufferings of each day. Our Lord also merited the material favors which would be a help to the spiritual graces. These graces and favors come to us most abundantly through Holy Mass. This is God's plan, and we should seek them in the Mass. To be pleasing to God, therefore, and thus to win heaven, we must assist at Mass as often as we can. The Mass 
is the source of all favors, spiritual and temporal. We should ask for these favors when we're at Mass. If at the beginning of Mass we try to place our soul in the disposition of docile obedience and filial dependence on God, then as the Mass proceeds, streams of grace come to us. The Council of Trent tells us that the favors merited on Calvary are most richly received through the Mass. What folly, then, to miss being present at Mass. The full meaning of our sacrifice. We are creatures of God always. We've been dependent on Him in the past, and we shall be His creatures. We depend on Him for all things in the future. In the past we got favors from God for which we should be thankful. In the future we shall need favors from God and we should petition for them. We should ask for forgiveness, for love of God, and for heaven. The Mass expresses the relation of our soul to God, and hence it expresses our thanksgiving for the past and our petition for the future. In the past, God gave us favors and blessings without number. He wishes us to recognize that we were not obedient in spite of these favors, to regret it, and to promise that we shall be loving, obedient children in the future. This sorrow and this promise are likewise expressed by the Mass. Mass expresses worship, adoration, thanksgiving, petition, and contrition. If we want to praise and worship God, we should go to Mass. If we want to thank God, we should go to Mass. If we want to get sorrow for sin, we should go to Mass. If we want help to overcome temptation, to carry our cross, to put God first in our life. Or, if we need any temporal blessings, we should go to Mass. It is because of all this that the Church obliges us to go to Mass on Sundays. The Mass and Holy Communion In order to go to heaven, we must live like Jesus. We must live as docile children of God. Now, in order to help us to live so, Jesus himself comes to us to be the food of our souls, and so we can have the very life of Jesus within us. In that way, we shall be strengthened to do his holy will, to suffer like him, and carry our cross like him. Jesus, too, gives himself to us in Holy Communion as a pledge of the joy that we shall have when he gives himself to us in the glory of heaven. Hence, when the priest gives us Holy Communion, he says, May the body of our Lord Jesus Christ guard thy soul to life everlasting. We should go to Holy Communion as often as possible. The graces given by Holy Mass prepare our soul to receive our Lord and to receive the increase of the divine life of sanctifying grace which Jesus gives us when we receive him. Sacrifice Before Christ Came before our Lord came, men needed a sacrifice, in other words, a sign to express their willing dependence on God, their loving obedience, their sorrow for not being obedient, their gratitude for past favors, their requests for God's favors in the future. God gave them a sign, a sacrifice, which was a figure of Calvary, a figure of the great sacrifice to come. The particular sign God chose was the killing of animals, 
the pouring out of their blood by a priest on an altar, and the burning of the rich parts of the animals. This sign was chosen by God because Jesus was killed, because his blood was poured out, and because his heart was burning with love for his Father in heaven and for his human brothers. Since this sacrifice was a chosen figure of Calvary, it was acceptable to God, and he gave his blessings to those who offered these sacrifices if their dispositions were good. The Sin of Missing Mass To miss Mass on Sunday, without a serious reason, is a most grievous mortal sin. By assisting at Mass is the appointed public confession that I am a Catholic. To miss Mass is to refuse to make this confession. By assisting at Mass is the commanded public confession that in union with Jesus Christ I worship God, my Creator, and my Father. To miss Mass is to refuse to make this public act of worship. Whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God. We come now to the appendix in the book, Our Living the Mass. Assisting at Mass, as we've often said, is an external expression of our total surrender to God. It is a public declaration of this surrender. It manifests openly our disposition of soul, our state of mind and will. This disposition, if sincere and real, should not be transient. It should be permanent and should find expression in acts. In the acts of our rational life, in the acts of our day, we should live the Mass. Our subjection to God implies our subjection to those who speak in God's name, that is, to those whom God uses in dealing with us. Hence our offering of the Mass is a public protestation of our subjection to our Holy Father the Pope, to our Bishop, to our Confessor, to all those who have authority over us. For children, this means submission to parents, and to those that take the place of parents, teachers. For religious, it means obedience to rule and to all superiors, including heads of departments. For the faithful, it means subjection to the head of their family and in their own sphere, to employers and to those who have authority from the state. Daily life should square with this expression of subjection. In a word, if we fully enter into the true dispositions required for sacrifice, our being present at Mass includes all these acts of subjection, and to live the Mass is to live in this dependence, for this dependence is dependence on God. To live the Mass means in a special way to live in constant union with the divine will. If we are really dependent on God, all our activity should be governed by the divine will. At any moment, we should be able to say, this act which I am doing just now is being done to please God. This does not mean that our life will be clouded and unnatural. Quite the contrary. Filial subjection to God brings peace, contentment, and joy, and it is the divine will that already in this life we should have a foretaste of the joy of heaven through the union of our will with the will of God. Those who really live the Mass, who are really dependent on God, do everything to please Him. 
They fulfill the duties of their state in life to please God. They take the joys he sends them just because he wants them to have these joys. And for them, they thank him. The first and predominant motive of all their activity is to please God. And hence, they are saints, and they already taste the joys of the saints. But alas, there are many other seemingly good Catholics who are not perfectly subject to God. They do not want to offend him. They fear to offend him. But their first object is to please themselves, and they want to do this without displeasing God. Their religion is sort of a corrective, a sort of check on the working out of their desire to please themselves. They forget the complete subjection of Christ, who is obedient even unto death, and who will be subject to his Father forever. When all things, says St. Paul, shall be subdued unto him, Christ, then the Son also himself as man shall be subject unto him, the Father, that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Such as these are not advancing in friendship with God our Father. Their spiritual life is at a standstill, if it is not diminishing, as is usually the case. They may assist at Mass every day, but they do not enter into the subjection of Christ, and during the day they do not live the Mass. And again, since to be present at Mass and to unite with the priest in the offering of Christ is a manifestation of our filial subjection to God, our act is a public protest that we are ready to accept all God sends us, that we will see his kind hands in all the sufferings of soul and body that he may permit to come to us that day. Our disposition of total surrender to God and of total dependence on him implies this, and to live the Mass during the day is to accept in reality what we protested we were ready to accept when before the altar of sacrifice. What a contradiction there is between the protestation of loving subjection to God made by assisting at Mass and a self-seeking life. The Mass is the sign, the expression of the utter dependence of Christ and of all who are united to him. What a contrast, then, there is between this solemn declaration of dependence and a day lived without a thought of this dependence and characterized by grumbling and complaining about what God's kind providence permits. To live the Mass, therefore, means to persevere in the disposition of subjection to God, which our joining in the morning Mass made manifest and to let that disposition show itself in the life we lead, that is, in the acts of our daily life. In a word, to live the Mass, to let the Mass appear in our life, is to live in loving surrender to God. To live the Mass is to manifest our subjection to God by living so as to avoid sin, by keeping the commandments, especially the commandment of charity, by doing all our acts for the motive of pleasing Him, to live the Mass is to subject ourselves to the action of God by willingly accepting the trials and disappointments of the day, for all those come with His kind permission and are intended by Him for our spiritual good. When we offer Mass, therefore, we should look forward, and the surrender of our will should extend to every moment of the day we are beginning.
we should embrace the toil involved in the doing of God's will each moment. We should embrace the suffering involved in accepting all that the divine will permits to come to us. These dispositions of all-embracing subjection, which we unite with our Lord's subjection to His heavenly Father, will, on account of that union, fit us to receive through the Mass the graces we need to persevere in those dispositions of loving surrender until we come again to assist at and offer the adorable sacrifice. The points we've just been considering give us the explanation of an apparent contradiction in the lives of some of those who assist at Holy Mass frequently, even every day. The Council of Trent assures us that the fruits of the sacrifice on Calvary are received in rich abundance through the Mass. And yet, we find some of those who go to daily Mass showing no sign of spiritual improvement. They are imperfect, proud, and comfort-loving. They are uncharitable, lazy, and self-centered. They are touchy, vain, and lovers of their own way. What then has become of the graces of the holy sacrifice? The reason of this anomaly is that such persons, when assisting at Mass, do not try to put themselves in the disposition of surrender to God. They do not even really desire this disposition. There is some section of their lives in which they do not seek the divine will. There is something which God wants them to give up and which they do not want to relinquish. There is some interest which they pursue without proper dependence on God. In some particular way, they are inordinate self-seekers. In a word, they are wanting in filial surrender to God, and as we've seen, the fruits of the holy sacrifice are given accordingly to the degree of this surrender and are intended to help us to perfect the union of our will with the will of God. Here we have the reason why such persons are spiritually at a standstill in spite of the abundance of grace which they have the power to receive every day of their lives. No doubt grace does come to such souls from the holy sacrifice. They are children of the church, and the first effect of this grace is to keep them from mortal sin. But if only they really desired to please God and tried seriously to conquer themselves, to do God's will and to bear the trials of the day, this increase in their spirit of subjection would result in most rich graces at the next Mass. These new graces would enable them to advance to a further degree of perfection in the union of their will with God's will, and continuing thus day by day, they would rapidly attain to great sanctity. And thus would be realized the inspiring words of our Holy Father in the encyclical Madiater Dei. When, then, we stand round the altar, we must be so transformed in soul that whatever makes for sin in us be completely destroyed, while whatever fosters in us divine life through Christ be powerfully supported and strengthened. And thus we shall come together with the stainless host a victim pleasing to the Eternal Father. And thus we conclude the meaning of the Mass. 
materials for meditation on the Holy Sacrifice and its relation to our spiritual life, dedicated to Mary, the Blessed Mother of Jesus, who stood beside the cross while the great sacrifice was being offered. By Reverend John Kearney, CSSP. continue with some thoughts on the tremendous value of Holy Mass. At the hour of death, the Holy Masses you have heard devoutly will be your greatest consolation. Every Mass will go with you to judgment and will plead for pardon for you. By every Mass you can diminish the temporal punishment due to your sins, more or less according to your fervor. By devoutly assisting at Holy Mass, you render the greatest homage possible to the sacred humanity of our Lord. Through the Holy Sacrifice, our Lord Jesus Christ supplies for many of your negligences and omissions. He forgives you all the venial sins which you are determined to avoid. He forgives you all your unknown sins which you never confessed. The power of Satan over you is diminished. By piously hearing Holy Mass, you afford the souls in purgatory the greatest possible relief. One Holy Mass heard during your life will be of more benefit to you than many heard for you after your death. Through Holy Mass you are preserved from many dangers and misfortunes which would otherwise have befallen you. You shorten your purgatory by every Mass. During Holy Mass, you kneel amid a multitude of holy angels who are present at the adorable sacrifice with reverential awe. Through Holy Mass, you are blessed in your temporal goods and affairs. When you hear Holy Mass devoutly, offering it to Almighty God in honor of any particular saint or angel, thanking God for the favors bestowed on him, you afford that saint or angel a new degree of honor, joy, and happiness and draw his special love and protection on yourself. Every time you assist at Holy Mass, besides other intentions, you should offer it in honor of the saint of the day. Prayers which may be said at the offertory, when the priest offers the host. I place upon the paten my heart, the hearts of all those near and dear to me, especially the hearts of my relatives, the hearts of all those for whom I have promised to pray, the hearts of all those who have injured me, the hearts of all those whom I may have injured, the hearts of all the agonizing. 
Jesus, when thou changest the bread and wine into thy body and blood, change our hearts into hearts pleasing to thee. When the priest offers the chalice, I place within the chalice the souls of all my relatives for whom I should pray, the souls of those for whom I may have forgotten to pray, the souls most devout to the Sacred Heart and the Blessed Virgin, the souls of the most abandoned. Jesus, when thou changest the wine into thy precious blood, change these poor souls from their place of suffering into eternal happiness. Eternal rest give unto them, O Lord, and let perpetual light shine upon them. Mother of sorrows, Mother of Christ, you had influence with your divine Son when on earth. You have the same influence now in heaven. Pray for me. Obtain from your divine Son my request, if it be his holy will. A prayer to the Blessed Virgin, never found to fail. O most beautiful flower of Mount Carmel, fruitful vine, splendor of heaven, blessed mother of the Son of God, immaculate virgin, assist me in this my necessity. O star of the sea, help me, and show me herein you are my mother. O holy Mary, mother of God, queen of heaven and earth, I humbly beseech you from the bottom of my heart to succor me in this necessity. There are none that can withstand your power. O show me herein, you are my mother, O Mary, conceived without sin. Pray for us who have recourse to thee. O show me herein, you are my mother, O Mary, conceived without sin. Pray for us who have recourse to thee. O show me herein, you are my mother, O Mary, conceived without sin. Pray for us who have recourse to thee. Sweet Mother, I place this cause in your hands. Sweet Mother, I place this cause in your hands. Sweet Mother, I place this cause in your hands.